Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Telus. This is being brought to you live and recorded live on May 28th, 2022. The time right now, 9.17 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. This is the final show before the 2022 World Series of Poker. This is the first late spring and summer World Series of Poker since 2019. This is the first time it's a normal schedule again. So we will see how it goes. Of course, it's in a new venue. And this is going to be our pre-WSOP show. So we're going to have some WSOP topics. And we're going to talk about the new venue and things you can expect there and all of that good stuff. But of course, we will have other topics that are of interest as well that have absolutely nothing to do with the World Series of Poker. Something which might be of interest to you if you're listening live is the fact that we have a free roll, which started two minutes ago. So you have plenty of time to get in as long as you have a validated and verified account on the No Fraud Online Poker Room where it takes place. The No Fraud Online Poker Room you can find near the top of the screen on PokerFraudAlert.com. You need a separate account there from the forum, and it needs to be validated and verified Additionally, you need to know the rules to qualify for the free money, the free real money we give away each week. Go to PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, all lowercase, PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, exactly as it sounds, to understand these rules to qualify for the free money, which I will pay you in various ways if you win, such as Cash App or Zelle or Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies. I don't have them all, obviously, but the major cryptos I can send you. And then we also have bank transfers as a payment method. And there may be a few other payment methods that involve payment services on the web that I can send you money. So if you win, please PM me on the forum. My name on there is Dan Druff with a space in between. Dan space Druff. Dan Druff on the forum. If you really want to claim your money another way, you can email me dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com. Dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com is my email address, which you can use to claim the money or contact me for any other reason. But keep in mind, I prefer PMs on the forum if you win. It's easier for me to sort out. And speaking of sorting out payments, I'm in the process of making payments for prior wins. I've already made some in the last two weeks. If you haven't gotten yours yet and you've asked for it, just be patient. I should be doing it this week. And then if you haven't gotten it by the end of next week, then you can bitch to me and say, I never got my payment. But I'm going to try to do the rest of them this week. And at that point, anyone who asks for their payment will get it. Remember, you have to claim your money within six six months of winning it in order to definitely get paid. Because if it's more than six months at any point, I can take that money and roll it back in the pool. I will not put it back in my Jew wallet. I promise you that. But I may roll it back into the pool for future free rolls if it's been more than six months since you claimed it. All you have to do is claim. As far as me paying you, it doesn't matter how long that has been as far as me rolling it back in. But you have to claim it within six months because at any point after that, it may get rolled back in. So keep that in mind as well. We want to make sure that all unclaimed money still goes to free rolls to be won. And you can still register with late registration for another 20 minutes till 9.40 Pacific time. And you'll have a full stack and it'll be great. And we don't get big pools. We don't get big fields these days. We don't, we have like the usual pools of like 50 bucks or more, but we 
don't get big fields these days because most people tend to listen in the archives since we do this show pretty late at night. So it's pretty easy to win the money. Not big money, but it is real cash money, which I will send you. The prizes are as follows. 25 for first, 15 for second, 10 for third, 25, 15, and 10 on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. And this is all thanks to Online Veteran. Very nice guy. I've met him in person. I went to dinner with him. And I've actually known him in various ways for a long time. We used to play on True Poker going back over 20 years. So I thank him for sending me that money, which we're using tonight for the free roll. If you want to call the show, as always, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55. 775-372-8355 is the number to call into Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Of course, we have the Mount Charleston line. The Mount Charleston line is an old 70s rotary phone sitting on top of Mount Charleston in a cabin there, which forwards to me wherever I go. That phone number is 702-430-1808. It's another line into the show. 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line. And the main number can also be used to text me at any time, day or night. Doesn't matter if we're live. Doesn't matter if I'm sleeping. You can text me. I don't care. 24-7, you can text me. 775-372-8355. Remember, if you text me during the live show, I may read your text on the air unless you ask me at the beginning of the text not to do so. We have the call to listen line, which is not a way to reach me, but it's a way to listen to the show. It does not require a smartphone. It does not require a data plan. It does not require the internet or even a computer. No, 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 no. You don't need an app. You don't need any of that stuff. All you need is a phone that can dial the U.S. And if you have that, then you can listen to the show through the call to listen line. That phone number is 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736. We have the alternate call to listen number, 641-741-1095, 641-741-1095. They both work the same way, but there's two of them in case one doesn't work. And it is free if you can call within the U.S. for free, unless you have T-Mobile, then it will cost one cent a minute because they consider it a high-volume number. Over two million minutes have been listened to on the call-to-listen line, and it never buffers and it never freezes, unlike all other forms of streaming media, which will buffer and freeze if your connection isn't that good. The call-to-listen line does not care about your connection. It will just keep playing and keep working, even if you have one bar on your cell phone. It'll never buffer and never freeze. And I guarantee that. We have a chat room. If you're listening live, you can go into the chat room. It works on any device. It does require a forum account in good standing to get into the chat room. If you're not listening live, which most of you are not, then the chat room will not work for you. Or it'll work, but nobody will be in there. I guess you can go in and talk to yourself. I see Longhair5150 is in the chat room. He made a very generous donation, and I appreciate that. So whenever someone just kind of pops up out of nowhere and says, hey, I've been listening for a long time and I appreciate the show and donates, that's very nice of him to do that. So thank you, Long here, 5150. I see him in chat. I see Frank Rizzo. I see I Am Greek, who has uh, been around for a long time listening to this show. So good to see you guys. And you can chat with each other. You can just make comments in the chat room. Every so often I check it. I'm not going to be actively chatting there because I got to do the show and pay attention to all that. But I take a look every so often. 
I will uh, give you the agenda, and then we will get going. I'm going to give you a hat update. Still some confusion about the hats. Still some people are worried that if they don't jump at it, that they're going to miss out. Don't worry. Relax. You will get your hat. And, I mean, you'll probably get your hat. If we get unprecedented demand, I guess you won't. But if there really, really is like way more demand than I thought, then I will order more. So I'm really going to try to get everybody a hat this time around. But you cannot get them now because they don't exist. I can't even get one of the new hats because they have not been made yet. So I'll let you know pretty soon how to get the hat. And if you say, hey, I was going to go play the early WSOP events, how can I wear a PFA hat? The answer is, unless you have one of the previous hats from eight years ago, you can't because they're not ready yet. So I apologize we're not ready with them right before the WSOP, but the good news is we should have them well before the end of the WSOP. And even if you can't wear the WSOP, you can wear it elsewhere. You can wear it around town. You can wear it to other poker tournaments. You could wear it to cash games. You could wear it to the 2023 WSOP. You could even wear it in bed if you like. You can wear it while you have sex. I'd probably prefer you don't do that, but you can. So I'll give you a hat update. Then I have another update, and that is about the PayPal case. The big hearing, remember we had a free roll. We had three free rolls, the fuck PayPal free rolls, celebrating that a major hearing was going to happen on May 26th in the PayPal case. I have an update for you, but I will not tease this and make you on the edge of your seat. It's only a small update. It's not an earth-shattering update. So keep that in mind if you're excited to hear about that. You have to temper your excitement. Then our main story, and I bet you know what that is. You probably know what it is because there was one big story that went around in poker over the past week, and that is the Corey Zeidman story. Corey Zeidman has been busted in a $25 million sports betting tout scheme. I will explain to you what I know about it and where I think it's going to go and whether I think he's guilty or not. We'll talk about all of the issues surrounding the Corey Zeidman sports betting tout scheme, and I'll play you an old clip of him playing at the World Series of Poker that a lot of you may remember but may not know that was him. The WSOP is about to kick off at Paris and Bally's. Not Paris and Horseshoe. It's not branded Horseshoe yet, which is a big fail on the part of Caesars because they were really believing this was going to be at the Horseshoe this year, a.k.a. Bally's. But nope, it's still Bally's. <laughs> They've been slow with the rebranding. So it's going to be Paris and Bally's. I'll tell you what you can expect in a lot of different ways as far as I can tell right now. I have not been down there to the venue. I'm not presently in Las Vegas. So I cannot tell you anything from the standpoint of having been there. And of course, I have never played the World Series of Poker there. Nobody has because it's never been there before. But I will tell you what you can expect from what I can tell right now. Then we will have Druffy Time Theater. I'll be honest here. It's getting harder and harder to come up with these topics because it's got to be something true. It's got to be something interesting. It's got to be something from my life. And it's got to be something that I'm willing to tell. I can't be a complete open book. There's some things from my life that are private that I don't want to tell out here. So it's got to be something I don't mind sharing on the radio, but is interesting enough for you to want to listen and that I haven't done already, which is the big thing because I've been doing this show for over 10 years. 
This week, it's going to be dandruff versus Las Vegas apartment management. Not just one manager, not just one apartment complex, but more than one apartment complex. And also, I helped others versus Las Vegas apartment management. It's not just about me. And you may think, that's very boring. And I will tell you, no, it's actually not boring. These are kind of interesting stories, and they may actually apply to things that you might have if you are renting. And you may have wondered sometimes what you can do and what your rights are. And it varies from state to state, but I will tell you how I handled these issues and where I was successful and where I failed. So that's Dandruff versus Las Vegas Apartment Management. All these stories are from the years 2004 through 2012. Then we're going to talk about the prime social maybe cheating scandal. And I say maybe because, I don't know, there's some allegations, but I'm not sure these allegations are true. So we'll talk about it. Something Joey Ingram's been pushing. He, he came back. Joey Ingram was missing. He was MIA. He is back on the scene. Many people are happy to see that. Joey has been on the show before, as you guys might remember. We've had him on twice. And you know, I've always had a good relationship with Joey Ingram. We're not close friends, but we've had a good relationship. So uh, I will talk about that. The uh, DOJ is accusing someone of being a foreign agent. Yes, a foreign agent against the U.S. government. Who might that person be? Steve Wynn. Yes, the DOJ is accusing Steve Wynn of being a foreign agent. I'll explain when we get to that segment. Have you ever been to a casino or somewhere else with valet parking where there's some very expensive cars and you've wondered, how hard would it be to just say, hey, that car is mine and steal it? Well, I guess at the Crown Melbourne, which is a casino in Australia, not very hard because someone stole a $500,000 McLaren from Crown Melbourne. So we'll tell you what happened there. MGM Resorts was hacked in 2019, and as many as 30 million people's records are now being sold on the dark web. So how bad is this? I will explain when we get to that segment. And this is not a three-year-old story. This has just come to light in the past week. So I will talk about that. This is something that was brought to me just before the show actually by one of our few transgender listeners. We do have a transgender listener who brought this story to my attention, and I thank them for that. And I will uh, cover it as much as I can tell from what I've read about it. I actually kind of wish I knew more, but it is something that just came out this week, even though it's something that happened three years ago. A lawsuit has been revived which alleges that Encore Boston Harbor got a sweetheart deal on its land purchase thanks to Massachusetts Gaming. So this lawsuit was filed before, and it was dismissed, and now it has been revived. And we've never talked about it before. So another win story, because of course, win and Encore are the same thing. Then we have an editorial. Nothing about poker, nothing about gambling. But it's about the biggest news story over the past week, and that was the tragic school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. I think that's how you say the name. I've only read it, not heard it pronounced. But that tragic school shooting. And 
now there's a lot of talks about what can we do per- to prevent this in the future, which pretty much happens every time that something like this occurs. So what is the solution to the school gun violence? And I'm going to tell you right now, it's not as simple as it might appear. You might think you have the answers. You don't. You really don't. So I'll tell you, of course, in my opinion, why this is such a complex issue and that a lot of the solutions being proposed are just not realistic. Finally, coronavirus news. I have a lot of anti-vaxxers who are coming out and mocking the vaccines as failures. And one of the things that's being pointed out is that supposedly in some areas, more vaccinated people are getting symptomatic Omicron than unvaccinated people. When I say more, I mean per 100,000 population. And believe it or not, that's actually true in some areas. So how could that possibly be? Is it possible the vaccine is making you more likely to get Omicron? Well, I will explain this so you can understand that. And I want everybody to understand as much as you can about COVID. I don't want you to believe left-wing propaganda, of which there's plenty, or right-wing propaganda, of which there's plenty. You need to believe the truth. You need to believe the actual data that's out there. And that's the way you can figure it out. If you listen to one political side or the other, you're not going to get the complete truth. And I've watched this, and it's irritated me. So we're going to cover that claim, which I'll give you a little spoiler. It is true on the surface that in some places that people are getting Omicron more if they're vaccinated than unvaccinated. But it's not quite that simple. So I will get to that. And I will tell you at this point, remember I got the vaccine on May 18th. I will tell you at this point whether I regret having got the fourth shot or if I'm still happy I did. Okay, so here's the hat update. We're going to get going right now. I'll give you a hat update. The hat update is as follows. I've been working with Trey Ruski regarding getting hats. He's the one who arranged for not only the Poker Fraud Alert hats from 2014 to be made, but he also arranged for these hats from uh, Donkdown, if you remember, from uh, 2011 to be made. This was also uh, Trey Ruski's contact who got those done. It was all the same guy. And I like these hats. They're good quality hats. I was very happy with the product that was delivered both times. So I've decided to go forward with this same guy doing the hats. And it's not going to be cheap. It's more expensive than last time. You know, inflation and all that. I'm going to make 100 hats. I'm going to make 40 blue, 40 black, and 20 white. And this is based upon the demand eight years ago, because we made a third, a third, a third for all those colors, and then the white ones were in much less demand. Eventually, people got white because that's all that was left, but they preferred one of the other two colors, which ran out. So instead of going 25, 25, 25, we're going to go 40, 40, 20. And here is the man who is going to be involved in the hat production, though he won't be producing them personally. Trader Ruski, hello. What's happening, Jeff? So yes, thank you for uh, overseeing this again. And uh, Trader Ruski said he's going to be providing me with samples pretty soon. So that's nice. And uh, then we can get going with the actual production of these hats. 
And uh, probably once we give the go-ahead to make these, then we can uh, probably wait another one to two weeks is what we have to expect. And at that point, then... No, five days, Jeff. Oh, five days? Oh, better than I thought. All yeah. right. Five, and then, five. And then uh, think, I think they might be able to be picked up in L.A. Or uh, depending on when you're, you'll be in Vegas, we can just have them shipped there. Yeah, though it's a little hard. I guess we could ship it to somebody I know there. Shipping to casinos is always so hard. Like I once had something shipped there, and it was the biggest pain in the ass, at least at the Rio, to pick anything up. I mean, I can I don't even want to go over it, but it was so frustrating to reach the person who would give the thing to me that was shipped to me. It didn't cost me any money. It was just a tremendous hassle, and I said I'm never going to do this again. But I do know people in Vegas that can receive them if necessary, so I guess that is one option. Now, one thing I won't be doing is I'm not going to be mailing them from Vegas. It's just too much of a pain in the ass. I, I want to mail them from home. But it, I, I'll consider having them shipped to Vegas and then just take them home. And, because I do like to have them in Vegas so I can hand them out to people who I see in person there that would like some hats. I don't personally need one because I have a blue hat from 2014 that's in good condition because it's sat in storage in plastic for many years and I didn't take it back out till about, uh, I think, 2019. So it's still in good shape. But for everybody else that doesn't have one or the one you got a long time ago is in bad shape, uh, then you probably want them soon if you're playing the World Series. So we'll see. I'll talk about it with Trader Ruski where we're going to ship them. But as you guys hear, it's, it's happening right now, but don't send me your address yet don't because i'm going to ignore it i don't need your address i don't want your address when the hats are physically in my possession and i'm ready to ship them not just when i'm holding them but when i'm ready to ship them i don't mean the day i'm going to ship them but i'm like when i'm ready to start shipping them shall i say then i will put out an announcement on the poker fraud alert twitter which is twitter.com slash poker fraud alert so you may want to follow that account or you can read the forum. I'll make an announcement there. Or you can just wait for the next show. And whatever show it is following when the shipping is ready to be done, I will announce it there. I will promise you guys that I will not ship all of them until at least one show passes where I tell you guys they're available. So if you don't feel like checking the Twitter, you don't feel like checking the forum, you just want to wait till you hear about it on the show... You may worry that by the time we announce it on the show, it'll be too late. It won't be. I promise you that. So I will give everybody a little time after the show where we announce it that they're ready to be shipped to send me the information. So we're not quite ready with that yet, but it is actively happening. And that's where the hats stand right now. I've gotten text messages of people telling me they like one and... You can send those just to kind of give me an idea of the level of interest, but that doesn't mean that you're getting in line or claiming them. I know it feels weird just to wait, but that's really what you should do here because I'm not keeping track of who's messaging me and who's not. Uh, the people messaging me, I'm just kind of figuring it out from the response I'm getting of how many I'm going to need. So I'm kind of ballparking 100, which I don't know if that's going to be accurate or not. Maybe it's going to be high. Maybe it's going to be low. But if we're significantly short, I will order more. If we're only a little bit short, then I'm afraid I probably won't. <laughs> so uh, you probably don't have to worry, though. I I'm thinking that the 100 probably will be enough 
But if they're not, if I think that we need another 50 or another 100, then I will do it, and, and I'll get more, and I'll ship them. So don't worry too much, and if you would like to pick them up at the World Series of Poker, I'm not going to be there all seven weeks, but if you're there when I'm there, then you can message me. In fact, you can do that now if you'd like. When you're listening to this, whether live or in the archives, if you'd like to tell me when you're going to be at the World Series and ask if that is a time I can meet you to give you hats, you can do that and I'll tell you uh, if we can or we can't. But you will have to come to me. I'm not going to go like put myself out to find you. You will have to come to where I say I am on a certain day and time. Probably like if I'm in an event, because when I'm in an event, a lot of times people think that in an event is a terrible time to bother me because I'm concentrating on the event. And I will tell you, that's not true, at least as far as I see it. Because a lot of time at World Series events is just sitting there in between hands waiting for the next hand. So that is why I'm totally fine if you want to come to my table, which I will tell you what the table number is, and you can come down there and get the hat from me. I'm totally fine with that. Like, don't interrupt me if you see I'm actively in the hand, but I'm kind of just sitting there on my phone or whatever. You you can totally say, hey, Todd, and I'll come over and give it to you. No problem at all. I will not feel bothered. I promise you that. Because there's a lot of idle time. In fact, it's much easier to give it to you that way than if you see me walking the hallway. Because when I'm walking the hallway, I'm always going somewhere. There's always some destination I have. And I'm not saying you can't stop me in the hallway. I'm saying that I may be in a rush somewhere. Whereas when I'm just sitting there at the event, I'm not in a rush anywhere. So if you do want to get your hat at the World Series, let me know. And we can try to arrange that. Otherwise, I can mail it to you. And we'll find a way to get them out. And... You guys will get hats, so hope you enjoy. And you don't have to worry about paying for them or anything like that. I will ship them to you for free. I will pay for their manufacturing. This is something I'm doing to thank the listeners and the forum members who have been interested in this site at any time in our decade-plus existence. And I thank Traderuski, of course, for his help with the hats, and uh, I thank everybody who has been helpful with the site in some way, whether radio co-hosts or people who are very active on the forum or people who've donated to the free roll or to other contests we've had or even contests they've held themselves. So I appreciate all those type of things. Also, people who've done personal favors for me because you listen to the show and you want to do a personal favor for me. I think that's also very nice. That's also generous of you to do so i appreciate that sometimes people doing something for me that may not help the site itself but it's a nice thing it makes me feel good that uh, people want to give back and, and enjoy what i've been providing to them here for this time but i also don't expect that of anybody so if you don't want to give me anything or do anything for me or donate that's fine too if you just want to listen or read you can do that that is completely fine i'm happy that you're interested so that's the update and the next show is scheduled for June 5th. That will be on Sunday. So that's eight days from now. This is Saturday night. It will be Sunday, and it will be 8.30 p.m. right now is the scheduled time. It's possible that could change, but right now that's the scheduled time. 8.30 p.m. on June 5th, Sunday will be the next show. There's a decent chance that that will be the show where we announce 
that you can send your address, but wait till June 5th and see. Depends how things go. It may be the show after that, which is going to be on June 15th. So I'm going to quickly run down. I know I did it last week, but I'm going to quickly run down once again the upcoming schedule of Poker Fraud Alert Radio for June and July. This, of course, is the last show in May. It is May 28th right now. But here's the June and July schedule. June 5th, June 15th, June 24th, July 1st, July 6th, July 15th, July 22nd, July 29th. All of these right now, 8.30 p.m. Pacific. The dates and times are subject to change, but that is the schedule right now as I have formed it. So keep that in mind. Next show is eight days away. The one after that will be ten days away from that, and then another nine days will be the next show. Then it will be weekly, except between July 1st and July 6th. It'll actually only be five days apart. One of our rare shows, we do only five days after the previous show. But it's just coming into the main event, so there should be a lot to talk about in those five days. All right, next I want to give you an update on the PayPal situation. May 26th was the date of the hearing where Eric Benzamokin and his co-counsel were attempting to compel PayPal to have to face this case in court. This case, a class action lawsuit against PayPal for stealing money from their customers, including poker players. In fact, that's how he got interested in the first place. I saw they had stolen 12K from Chris Moneymaker. And Chris Moneymaker said, I need an attorney. And I thought, hmm, do I know an attorney who did a good job with my case and might be interested in this? And I said, yes, I do. So I went to Eric Benzamokin. I told him what Chris had been tweeting. I said that I know Chris. He's not a close friend of mine, but it's someone I've always gotten along with. And I said to Eric, are you interested before I say anything to Chris? And he said, yeah, actually I am. So I went to Chris and I recommended Eric. And then I put the two of them together contact-wise and they got it going. PayPal then shit their pants and paid Chris when before they told him the decision was final and he was going to get nothing. As soon as they saw that he was the main face of this upcoming lawsuit, which hadn't been filed yet, they panicked and said, let's get this high-profile guy out of the case by quickly paying him. So he just wakes up one morning, and there's 12K with no explanation. He just has it back. So that meant he couldn't sue them anymore because he no longer had a financial injury in the situation. Clever, clever, huh? But that doesn't mean that there weren't tons and tons of other victims that could be found here, including some in poker. So that has been done. And it is proceeding forward. And Chris Moneymaker, who was quite bitter at PayPal over this, and rightfully so, because not only did they steal his money, they strung him along for six months thinking he'd get it back and then broke the bad news that he's getting nothing. He was so pissed about this that he stayed on as an advisor to publicize the suit, basically, so people would understand it's happening and they could join as well. And we've talked about all this before, but the big first hearing was on May 26th, and there was about one and only one matter, and that was arbitration. Because when you sign up for PayPal, you agree in this long, long terms of service that they give you, 
before you could have an account there. One of the things you agree to, though you may not realize it, is that you will have any dispute handled in arbitration instead of court. So this was the attempt to compel arbitration by PayPal and hold people to these terms that they agree to. But there's many reasons to argue against the compelling of arbitration. And it's really up to the court whether they're going to uphold what's written in the contract there. Because it's not as simple as just you click, yes, I agree to all your terms, and then you're bound to it. Sometimes you are, sometimes you aren't. depends on the circumstances. And there's many factors which can play into it such as whether this service is a monopoly, how easy it was for the person clicking that they accept to find this term in there, or if it's buried in so much they're unlikely to see it, and whether this is fair or if it screws the consumer really badly to be forced into arbitration like this, and you know, a lot of different legal concepts at play, some of which I know and some of which I probably don't know. But that's what the hearing was about. It was only about that. And the result of the hearing is either going to be that PayPal can push this to arbitration, which they want, or they can't. And if they can't, it's very good news because they do not want to go to court over this. It's much more favorable to them that they can do this in arbitration. So if this goes to court, they're not going to be happy. And that will be a very strong turn of events for the plaintiffs, which is what we're hoping for. So that happened on May 26th, and I bet you're sitting there wondering, okay, great, now tell me what happened. What did the judge say on May 26th when they had this hearing? Did the hearing take place? Yes, it did. So what was the answer? Right now, there is no answer. Why? Why is there no answer? Well, I neglected to ask Eric whether he gets the answer the same day or if it's delayed. And I found out that I should have asked that question because it's delayed. They don't find out right away. So the court takes it under consideration and it could take weeks to find out the result. So I didn't want to leave you hanging and not cover this at all because I know a lot of you remembered this May 26th date and wanted to hear if PayPal won or lost in their first hearing. But the answer is we don't know because the court has not revealed that yet. So we should have this answer probably within two weeks, maybe three at the most. When I get this answer, whether it's good news or bad news, I will present it to you. Maybe we'll have Eric on to tell us the next steps either way, because it's not dead in the water either way. One result's a lot better than the other, but the worst of the two results where they can compel arbitration, that does not mean it's done and they give up and walk away. That just means it's not as favorable going forward. But we may have Eric on at that point to talk about it. And if he's not available, then he can just tell me and I will tell you guys. But we're going to track this as it goes, good or bad, and let you guys know what's happening. I know what should happen. What should happen is PayPal should get their ass kicked and be forced to pay back every penny, plus punitive damages. That's my opinion. Because this is just outright theft. It's outright intentional theft, and it's awful. And the number of victims and the total of money stolen is staggering. I can guarantee you that as well. This really should be a major scandal. It should be a bigger story. 
not just in poker. I mean, like this, this should be covered in mainstream news. This should really, really a big, be a big story, given the amount of money involved. And it's too bad there isn't enough mainstream interest in this, but there really should be. And I would think the mainstream would be interested in it if the media were to bring this up because of the amount of money involved and because of how sympathetic a lot of the victims are. They just got outright screwed. The gamblers, eh, people can say, oh, you know, gamblers, they're shady. Oh, they shouldn't have been gambling, blah, 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 blah. But a lot of small businesses got hurt by this too. A lot of individuals who weren't gambling got hurt by this. So while I am sympathetic to the gamblers because I'm part of that community and I understand it, and you probably understand it, there's people who have nothing to do with gambling that got caught up in this and they got their money stolen and ruined their business because PayPal just thought they could. So I'm really, really, really rooting for the plaintiffs to win this one and win it big. Not just because I'm friends with Eric, but because this is really, really deserved for the plaintiffs to win here. All right, so with that said, we're going to move on to the main topic. I wanted to get those two quick things out of the way before we take some time and talk about the big story. Seems like most weeks we have a big story, some weeks bigger stories than others. In April, we had some cheating scandals to talk about with Jake Schindler and and Ali, and then we had uh, the Bryn Kenny story, of course, which was even bigger. So we had that stuff to talk about a lot in April. We even had the All-American Dave scandal, which wasn't a, a poker cheating scandal, but it was uh, kind of a little scandal of its own on a much sm- smaller scale, but it was interesting because we all got to know All-American Dave over the years at the World Series of Poker, and up until that, everyone liked him. So we had all that to talk about in April. But in May here, we have this story, which doesn't really seem to involve anyone in poker getting cheated, at least not to my knowledge, but it is an alleged $25 million scheme which ripped off other people. Again, maybe poker players, but I'm thinking probably not. So this involves a guy named Corey Zeidman, who is a World Series of Poker winner. That's not what he's best known for, even prior to this, but he was a World Series of Poker winner. So he is a bracelet winner, just like I am. And he was best known prior to this arrest that he recently had for an appearance on TV with Jennifer Harmon in the World Series of Poker. The bracelet he won was 10 years ago. In fact, it's almost 10 years ago to the day. On the event that began on May 29th, 2012, he won the 1500 Stud High Low event for 201K. By the way, I was told that Stud High Low is actually his best game. People are not that impressed with his game overall. But this is the one game that people think he's pretty good. So he won in what is his best game, which I guess you can say about me too. I won my bracelet in my best game. But he finished first. Uh, Chris Birin finished second. Brandon Shaq Harris, still very active in poker, finished third. And when uh, Mike Mizraki finished fifth. Todd Brunson, seventh place. Marshall Wagoner, old school poker figure out of Vegas. 
ninth place in that one. So he had some uh, tough competition there at the final table, but he did uh, come out victorious in this one with uh, 622 entrants. That was his only bracelet. Overall, in tournaments, he has uh, 691,000 worth of caches. His first cash was actually all the way back in 1997 at Seven Card Stud, where he finished in eighth place in a much smaller field. Much, much smaller field. Only 257 people. He then didn't have another cash for three years. They got a small one at, at uh, Binion's, or actually in Tunica. And then in 2003... He got 39th in the main event of the World Series. His first main main event cash for 25K. That was the event moneymaker one. So he's had caches over the years. He's not a huge tournament guy. To give you an example, I actually have about $300,000 more in caches than he does. And I'm not a big tournament guy. And he and I have both won a bracelet. So, yeah, he's not like a major tournament player, but he is known for this one particular hand that he happened to be in that was on TV. And Jennifer Harmon, who always seems like she's pissed off and depressed when she's playing, had a reason to be pissed off and depressed in this one with the way the deck ran out for her. So I'm going to play this again for you. This is a legendary clip from the World Series of Poker, I think in 06. So 10 players at this featured table still, including Jennifer Harmon, who was absent from last year's main event. She was undergoing a kidney transplant. Successful, we're happy to say. She's got pocket queens and raises to 200. Corey Zeidman from Coral Gables, Florida, made a stud final table last year. 9-8 of diamonds. Cool. Action on Brady Davis in his first World Series of Poker. He's 34 years old from Illinois. You cannot get up from a table here, Lon, without tripping over an Internet guy in a Red Sox cap. <laughs> Three to our flop now. The flop. Ten, Jack. Queen Harbin with a set, but Zeidman flops a queen high straight. Boy, that is the prelude to some fireworks, usually. Davis. By the way, back in these days, you didn't start with a very big stack in the World Series of Poker. Now, this was in the very early stages, as you can hear by the amount being bet. But still, it was not as deep as it is today. So it is easier to go broke in the early stages back then than now. But still, they were both pretty deep compared to the blinds here. And 9-8 can be a hand that gets you in trouble, especially on a board like 10-jack-queen. Because if you're up against ace-king or even queen-nine, then you can just be crushed where you really have no way out of it, especially against ace-king. So he had nine eight of diamonds. The board was queen jack ten rainbow with one diamond, jack of diamonds. Uh, one of the guys in the hand was going to be dropping out very soon with a six off. Harmon pocket queens top set, so she's behind, but she has a thirty six percent chance of winning the hand. Checks over to Harmon, who's got a set of queens, and she bets five hundred chips on Zeidman. Two thousand. <laughs> he raises it up to two thousand with that straight. When you're holding the two smallest cards of a straight, you want to raise everybody else out because you don't want somebody else to get lucky and get a higher straight on you. Now he forced Brady Davis out. Now action on Jen Harmon. It's 1,500 more to Jen. That is a lot at this stage of the tournament. She plays it safe and just calls. 
Yeah, and that makes sense because on Queen Jack 10, obviously, you know, you could be up against a straight there. So even though you have top set, you are not sure how far you want to go with this unless the board pairs. Seidman with the lead with his straight as we go to the turn. The turn is a 10 of diamonds. Harmon makes a full house. And there, there you go. The board has paired. Only thing she's losing to is pocket 10s. But wait, it is the 10 of diamonds. So now Zeidman has what he thinks is an open-ended trade flush draw. However, the queen of diamonds is in Harmon's hand, which he doesn't know, but he in reality only has one out to win this, which would be the seven of diamonds giving him a straight flush. Boyline, that's virtually the worst card in the deck that could come out for Zeidman because it gives Jennifer Harmon, who checks, an almost unbeatable hand and makes Corey think his hand is even better now because of the straight flush draw on top of his made straight. 1,000. Seidman bets 1,000. Now remember, he just check-raised to 2,000 before this, so this is already looking pretty weak that now he's putting in 1,000. This is kind of looking like someone with a straight where they don't like the hand anymore, and they don't know what to do. I would have checked here. Just bad luck for Corey Zeidman. He flops the straight, and then the next card gives him a straight flush draw, but if he makes the flush, he can't win. He can only win with the straight flush, and there's only one card left in the deck that could do that for him. Jen in the driver's seat. It's a thousand chip bet to Jen Harmon, and she's reaching. Three thousand. She raises it to three thousand. Huh. And it is head shaking time now for Corey Zeidman. See, you, you toss your hand at this point because there's so many ways that you're screwed. I know it's tempting with a straight flush draw on the board. You have nine, eight, and there's Jack 10 out there, but there's so many ways this flush is not going to help you. So you can't say, well, I made hit a diamond. And there's many ways your straight is drawing dead. So you can be in absolutely horrible shape against queens, against jacks, against queen 10, against jack 10. So, yeah, he can say, well, maybe she has ace king, but you, you got to let this go here. Or you could check call it down if the bets aren't too large. But uh, anyway, let's hear what happens. He doesn't know it, but only one card in the deck, the seven of diamonds, would save him. How can I get off of this hand? Every decision in the main event magnified. Both have monster hands. You lose this hand, your day just might be over. I think he might have ace-king, actually. I was hoping it wasn't that. Then what is he hoping for? <laughs> oh, I think it was ace-king, actually. I hope it wasn't that. Well, at this point, with queen-jack-10-10, like, what are you hoping for? That's the problem. Like, what can she have there other than, like, a pocket kings that you're in good shape against? Now I'm hoping something else. Yeah, if she had ace-king, she'd have the higher straight. Wow. And his flush, if he made it, then would beat her. Hmm. How can I possibly muck this hand? He can only muck it if he believes that she has the full house already. I call. He makes the call. We're going to the river. Jen Harmon with a huge advantage. And now the river card. Oh, the perfect card for Zeidman. The seven of diamonds gives him the straight flush. And he even checks it again, which an amateur would do, to make sure he's got it. Wow. Action on Jen Harmon, who has the full house. She makes it 3,000 to put Zeidman all in. Why is Corey acting as if he's agonized? I guess I could do a lot of sightseeing if I lose it. Yeah, he's, he's slow rolling her, which is really weird. I, I don't know if he didn't realize that she's betting what he has left. But he's sitting here agonizing over it, pausing. You should just snap this one. Or if you're not sure if they're betting what you have in your stack then just say all in and if they already have you all in it won't matter this hand 
You can't lose the hand. All in. It's over. Zeidman takes the pot. Straight flush. I knew you had that hand. Oh, mamma mia. It was hard to get off. I'm like, gosh, I flopped the straight. I'm like, ace-king is the only hand that's going to beat me now. Don't put a seven of diamonds up there. Nice hand. So she was saying that on the turn, she actually thought that he had nine eight of diamonds and thought to herself, don't put a seven of diamonds out there. And when she saw it, that uh, I guess she still couldn't help betting, which is understandable. He only had 3,000 left anyway, so that was the problem. Is given what was in the pot, it it, it didn't really matter if she bet because he would have... Uh, actually, I guess she could have checked back because she was second to act, but I, I see why she didn't. Thank you. Come on, a little for that. Yeah, all right, yeah. Jennifer's been told she looks like she's in pain when she plays. She's got good reason right now. That, that's kind of an asshole thing to do. Oh, a little for that. Yeah, and he's, he's getting the crowd to cheer for him. This is the early stages of the main event. Takes a lot to beat you in a hand. Straight flush home. Jennifer not getting any consolation from Zeidman. Harmon hurting early at the main event. Okay, so, yeah, that was pretty tough. I think this was probably... In 2005, actually. It could be five or eight, because he made this stud final table in 04 and in 07. And this was the year following that. It was one of those two, 05 or 08. I know it was in the 2000s when this aired. I remember when it aired, I just forgot which year. Yeah, pretty tough hand. Big time cooler for... Jen Harmon, who I, I don't think busted. I think she put him all in, but she was crippled from this and obviously didn't cash. I kind of think it was 05. So that's what Zeidman was best known for, but he has appeared on streams and other things since then. So this is a guy who was known to be a high-stakes cash player. Kind of a recreational player, but he was someone who played a lot and still played. So people were used to him in the poker community for a long time. In fact, someone mentioned that he had played just days before he was arrested. He had played in some tournament where they saw him. His last cash, in fact, was on March 26th, a PLO8 event in Hollywood, Florida. He also cashed in Hollywood, Florida in January 2022 twice once in horse, and once in Big O. He also cashed twice in the 2021 World Series in 1,508 game and 1,500 limit deuce to seven low ball triple draw. So as you can see, this guy is not really so much of a no-limit hold'em player. This guy likes mixed games. He has the number of caches in horse, number of 08 caches, Big O. As you see that uh, deuce to seven. Stud apparently is his best game. So this guy's a mixed player. I don't remember if I've played with him or not. You know, I didn't ever play poker in Florida, so anything in Florida wouldn't have faced him, but is it possible he came to Vegas and played Limit Holden with me? Yeah, very possible. I kind of forgot what he looked like from that Jen Harmon thing, so had he sat down, I wouldn't have said, oh, it's that Jed, Jed uh, Harmon guy. Like, he, he doesn't look like someone who's really memorable. He's just an older, middle-aged guy. I think he's like 61 right now. So had he played it with me... looks like 30% of the players that go to the WSOP. Right. He really does have a very typical look. He's very very forgettable. So there's nothing that sticks out about him. He's just you know an older, middle-aged guy who 
plays poker and uh, you'll forget him very easily unless you know him for a different reason. So I might have played with him, but I don't remember if I have or not. It's believable I could have since he loves limit games, but maybe not. Maybe he sticks to the only the horse cash games or whatever, which I don't really play. But anyway, why are we talking about him? I already told you, but I refresh your memory. Corey Zeidman has been arrested by the feds for a $25 million sports betting tout scheme. Now, what is a sports betting tout scheme? And for that matter, what is a sports betting tout? Well, some of you know, but in case you don't, I will describe it to you. There are many people out there who sell sports picks. And for the most part, these people are scammers or semi-scammers. Usually, if you are buying sports picks from someone, you are being ripped off. There are some exceptions to this. And sometimes you're buying winning picks for a while, but that person doesn't adjust with the changing times, and they're no longer a winning sports better. You, ha- you have to constantly adjust. You think you have to adjust a lot in poker. Sports betting is even worse. So the game changes, and then if you don't change your handicapping strategy around that, what was once a winning strategy may be a losing strategy. Also, in sports, it's sometimes hard to tell what is making you a winner because of variance versus being a winner because of skill. So that can be a problem as well. Same with on the losing end. You could be making great picks that are just losing because of bad luck and because it just doesn't work out, but the pick was very sound from a logical standpoint and you just lose. And there could be people who win for a while who are really just betting like donkeys and getting lucky. And I'm sure you've seen all the different ads over the years in various forms, sometimes on the internet, sometimes on the radio, sometimes on TV. I mean, this goes back a very long time, a lot longer than even internet sports betting has been around. You've seen these advertisements for these guys that claim to have five-star, no-chance-to-lose locks for you. And you're supposed to pay them, and they'll give you these locks. You can buy the game of the week for $500. Or sometimes less than that. Sometimes more than that. The price these guys charge also varies. Depends what market they're going after. They could be going after the typical sports better who will just lay down 25 bucks to get these picks. Or they could be going after the high-stakes sports better who think that they're paying a lot of money to get exclusive information that very few people get access to. In reality, most of these picks are crap. And sometimes these touts will just outright scam people. Like they'll sell picks under two names. And one name will make opposite sports picks from the other name. And this way, pretty much one of his two identities will be guaranteed to win. Now, that's not what Corey Zeidman was doing. But I'm just giving you an example of shady things that these touts will do. And we've covered some shady sports betting touts in the past on this show. There's one we've never really given much time to, but I probably should at some point. That's a guy who goes by Vegas Dave, who's pretty well known. And that guy is a total fraud, but somehow he's gotten away with it up till now. But there's a lot of others who aren't as well known as Vegas Dave. And this has been going on for decades. As 
soon as these touts think they have their hooks in you, they will aggressively keep trying to sell you picks and keep trying to convince you that they're selling you winners. Of course, a lot of times people will ask, if these guys are winning so much, why do they need to sell their picks? Well, there actually would be a reasonable answer to that, and that is they could be banned from sports books for winning. That does happen. If you are showing that you're consistently beating a book, often they will reduce or ban your action. So these guys could say, we're winning so much, the books won't let us bet anymore. And if they really were winning as much as they say, that could actually be true. But that is very, very rarely the case of these guys who are selling their picks. Usually they're not banned anywhere, at least not for winning. Sometimes for cheating, but never for winning. And they're selling you their picks because they can't actually win. Because they're not selling you winning information. So the reason I'm introducing all of that here is because, indeed, Corey Zeidman is accused of selling bunk picks to people over a 16-year period for a lot of money. And that is allegedly how he made his money. So this is a statement from the Department of Justice. It says, Former Long Island resident indicted for massive fraud scheme involving sports betting. Defendant-led group that made tens of millions of dollars of misleading victims into believing the group had inside information on college and professional sporting events. A two-count indictment was unsealed today in the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of New York, charging Corey Zeidman with conspiracy to commit wire fraud, mail fraud, and money laundering conspiracy in connection with a sports betting fraud scheme he operated from Long Island in Florida. The defendant was arrested this morning, and Florida will make his initial... Actually, I guess the, <laughs> the DOJ actually had a typo here. They meant in Florida. It's a, he was arrested and Florida, like, like Florida is going to make an appearance. The, the defendant was arrested this morning and, meaning in Florida, and will make his initial appearance at the federal courthouse in Miami. That's pretty shameful on this DOJ statement. They can't proofread it. Breon Peace, U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of New York, Ricky Patel, Acting Special Agent in Charge, Homeland Security Investigations, New York, Patrick Ryder, Commissioner, Nassau County Police Department, and Daniel Brubaker, U.S. Postal Service Inspector in Charge, announced the charges. Wow. There's a lot of different authorities here. You have the uh, DOJ in, in the Eastern District of New York. You have Homeland Security. You have the Nassau County Police Department. And you have the Postal Inspector. Hmm. As alleged, Zeidman defrauded his victims, stole their life savings, and persuaded them to drain their retirement accounts to invest in his bogus sports betting group, also, he could spend it on international vacations, a multi-million dollar residence, and poker tournaments, stated U.S. Attorney Brian Peace. Today's indictment serves as a reminder to all of us to be wary of so-called investment opportunities that purport to have inside information, as they are really a gamble not worth taking. As alleged, Zeidman preyed on individuals who are led to believe that he had inside information that would lead them to easy money. In reality, he was selling nothing but lies and misinformation, bilking millions from victims along the way, leaving their lives in financial ruin and their bank accounts empty, said HSI New York acting special agent in charge Ricky Patel. HSI, by the way, is Homeland Security Investigations. 
HSI will continue to work together with our partners to follow the money and tackle complex financial investigations to bring to justice fraudsters like Zeidman, who finance their lavish lifestyles by concocting ways to bamboozle the innocent when their real goal is lining their pockets with ill-gotten cash. Mr. Zeidman took advantage of the public interest to get on the ground floor of his sports betting organization. He devised a criminal scheme to fatten his pockets using nothing more than people's love for sports and his clever words wrapped around a fraud. Postal inspectors remind investors to thoroughly review all investment offers to ensure they are not left with a line of empty promises and a drained bank account, said inspector in charge Brubaker. That's at the Postal Service, by the way. The defendant was the leader of an organization that placed national radio ads to lure victims to retain the organization for sports betting advice. The victims were led to believe that the organization had privileged information that made betting on sporting events a no-risk proposition. Victims were required to pay a fee to obtain information, which, unbeknownst to them, was either fictitious or obtained from an internet search by the defendant and his co-conspirators. Many victims lost their life savings. The defendant used the following aliases, Richard Barnes, Walter Barr, Mr. Carlisle, Ray Palmer, Rick Cash, I like Rick Cash, (laughs) Elliot Stern, Gordon Howard, David Coates, Simon Coates, Paul Knox, Mark Lewis, Joe Ornstein, I guess that was the the Jewish alias, and Steve Nash. (laughs) Why Steve Nash? Was he trying to be like the Steve Nash, the basketball player, or a different Steve Nash? I don't know. Some of the company names used by the defendant's scheme were Gordon Howard Global, Ray Palmer Group, and Grant Sports International. And I'll explain why that's likely he was doing it, why all these different names. Sometimes, like, these scammers will put in a name that if you Google, there's, like, a high school basketball player with that type of name or something where just, like, tons of results show up. Oh, interesting. Yeah, maybe that is the reason for Steve Nash and, and like, Mark, Mark Lewis, which is a very common name. It's a good point. Any individuals who believe that they may have been the victim of the alleged crimes perpetrated in connection with this release can contact HSI at blah, blah, blah. The charges in the indictment are merely allegations and the defendant is presumed innocent until proven guilty. Yeah, well, I'll tell you this. The DOJ has a tremendously good track record of convictions. They usually don't bring these cases unless they really have the goods. And we've discussed this before when we've talked about other federal charges that were facing poker players. So when you're busted by the DOJ, you you can pretty much kiss your freedom goodbye because they are very likely to obtain a conviction. They only have so many resources so they tend to really only bring these actions when they think they've not only got the goods, but likely to secure a conviction. So this supposedly occurred between 2004 and 2020. It is alleged in the indictment, which I have read, that about $25 million was earned by Zeidman and his companies during the 16 years. They seized a bunch of bank accounts, but they only add up to about a million bucks or so. I, I just eyeballed it. I didn't add it all together, but it's like you know, 27000 here, 200000 there, 4000 here, 6000 there. So like tons of different bank accounts involved with these businesses and, and personal ones he had and some of the co-conspirators had. But it kind of looked to me like around a million bucks, so nowhere near $25 million. But of course, he probably spent a lot of money over these 16 years. And 
Some real estate was also seized, which I'm guessing overall probably had more value than the bank accounts. But still, when you add it all together, it wasn't anywhere near close to $25 million. It is likely that this scam is how Zeidman was able to play poker at high stakes. It's not clear to me how Zeidman's company handled it when people lost their asses with these bogus picks, even though they were told that these matches were fixed. Because this was different than just... Well, here's a five-star pick based upon our analysis that is highly unlikely to lose. This, this is a, a, a sure winner. But very few times do these touts claim that they actually have inside info that the match is rigged. That's usually not the selling point because people usually don't buy that. Usually it's just, we, we're great sports bettors, we're great handicappers, and we've determined that this pick as a winner tonight. And in reality, sometimes these handicappers are just pulling it out of their ass. But here, it took it a step further, where people would call up, they'd be enticed by these radio ads, which I I don't know what the radio ads said, but there were some kind of enticing radio ads that made it sound like that this is like an advanced level of sports betting that if you want to get in on, then you can turn around your sports betting luck. So of course, long-term sports betting losers, which is most people who bet on sports, hear this and say, yeah, that's what I need. I need some kind of edge that separates me from the crowd who's always losing. So they call up the number, and when they call up the number, they are told that this isn't just making picks based upon analysis, that there is inside information that they have access to that a lot of sporting events are actually rigged and that it's known in advance in a lot of these cases which team's really going to win. And that what appears to be a fair match is really rigged in various ways, and a lot of people are in on this, but it's a very well-kept secret, they're told. Now, this is all not true, but that's what they're told. People are told, the reason you're not winning is because these matches are rigged. So when when you're betting on things and you go, oh my God, how could I have gotten so unlucky... It's because you didn't get unlucky. It's because it was rigged against you, they're told. But we have the information about this rigging. We know how it's going to be rigged. We know who to bet on because the matches are fixed and we have been told who's going to win. So you're not going to lose. So people are enticed into believing this and they pay a lot of money for it because they really believe that this is a can't-lose proposition. And they pay a lot of money, and then they gamble a lot of money. See, it's not just that they give Zeidman and his co-conspirators all their money, because they don't. They, they pay hefty fees, but they probably make large bets believing that it can't lose, and then lo and behold, some of them lose. A lot of them lose, because these are no better than him flipping a coin and guessing who's going to win. The indictment mentions that in some cases he and his co-conspirators would provide people with actual information that they claim they had. They actually tell them what information they were given. Sometimes it was outright made up, and sometimes they would actually Google information and tell people that it was secret inside info that nobody knows. (laughs) Now, I don't know why these people didn't then go... Google what they were told and see if they see any reference online. But maybe it wasn't something like easily Googleable. Maybe it was 
on, on sports forums where they don't show up well on Google. I don't know. But apparently it was a combination of just outright making things up and also getting info off the internet and, and claiming like it's inside info given only to them. And whatever they got from the internet was never like about matches being rigged. It was just about information that they say they know this. Like, for example, let's say a major player on a team is hurt and people don't really know this yet. Well, I've seen before, and you've probably seen before if you're a sports fan, that you'll start hearing rumors that someone is hurt and may go on the disabled list. But it hasn't been officially announced yet. But if you're following the team closely, you'll see some report that they don't know this for sure, but there's a rumor that such and such person is going to end up on the disabled list and won't be, won't be playing for two or three weeks. And then sure enough, later that day, you see the team announces that person is injured and they won't be playing for two or three weeks. So it's one of these things where if you follow closely, you can sometimes see it in advance. And, and sometimes the rumor is incorrect. Like I'll see this. I have a fantasy baseball team and I'll sometimes make moves based upon these rumors. And I can only make moves once a week. So when it comes time for make my weekly moves, I'll have read a rumor that someone's going to be placed on the disabled list the next day. So I'll make my move and, and reserve that player where they're not on my active roster and only to find out the next day that person's back in the lineup and the rumor that I heard was wrong. Which, yeah, it's not a huge deal because it's just a fantasy baseball league. But it probably things like that where he would see rumors somewhere on the internet which sometimes were right, sometimes were wrong, but it wasn't any kind of inside information. It was something that anyone who was searching for it on the internet and knew where to look would find it. I'm guessing that a lot of the people who were hit with this were either just elderly or very gullible. When I'm reading about retirement accounts, that really makes it sound like that some of these victims were elderly. Now, yeah, you can have a retirement account if you're not elderly. This kind of sounds to me like they hit people that were elderly but still interested in sports betting and probably had less ability to look into this on the internet when they were told well, hey, we just heard this rumor. And the reason that they would tell these rumors is because it makes it look stronger that they have inside info. If they say, hey, we heard this person's going to be on the disabled list tomorrow, and then later that news drops and that person on the disabled list, they go, wow, Corey Zeidman really does have a look into this team. Wow, so he really does have the inside edge. But just something he saw on the internet. So the indictment is 13 pages they did not name the co-conspirators. They referred to as things like co-conspirator number one. Like uh, number one was said to hold a leadership role. And they said the individual's identity is known and is from West Palm Beach, Florida, but they're not naming him the indictment. I don't know why. The indictment, by the way, was uh, May 17th, 2022. U.S. against Corey Zeidman. So this is only against him. I don't know what they're doing with the co-conspirator, but they, this indictment here is only against him. And it said he had a leadership role in an organization known as the Phoenix Organization. And it said that this whole thing went between January 2004 and March 2020. Now you may wonder, why did this end March 2020? Why wasn't it January 2004 through May 2022? Well, I can't say for sure, but Trey what happened in March of 2020? COVID. Right. The COVID shutdowns. COVID was first identified in the U.S. in January of 2020, but the COVID shutdowns began in mid-March of 2020, and that's when all the 
team stopped playing. Now, yes, some of them got going again later in the year, and I do not know why he didn't start up again. Uh, maybe he knew they were on to him. I'm not sure when these investigations got going and when he became aware of these investigations. So maybe that's why he stopped. But uh, I, I have to imagine that he stopped it because of COVID and there were no sporting events. And then probably sometime after that, the DOJ started the investigation or he became aware of it and, of course, didn't keep doing this. So the ads advertised what was called a sophisticated white-collar approach to gathering sports information. That's actually what the ad said. And they also said, this is investing, not high-risk gambling. So they didn't just say, here's some good sports picks for you. They said, this is an investment. You're going to put money into this by paying us, but what you're really doing is investing because you're not gambling here. You're going to win. We know who's going to win. So you just have to invest to get this information and then we will give you the winners. It has been wrongly reported around the web in some places, including 2 plus 2, that Zeidman was booking bets. But from what I can see, that's not true. I do not believe he was taking any bets. I don't believe he was a bookmaker. He's not being charged with illegal bookmaking. He was simply selling picks based upon false information. He pretended he had inside info. He pretended he knew the matches were fixed and he was told who the winner's going to be. And none of that was actually true. He did not have any inside info. So that's what's being alleged there. Not that he was booking bets. It said when the victims called the number given on the radio... Uh, the victims were told, among other things, that certain sporting events were predetermined or fixed and that Zeidman and his co-conspirators knew the outcomes. They claimed to have secret, privileged, and inside information regarding sporting events, which they received from physicians at colleges and television executives, which could be used to predict the outcomes of events. So you can picture the conversation where the physicians were ones who knew the actual condition of the players and would pass it along to them that certain players were hurt and were going to play very poorly. And then the TV networks supposedly knew the outcomes of the events because they are the ones who are broadcasting the event. And supposedly these are rigged to be exciting TV to where the outcome is going to be known or mostly known. So that was what he was claiming to the people who would call up this number given on the radio. And then they're asked to pay a lot of money to get this information. So Zeidman and his co-conspirators further assured the victims that they would win their wagers and falsely claimed there is no risk associated with their wagers. In exchange for this purported inside info, Zeidman and his co-conspirators demanded that the victims pay fees, which numerous victims did. Now, by the way, demanded doesn't mean like they were threatened or anything. It, it means just that if you want this info, you have to pay fees. And they did. And it said that they received fees worth a total of more than $25 million via interstate wire transfers and private and commercial carriers. And it also says that between January 2013 and March 2020, that they opened numerous bank accounts that were in the names of shell corporations for receiving the proceeds that this these accounts were used solely to process, collect, and distribute money obtained from the victims of this fraud scheme, 
As part of the scheme to defraud, the victims agreed to remit payments as a result of the false representations made to them. Corey Zeidman and his co-conspirators instructed them to send wire transfers to one or more of the bank accounts. Zeidman also told many victims to mail cash in envelopes to certain P.O. boxes located in the Eastern District of New York. Now, you may wonder, why? Like, why aren't they just taking payments directly? Well, I have to imagine that this was being done so it's harder to collect back from them. Because, of course, these people are not going to effortlessly win like they think they are. So they pay for this inside info they think they're getting of these fixed matches, which aren't really fixed, and then they bet large sums of money on these matches at casinos, then they lose their ass, then they go back to Zeidman and say, hey, uh, this was not good info. (laughs) We lost, so give us our money back. And I don't know what happened after that, because that's not detailed here, but I'm imagining that all these different uh, corporations and uh, everything else they were doing to move the money around made it harder to sue them, and it made it easy to just fold up shop and disappear. Because remember, all these different names were used, too. It's not like he was selling these picks as Corey Zeidman. He was doing it under all these different names and corporations. It also said that in between... uh, October 2013, March 2020, they conspired to conduct one or more financial transactions in interstate commerce with, uh, uh, and then committed mail fraud. And knowing that the property involved in the transactions represented the proceeds of some form of unlawful activity and knowing that the transactions were designed in whole and in part to conceal and disguise the nature of the location, the source and ownership and control of the proceeds of specified unlawful activity. So this is to establish the wire fraud and the mail fraud part of this. But what they're basically saying here is that this was more than just scamming. This was more than just selling false info under the guise of it being valuable inside info. That in addition, that a lot of this was used to make it difficult to see where all the money's going, to create a money trail that's difficult to follow, makes it difficult to locate the company selling this and to sue the company selling this, and also to establish that this is being done via interstate wire transfer and mail, which allows them to charge them with wire fraud and mail fraud. So that that was the part of the indictment mentioning that. Then the forfeiture I was talking about earlier, I'm not going to read them all, but there's a bunch of stuff that was forfeited here, mostly bank accounts. And some of these were small accounts, like the first one listed only had $958.82 in the name of Phoenix Phoenix Advisory Services. Interestingly, it was uh, seized on March 11, 2020. So I guess that does explain. Maybe it wasn't about COVID. Maybe that's a coincidence. Because the the shutdowns began in mid-March, and this is just before mid-March. So I think this is a coincidence. I just noticed this now. But it looks like they did a lot of these seizures in March of 2020. So that's probably when Zeidman became aware that the jig was going to be up. Yet he wasn't actually arrested until just recently. Taking a look at his Hendon mob. I will say that he wasn't playing for high stakes in these tournaments. So, for example, in January 2020, which was before these seizures occurred, two months beforehand, he played a $400 horse event. And this wasn't an outlier. 
as I look at the caches before that, and they were in, uh, aside from some World Series events he played, like 1,500 and 3,000, everything else were three-figure buy-ins, like 360, 175, 500, 570. Occasionally he'd play a low four-figure event, but this guy was not playing high-stakes tournaments. Now, again, he was probably more of a cash player, but still, I wonder how much money he really had left by uh, 2020 when they did all these seizures. Well, I, I can see what was left. It looked like about a million bucks or so. So the, I guess that's why it ended in March of 2020. I, I didn't notice the date until now, just looking at the indictment again for radio. But a lot of different bank accounts were seized. Some of them were larger. So I'm looking at one 64,000, 46,000, then this one's only 2,700, then 70,000, uh, 2,000, 4,000, 200,000 is the biggest one I've seen so far scrolling here. Then there were two accounts for, with exactly 109,000 and another with 79,000. Like adding all this up, it really looks like around a million, but I didn't actually break out the calculator. As far as the property that was seized, they seized a house at 1920 Flagler Estates Drive in West Palm Beach, Florida, and also 2003 North Ocean Boulevard in Boca Raton, Florida. Now, I don't know if he owned these outright or if he had a mortgage, but they did seize those as well. But nowhere near $25 million worth of cash and property was seized. I mean, really nowhere near. I'd be surprised if all this adds up to much more than 10% of that. So I don't know how much money he had left. They are seeking forfeiture of all of this, presumably to use to uh, pay back victims. So I I don't think he'll ever see any of this stuff again. I think all this cash is going to be gone and taken by the government and distributed to those who were affected, and, and they'll probably take those houses and whatever equity he has and sell them and do the same with those proceeds as well. So not only is he likely to be convicted and see some time in prison for this, in federal prison, but he also is likely to be broke. Because I'm I'm guessing they took everything. I'm guessing they seized everything that he had, saying that all the money he's made between 04 and 20 was from this. And you may say, well, what about since the scheme ended in 2020, didn't he win in poker? Well, I don't know about in cash, but he has not had any kind of impressive caches in poker, in uh, poker tournaments, that is, since uh, quite some time, actually. The, the last five-figure he, cash he had was in 2015 at the 10K stud he min-cashed. So he still only made 7364 because he put 10K into the buy-in. Everything else has been four figures since then. So it's not like he's been killing it in tournaments since then. And maybe he's making money in cash games. I know he's appeared on streams. But people who've watched him on the streams have said that he isn't that good. And from what people were telling me, he just isn't a very good player aside from stud. Which, of course, is a dying game. And I don't know how much he's playing of that at any kind of appreciable stakes. Uh, someone is texting here from the 617, unindicted co-conspirator equals informant 100%. Yeah, it's very possible. It's also possible that there's going to be a, another indictment coming down, and it's just going to be done separately. 
But yeah, it could be an informant that they agreed not to prosecute if he testifies against Zeidman. If they determined that Zeidman was really the ringleader and this uh, co-conspirator was someone like just directly below him that they'd rather use as an informant and as a witness than someone they charge. And this person from the 617 also texted his Hendon Mob $400 MTT cash equals look DOJ, I'm poor. But see, I don't agree with that because if you look at his Hendon Mob before he was aware that the DOJ was investigating him, he was still playing smaller tournaments. This case looks like criminal law enforcement using leverage to get a plea conviction rate and for asset forfeiture. Well, okay, I somewhat agree with that. The offices like this, and we saw this with the poker bus on Black Friday in April 2011, they love to go after individuals and organizations that they feel have a lot of money and that they'll be able to seize. And then they can brag about it and then they can add to their tally of assets seized from criminal organizations and the head of these departments look very good of of each of these offices. Because the way the DOJ works here is they, they have offices that are geographically based that deal with violations that occur in the portion of the country that is their jurisdiction. So this is the Eastern District of New York. The infamous office that we talk about a lot here is the Southern District of New York. That was the one that busted the poker sites in 2011. That's the one that has busted other gambling entities a lot. But all of these basically work the same way. Some are more aggressive than others regarding these forfeitures, but it is true that they tend not to go after criminals that that are broke. They're more going after not, not all the time, but frequently what they're going after are organizations or individuals where they feel they can seize something. It is possible when they seize this, in case you're wondering that sound is that, uh, not that there's a sum, submarine in my house, it's uh, Trey Daruski is fading, he said, and he hung up and Skype got confused and wondered where he was. <laughs> so it started giving connection issues when in reality he just hung up. Anyway, they probably thought that given the $25 million that changed hands here, that there probably was more to seize than there was. I, I think they were probably disappointed when they went in on March 11, 2020, and saw that they're getting like a million bucks out of the bank accounts, and they were expecting more. Like, maybe they were hoping for... $100 billion! And then they ended up getting... $1 million! And that's kind of what happened with Full Tilt, right? Like, Full Tilt had nothing, and they didn't expect that. And UB had nothing. They didn't expect that. The only one that actually had money was Poker Stars. So they got something out of it. But had Poker Stars been as irresponsible as the other two, and as criminal as the other two, then they would have gotten very little out of this. It would have been highly disappointing. They thought that was a massive bust that was going to yield billions of dollars for the Southern District of New York. But it, it did not. But they did get good money out of it because of Poker Stars. So here they may have thought that they were going to get something more than this, and they didn't. And of course, there's a good chance that this money is going to have to be used to pay back victims. So they may not be able to keep it. Though they can still brag that they seized this. The the whole point is for the office, the DOJ office in whatever jurisdiction is involved, can claim we seized this much money in assets from this criminal who we either convicted or he pled guilty. 
or whatever. Like we, we get a conviction, we got the seizure, and these assets that were once belonging to criminals now are in the coffers of the U.S. government, or even if we return them to the uh, the victims, that still looks good for them. So yeah, a lot of this is sometimes dictated by money or the perception that money will be there. This person also said from the 617, if the DOJ is going after him in the Eastern District of New York, the second most prestigious to the Southern District of New York, I can c- concur that he can't win. And yeah, he's not going to win this. It looks like they got the goods on him. It's 16 years worth. And if he was really promising a ton of people over 16 years that he has inside information about the matches being fixed, unless he can produce evidence that he really had this information, which then could also be a crime, which (laughs) is a whole separate issue. But yeah, he didn't really have this information. But if, if he said he had this information and sold it to them based upon this premise, and then he really didn't have it and just made it up, and lied to them to get them to pay him these high fees for this information. And you have tons of witnesses over 16 years that all say the same thing. He's fucked. There's no way he could claim in court that they got all these different people to lie and say that this is the claim that they it was made to them when they bought these picks. Like, you, you can't say that 16 years where the victims are all lying. And I... Imagine he'll probably plead guilty. I imagine that he'll realize he's screwed, probably plead guilty, and hope for some kind of leniency. But he will very likely do prison time because this went on for 16 years and $25 million changed hands. So he'll probably be looking at some real jail time here. Like we probably won't see Corey's Eidman for a while, if ever again in poker. Someone asked, is there a chance he's going to play at the World Series? Not not a poker fraud alert listener, thankfully, but someone on 2 plus 2 actually asked this. and I'm thinking, what? No. There's many reasons why he won't be at the World Series. Now, it was said that people couldn't find him in any kind of database showing any kind of uh, federal prisoners at the moment. So it's very possible that he is out on bail and he's not actually confined to a jail at the moment. But I'm just about sure that he is restricted from any kind of gambling activities while he is out on bail. Since this whole thing has to do with gambling. Not poker, but the whole thing is connected to gambling. So if he is alleged to have committed $25 million worth of fraud related to gambling and to fund his gambling, then obviously if he's out on bail one of the obvious restrictions is going to be no gambling. So we're not going to see him at the World Series. We're not going to see him on any poker streams. He's also probably just flat broke. They probably took everything. I'm surprised after all the seizures in March 2020 that he had enough money to keep playing. He wasn't playing high-stakes events, but I'm surprised he was playing at all. But maybe he was able to get some loans from people and maybe he was staked. Maybe he's able to run it up some in cash. I don't know. But we're not going to see him in poker. It's very unlikely. And then he's probably going to prison for quite some time. Now, there's no violence involved here. There's no threat of violence. And I don't know how much each person paid him. I know it was alleged that he drained people's retirement accounts. But keep in mind that these 
lost retirement accounts probably mostly went to the coffers of the casinos. They probably paid him some kind of fairly high fee, but then they probably chunked off the rest betting on his uh, can't-lose sportsbooks that lost. Because no one's going to pay him way more for the info than the actual bets they're making. So clearly, they probably lost their life savings betting big money on what they thought was a guaranteed win and wasn't. I would still love to read what he told people or what his underlings told people because here they're told they can't lose and then they keep losing. So what does he say to them? It's one thing if one game doesn't go the way you're expecting. But how is it like game after game that doesn't go the way they were promised? I don't know what the excuses were. And I have to imagine that they probably just kept switching companies in order to avoid both bad word of mouth and allegations on the internet and also making it difficult to find them and sue them. They could kind of just disappear. And remember, there were all these different aliases he was using. So it wasn't just different company names. It's also different names that were involved here that they didn't think they were buying these from Corey Zeidman. They thought it was all these different names. Uh, Walter Barr, Richard Barnes, Mr. Carlisle, Ray Palmer, Rick Cash, Elliot Stern, Gordon Howard. And listen to some of these uh, company names. And it wasn't all of them. Uh, Gordon Howard Global, Ray Palmer Group, Grant Sports International. So probably they would just keep shutting down these companies after they would lose enough and then just move on and advertise under a different name. Some maybe move to a different market too, so people wouldn't realize it was the same company advertising that just screwed them. In June of 2017, he tweeted something which is kind of funny now that we look back on it. At the time, wasn't that interesting, but I guess today it kind of is. June 15th, 2017, he tweeted, every year the same problem. Card quality sucks, referring to the World Series. Facilities suck. Players are sheep. Case closed. Hashtag WSOP. <laughs> so I, he's not wrong about the card quality sucking, especially in 2017. I remember that was a problem. But he's saying players are sheep. I, I'm not sure what he means by that. I don't know if he means that the players are sheep, that they'll just keep coming back to play at the World Series where the facilities suck and the card quality sucks. Or if he just means that they're sheep in general, or maybe both. But it's funny, he's mocking sheep when it was really the sheep that kept him in action for 16 years, who were buying his crazy stories about these rigged matches that he had the inside information to. He didn't tweet very much, though. I don't want to make it sound like he was an active tweeter. He really wasn't. You can look at his Twitter. It's still there. It's at Corey Zeidman, exactly as his name is spelled, C-O-R-Y-Z-E-I-D-M-A-N. He joined on June 2011. He only had 243 followers, and he has not tweeted in a long time. The last time he tweeted was retweeting Alan Kessler in March of 2018 regarding the Philadelphia Phillies, believing that the Phillies would win the World Series in 2018, which, of course, they did not. Prior to that, he would tweet every few months the 
tweet about the World Series of Poker with the players being sheep was his third to last tweet. He didn't uh, tend to reply very often to tweets. He would sometimes retweet, but he wasn't someone who'd get in like long Twitter debates or anything. He just kind of fire out thoughts every so often. He was a Trump supporter. Doesn't really say that much, but just wanted to mention that. He does have several tweets uh, that are pro-Trump. And he did tweet that he didn't like people taking cheap shots at Trump and Melania considering, uh, considering their appearance. He said, I find it so disgraceful that so many Americans take cheap shots at Trump and Melania considering appearance. Hashtag embarrassing yourself. This is on May 20th, 2017. I don't know exactly what he was referring to, but that's what he tweeted then. Three people retweeted him. Uh, people responded to this, but not in 2017, but after the info came out about him being a sports betting tout scammer, then people were mocking him about the Trump stuff. Someone wrote, this didn't age well, another Trump traitor charged with a crime, a crime, LOL, irony, ha 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 ha, you, you like Trump are a crook and a criminal. Another one saying, enjoy prison, asshole. Another one saying, birds of a feather. So the people responding here are ones who hate Trump and wanted to mock him for being a Trump supporter when they saw that he was a scammer. To be honest, I have seen plenty of stories over the years of scammers who are both big uh, Trump supporters and big conservatives and ones who are big-time liberals and big-time Trump haters. So really, being a scammer doesn't really know a political ideology. They tend to be separate. So you'll have people that are scammers that happen to support Trump and the Republicans, and you'll have scammers who are very much on the left and support the Democrats and hate Trump. So it doesn't really mean much that he was a Trump supporter. Just that has really been the subject of a lot of his tweets, or the high percentage of his tweets, but he doesn't make many tweets overall. I'll let you know when we have more information about this case, whether more details or details of a conviction or guilty plea or whatever it might be. I guess it's possible he won't be convicted and will get off for this, but I don't think it's likely. This one's going to be hard to worm out of. You may wonder, should we even feel sorry for the victims since they believed that they were betting on rigged games? So weren't these victims just greedy and trying to take advantage of the books with information that they should not have? In fact, could you even say that the victims were kind of criminals themselves? Well, this is one of these cases where it targeted people with a gambling problem who've been losing in sports their whole lives, and they're told, hey, it's about time for you to finally get a piece of this pie. It's about time for you to really have the inside information that's been beating you all this time. And they were probably talked into believing that was the reason they were losing. It wasn't that they were bad sports bettors. It wasn't that they couldn't keep up with the house juice, that at best they were 50-50 sports bettors that just are going to lose long-term because of the house juice eating them. But that the reason they're losing is because these matches are rigged and therefore they're impossible to handicap. So 
here you go. Here's a way for you to make it back and more, because now you'll have that info. And when it solds people that way, those who are gullible enough to believe it, they will sometimes do this and convince themselves it's okay. And remember, they don't think they're beating uh, their friends out of money or individuals out of money. They they think that they're beating the sports books out of money, whether it's online sports books or brick and mortar sports books, or I guess in some cases the, the could be the local bookie. But none of the entities that they think they're going to be beating are very sympathetic. So these people figure, okay, well, it's about time for me to get mine finally. And then, no, they lost. It, it's just amazing to me sometimes what people believe, though. What I would want to know... Not that I'd ever believe this, but let's say someone approached me with this and said, I have inside information. And let's say I was willing to take advantage of it. Let's put aside the moral dilemma that could come up of, you know, do I take this information and use it? And people may also think, hey, look, it is wrong to rig this stuff. So, you know, if it's going to be rigged, then I want to know what side it's rigged on. This shouldn't be rigged in the first place, so F it. So I've been screwed by the rigged system. Now I'm going to get it back. But let's say someone came to me and they told me that they know that these matches are rigged and I can bet on the side that are rigged to win. And assuming that I would say, okay, I have no problem with this. Let's just put that aside here. What I would ask would be, okay, how do I know that's true? (laughs) Like if someone just wanted to tell me like, hey, uh, tomorrow's Mets game is rigged. The Mets are going to lose. And here's why. Then I'd say, okay, and I'd watch. And I'd see if the Mets are going to lose. And then the next time they give me the info, I'd look again. And if I see they seem to just be predicting these at an alarming rate where they seem to be winning most or all of the time, then I'd probably believe they have inside info. Now, if they say I had to pay them for it, and again, if I was willing to do it and willing to cheat at sports betting like this, then I would never lay money out for this until I saw evidence that it was actually working. I wouldn't just take the word for it. So I don't know how these people were convinced, but probably just with a slick presentation. I doubt they showed anything. Now, maybe they showed some phony results of like, look, you know, here's a list of our results in the past, and there's no way to see if these picks were really made before or after the game. So maybe that's what they were showing these people. But I would think before putting down a lot of money when claims like this are being made that are so extraordinary, I would think these people would want to see some evidence that this works. But maybe they're told they just can't have the info, and if they want it, they got to pay. And they could even say, hey, we've been in business this many years, and uh, you know, why would we be advertising on the radio if this wasn't legit? So they, they probably had a lot of people say, okay, this is bullshit, I'm not going to do it, but they don't need everybody to do it. They just need a certain number of people to do it, especially if they're charging a lot of money. So it is pretty sad if people lost their entire life savings or their retirement accounts. And I do feel bad for them, even though they were being a little bit greedy. I would like to know more information here. I would like to know what happened when people went to them after they lost. I would like to know how people were convinced this was true. I know what they were told, but I don't know what people were told when they doubted it or asked, like, how can you show this is really what was happening? 
The same person from the 617 texted me, if I had to guess, he approached most of these the last five to ten years as a criminal needing to cover his tracks. Small buy-in MTTs, meaning tournaments, fits that cover. Definitely all speculation. I'm trying to put myself in his head. And then he mentioned that this uh, Ornstein person was actually the inventor of the whole cards, the whole card cam that was used for poker broadcast, which is true. Hmm. Yeah, well, pretty bad. You know, like, anytime you're separating individuals from their life savings or their retirement accounts, even if you don't get all the money, even if most of that goes to the casino, it's just really crappy. Like, ruining individuals' lives for your scam is really crappy. So when I hear of people who do that, just because they have the cold desire to accumulate wealth for themselves, that really makes me look down upon that person who does it and think they're a complete piece of shit. So if these allegations are true, which they probably are, Corey Zeidman really is and was a piece of shit. And I got a message from Bobby Orr saying Zeidman was actually pulling this scam already when he played Harmon in the 2005 World Series of Poker. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. When he appeared on TV like that, this was already going on in its early stages. Hmm. I guess he shouldn't have worried about losing the main event. He could just say, well, $10,000, I can make that back easily. Just got to place a few more radio ads about rigged sports matches. So you know what? I'm all in. If you have me drawing to one out, Jennifer, no problem. More where that came from. You may wonder, did he cash in that event? Now that we know it's 2005. Did he cash in the main? He did not. This was early in the main, so it's not that surprising. Honestly, he didn't play very well. <laughs> to put all that in with 9-8 of diamonds, especially with the board paired. Later in the tournament, you have to. And if you're screwed, you're screwed. Because it's just not deep enough. So there's a lot of hands you can still beat in spots like that. But early, when everybody's deep, you, you just don't put a lot in with the bottom straight with a board paired. Especially against an early position raiser. But it's also true back in 2005, people were a lot worse in No Limit Hold'em in tournaments. So I guess it's not completely fair to judge that from the lens of 2022 poker play. All right, so let's talk about the World Series of Poker presently. The World Series of Poker is about to begin at its new venue. And it hasn't changed venues since, yes, the year that Corey Zeidman was on TV against Harmon, 2005. In 2005, it moved to the Rio. In 2005, I celebrated that move by winning a bracelet and by making a final table at a different event. So it stayed there for 17 years. I guess 16, you can't really count 2020. They played a little bit in 2020 there, but it wasn't a real series. But it was there from... 05 through 21. And then once they shut down the 21 World Series in November of 21, remember it was delayed, everybody knew that it's leaving there and that that was going to be the last year at the Rio. If you remember, the Rio was sold and that Caesars has been leasing it from the new owners. That, that was part of the agreement of the sale. And they didn't have to move out after 2021. They did have a right to continue holding the World Series there in 2022. But we knew that the plan was to move it out of there. 
For quite some time, I believed that the eventual home of the World Series of Poker was going to be the Caesars Convention Center. This is the new convention center that they built, Center Strip, and I thought that would be a perfect location for it. I, in fact, reported that that was going to be the future home of the World Series, and this was an assumption on my part. I didn't have any inside info, like Corey Zeidman. I did not have inside info. I didn't claim I had inside info. I just said that this is what I'm assuming, that it seems like the natural home of the World Series of Poker once that convention center is ready. Apparently, word about this got around a bit too much, and this caused Seth Polanski to actually have to tell people on a World Series of Poker conference call that contrary to what Todd Whittles has been saying, and yes, he said Todd Wills, we do not have any plans to move to the Caesars Convention Center when it's done. <laughs> so I made it into the World Series of Poker conference call where they let everybody know Todd Whittles had wrong information. Well, then it looked like Todd Whittles had right information because after denying it for years, they started to acknowledge that there's a good chance that it will move to the Caesars Convention Center only to have it not move into the Caesars Convention Center. And Todd Whittles, indeed, ultimately ended up being wrong. But maybe not. Maybe it'll eventually go there. Todd Whittles did state that it may not move there because they do have to block off a very large portion of time in the summer when this takes place. So maybe they do not want to waste all that space in the new Caesars Convention Center for seven weeks when they could sell that space for a lot more money and put the World Series in space that is not worth as much. Like the Rio, that space was not worth very much at all. However, it was off strip. There were good reasons to want to bring all those people to center strip to where uh, they will spend and lose money in the other Caesars properties. So there was a good reason to move it to center strip. But on the other hand, at least the convention space that they were using up in the Rio was not all that valuable, whereas the new Caesars Convention Center's space would be more valuable. I did think that maybe COVID would have made it more likely to move to the Caesars Convention Center because conventions took a big downturn as a result of COVID. And while they're starting to come back, it still hasn't returned to pre-pandemic levels. You're still not seeing as many conventions as you were prior to COVID. Some people are still a little iffy about the whole convention thing and getting a ton of people together in a room indoors. People are getting more comfortable with it, but it's still on the back of your mind like, hey, there's a bunch of people indoors here and there's this Omicron going around that transmits very easily and we don't want it and maybe this isn't a good idea. So it's not like 2019 where you could just pack tons of people in a room and no one thinks twice about it. But that's not where it ended up. It did not go to the Caesars Convention Center. It ended up being announced that it was going to be at Bally's and Paris, which I will admit I did not think was something that was possible. And that's because I didn't think of using two properties together for it. I had been thinking of which property could it be, and I was having a hard time coming up with it. I knew the Caesars Convention Center was one. I knew the Rio was one, but that 
they were soon not going to have control of the Rio because they sold it. But I was going, well, let's see. Caesars, like they don't even have the parking for this. And the other properties, I just don't think they have enough convention space. And I was right. They didn't have enough convention space. And that's why they need two properties. And I forgot about the fact that Paris and Bally's were connected and could be kind of used as one property. So they announced this in November 2021 that the WSOP was going to be moving to Bally's in Paris in 2022. The announcement was accidental, which is appropriate for Caesars that always screws everything up. How do you do an accidental announcement? Well, KevMath, who does do contract work for the World Series, he handles the WSOP Twitter account during the summer and does a very good job with it, disseminating, disseminating information. But Kevin Mathers, a.k.a. KevMath, is also very good at uh, extracting information, shall we say, from what he observes. So he noticed that on the Poker Ghost stream that they just kind of casually mentioned that the 2022 WSOP will be held at the usual dates in 2022 at Bally's in Paris. They just mentioned it as if everybody already knew. So someone there knew it on that Poker Ghost stream on November 16th. Remember, this is during the World Series, towards the end of it, in 2021. And someone didn't realize this hadn't been announced yet. Oops. So, the WSOP had to officially announce it the next day because the cat was out of the bag. KevMath was the first one to point it out, but they realized that even if KevMath had not pointed it out, that people had seen this and they had to say something. So, the official announcement was made on November 17th, 2021, after the accidental announcement on Poker Go believing that people already knew. They were hoping that this would be actually at the Horseshoe in Paris and that it would be perfect because the World Series of Poker began at the Horseshoe when the Horseshoe was downtown, when it was Binion's Horseshoe, and that since Horseshoe is a brand that Caesars has owned since they bought Binion's and the World Series back in 2004 and they got the Horseshoe brand with it, and they've used the Horseshoe brand elsewhere in the country, but that the Horseshoe brand was nowhere in Las Vegas since then, because it was dropped from the Binion's name when Binion's was no longer a uh, under the previous ownership, and Caesars quickly sold it to different owners, which is called Binion's at that point, even though the Binion's family was no longer involved, and Caesars was no longer the owner. And they had the Horseshoe brand, which, as I said, they used elsewhere, but in Vegas, it just was dormant, that brand. And they decided that they're going to rebrand Bally's into Horseshoe, because remember, Bally's is a brand they have a right to use, but these are competing casinos in other parts of the country. There are Bally's all over the country that are owned by the Bally Corporation, which competes with Caesars. So the whole thing was very confusing. I've explained before how weird the Bally brand is now. And Caesars was kind of done with it. They were ready to give up the Bally's brand, even though they had the rights to use it in Las Vegas only, and were going to rename it to the Horseshoe, which is still happening, but it was not done in time. So they were hoping that they could announce that the World Series of Poker was going to take place at Paris and Horseshoe, but it's not. It's going to be Paris and Bally's, but the truth is it's the same property. It's just different name and different branding and different features around uh, Bally's, but it's still Bally's. 
Bally's and Paris are connected, as I said a few minutes ago. And when I said they're connected, I really mean they're physically connected. You can walk between Bally's and Paris without ever setting foot outdoors. There is a shopping area that you can access from both Bally's and Paris, which is basically between the two of them. It connects the two. And when you get towards the escalator that goes to the parking garage, which they also both share, the self-parking garage, then there's a sign, Bally's this way, Paris this way, and depending upon which way you walk, then you will get to whichever property that uh, you're trying to go to. They are two separate distinct hotels, and they were originally uh, not Caesar's properties. Bally's, of course, was originally the MGM Grand. And the MGM Grand that you know now, that was built in the early 90s, that's down the street to the south, that has nothing to do with Bally's. But that MGM Grand is an MGM property. And the old MGM Grand became Bally's actually uh, before the new MGM Grand was built. It became Bally's like in, I think, 87 or so. Eventually, they both became Caesar's properties, though they were not originally. So, Bally's in Paris, they share a parking garage. They are physically connected. They operate as two different hotels and two different casinos. And the World Series of Poker is going to be at both places. But how is all this going to work? What are the logistics involved? Well, first of all, Let's talk about something you may not have thought about, because it's not very exciting to think about, but it's definitely something you should think about, and you didn't have to think about before at the Rio, and that would be parking. Yes, parking. Now, one nice thing about the Rio was that the parking was, and still is, free! And that's not very common in Vegas anymore. But yes, you could park at the Rio, anywhere at the Rio, for free. It didn't matter if you parked in the outdoor lot that was by the convention center or if you parked in the structure that was close to the Ipanema Tower that was on Valley View or if you parked in the structure that was kind of closer to the convention center that was closer to the Masquerade Tower. So there were two parking structures that were both low-rise structures and then there was a big-ass parking lot that was there for the convention area, and that's where most of you parked when you played at the World Series if you did drive there. So it was free, as long as you could find a spot, which you could on most days. When it was really, really, really crowded, you sometimes had to park way, way, way in the back and drive around a little bit, but you could usually find a spot. But it was free. You didn't have to worry about any kind of parking or what tier level you were or any stuff like that. Well, now you do. Because every single Caesars property on the Strip, with the exception of Planet Hollywood, and that's only because they have the Miracle Mile shops and don't want to hassle people with parking who want to go shop there. But aside from Planet Hollywood, every single Strip Caesars property charges for parking, including Bally's in Paris. And this is a new thing for World Series of Poker players because before they didn't pay for parking. Even when it was at Binion's pre-2005, you could get the parking for free by just walking up to the little machine that would stamp your parking ticket. And then you just drive out and hand that to the attendant and you would pay nothing. 
Now, if you didn't know to do that, I guess you'd pay for parking, but anyone could get one of those stamps back then at Binion's. In fact, you'd stamp your own thing. They had the machine right there for you to stamp your own. So this is really the first time in World Series history that people will have to pay to park. So how much is it? Well, if you have a platinum, diamond, or seven stars card at Caesars, then parking's free. And remember, platinum is the second lowest level. So the only way you're going to pay for parking at Caesars is if you have a gold level card. You'll have to have a player's card to play the World Series at all. So the way it works at Bally's in Paris is that if you have no player's card or a gold level card, which is the bottom tier, then the rates are as follows. The first hour is free. If you're going to be there for one hour through three hours, it's $15. And if you're there for three hours or more, it's $18. And then once once 24 hours roll over, then you're going to be paying another $18 after that point. So if you get to 25 hours, it's going to cost you 36 not 18 Now, what if you're staying at the hotel? Surely they give you some discount. Well, not much of one. So I was quoting you the Sunday through Thursday rates. <laughs> if you're there on Friday or Saturday, then the three to 24 hour rate becomes $23 a day. And that's the only way you're going to get a discount as a hotel guest. If you're a hotel guest, then you're paying the same $18 a day that you would be paying during the week. But either way, it's not a very big discount. Either way, if you don't have a platinum or higher card, you're going to be paying $18 a day if you're there for three hours or more. And if you're there for more than an hour, you're paying $15. So that's not even much of a discount either. The only way you're not paying anything is if you get in and out within less than an hour, which is just about impossible if you play a World Series event, even if you bust out quickly. So this is different, isn't it? Like, it's not back-breaking money, but it's annoying, especially when you used to not pay anything for parking for all of these years. So is there a way around this? Do they give you any kind of voucher? Well, I would think they should. I would think that because of all the money they make from the World Series of Poker, because remember, they don't just make it from World Series of Poker tournament fees, which are cooked into every buy-in, but they also make it on food. They also make it on hotel. They make it in a lot of ways. So I would think if you register for a World Series of Poker event that they would give you some sort of uh, voucher to allow you to park for free on that day or maybe even allow you to park for free for that day and the next day to cover at least the first two days of the event. But they don't. There's absolutely no discount for World Series of Poker players unless you want to buy a weekly parking pass. That's a new thing. You can get a weekly parking pass, which you can get at the main cage for the World Series of Poker inside the Champagne Ballroom in Paris. Now, how much do you think that's going to cost? Let's look at the cost without this weekly pass for a non-guest in Bally's in Paris. So it's $18 per day, Sunday through Thursday. So looking at those five days, that's five times 18, which is $90. 
and then $23 a day for Friday and Saturday. So that's another 46 So that makes it $136 if you were to come there all seven days and get no kind of discount. The max you're going to pay is $136 unless you leave and come back. So this does not have in and out privileges. So it is true once you drive out, you'll have to pay again. But ignoring that, $136 to go there seven days in a row. So how much is the weekly parking pass going to be? You think, okay, well, you know, they're selling this to World Series players. So what, like maybe like 60 bucks? No, $100. (laughs) And keep in mind, if you're staying there, you're getting $18 a day. So I I think it has in-and-out privilege too. So there it would be even less of a discount. There it's $126 for seven days. And keep in mind, the weekly pass is one that you'd only want if you're going to be going there seven days a week. If you're not, you don't want it. Unless you really want to go in and out a lot, then I guess it's worth it. But when you buy a weekly pass, then you're paying for the entire week. Whereas if you're just playing one event, you're not going to want a weekly pass because no matter how far you get in the event, there's no way you're going to spend 100 bucks in parking. So I still think they're overcharging for the parking here. I think they're being too greedy. All this is going to do is piss people off because recreational players are probably not going to have diamond status. I know you're going to have some degenerate gamblers who do, but most of them are probably not going to have platinum or higher status. So they're going to come in. They're already spending a lot of money on their trip for airfare, even for driving, I guess, because the gas is getting so damn expensive. And then they're paying for the hotel, which is not cheap. Then they're paying for the buy-in. Then, of course, they're probably not winning because recreational players are at a disadvantage. And then they've got to pay for parking, too. When they didn't before, they remembered 2019, 18, 17, 16, all the way back to the very beginning, whenever the first time it is they played, even if it's at Binion's, they never paid for parking before, and now they've got to pay for parking? That really blows. They're not going to like it. So I think they should just take the L on this one and let people park for free. They should just accept that this is going to bring a lot of people in. They're going to make money a lot of different ways. No point to hit them for parking, too. Now, I understand the counter-argument. The counter-argument is, why is the World Series of Poker special? If someone wants to come to Bally's or Paris for a different reason, maybe to have a meal, maybe to just have a little vacation at the hotel, maybe to gamble, why should these people not get free parking? And why should the World Series of Poker people get it? Why are they so special? Well, it's just because that's been the precedent all these years that the World Series of Poker, it was free to park. So let it still be free to park. I mean, is it really going to be that much trouble? I think the goodwill that would come from that would be worth a lot more than what they're collecting in parking from these people. Now, are there any ways around this? Yes, there are some. First of all, This isn't going to do a lot of good, but if you have a Nevada ID, it doesn't need to be Vegas. You could be from Reno or whatever, but if you have a Nevada ID that is valid, then you get three hours for free. Not one, you get three. Now, that's not going to do you a lot of good if you're playing an event, but it might on some days. So let's say you're playing a no-limit event, and let's say you bust out in the first two hours. 
well, there's a good chance you can get out of there before three hours have ticked off since you parked. So while most of the time you're going to be there long enough where your Nevada ID won't do you any good, at least this gives you three hours instead of one. Though supposedly this is excluded from event pricing. So I don't know what that would be, but I guess on certain days where it's considered very busy there. I don't think the World Series is considered event pricing, but if there's some event going on in the area, I guess those days the Nevada ID won't get you the three hours free. But other than those days, you will get three hours instead of one. But big deal. What about the Caesars credit card, the Caesars Rewards credit card? Now, you've probably heard, oh, that gives you automatic platinum status. Well, sort of. And we discussed this recently. If it's a new Caesars Rewards card that you just got, I'm talking about the credit card. I'm not talking about the player's card. I mean, the Caesars Reward credit card. If you just got it, they will give you a year of platinum for free. However, if you've had that for a year, you're going to get downgraded back to gold and you're going to have to earn your status the old-fashioned way. So that card only does good for you for the first year. The only way to maintain that platinum status is to spend like 5000 bucks on that card in a year. Which I don't really recommend doing because you'll get like 5000 RCs for that, which is $50, and you could do much better with other cards. That really is not as good as rewards of other cards, like airline miles or hotel points or cash back up to sometimes as much as 5% in certain categories. So you really don't want to run up $5,000 of expenditures on your Caesars reward card. The only exception is at Caesars properties, then you will get five RCs per dollar spent. So that's like 5% back in a way. So that's worth doing. But aside from that, like I wouldn't go use the Caesars reward card for groceries or any other like everyday purchases because uh, you can do much better on other cards. But yeah, you you could spend $5,000 and get it that way, the platinum. But that's the only way you're going to still have platinum through that card after the first year. So if you've never had one before, yeah, you could do it. Now, you may think, ha ha ha, I know of a clever idea. How about I ask my buddy to get a duplicate of his platinum or higher Caesars Rewards card and give that to me, and I will use that to park. Ha ha ha. Well, not so fast, my friend. Why? Because only one of these can be used at a time. So if your buddy gives you his Caesars Rewards card to park for free, because he's a high enough tier to do it, and you go park, and then your buddy's like, okay, well, Now time for me to go to Bally's also and play my event. And he'll try to get in and, uh uh-oh, he can't because you have already used his card to park and you have not exited yet. You cannot have two vehicles at the same time in a Caesars lot on the same rewards card. And the MGM card works the same way. So don't bother with that. Because if you take your friend's card, then your friend can't park while you are there. Is there any other way to get around this? Well, there's the old-fashioned way, and that is park somewhere else. So, for example, MGM's MLife credit card does not have the same stupid year-long status like Caesars does. So if you get an MGM MLife card, I know it's probably too late to start with this now because the World Series is about to begin, but if you get an MGM MLife card, 
you get automatic pearl status at MGM MLife. And this allows you to park for free at any MGM property. Again, the same thing of one car per rewards card at the same time. But let's say you have that. Let's say you have it already or you quickly apply now and get approved. Then you could park across the street at an MGM property, for example, Bellagio, and then just walk over. Is it really convenient? No. But would it really hurt you to get a bit of exercise? No. You're probably a fat ass sitting in a chair all day playing poker, so maybe it's good for you to get a little exercise walking between the two, even if it's 110 degrees outside. So that is something you may want to consider. And you may say, well, no, 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 no. I'm going to be staying at Bally's. I don't want to lug a bunch of my bags across the strip and have to cross the street from Bellagio just so I can save some money parking and not have to park at Bally's in Paris and pay. So even if I can park at Bellagio for free, there's no freaking way I'm doing that, you might say. And I will say back to you, hold on a second. Remember, one hour free at Bally's in Paris. So if you really want to be a cheapskate, there is a way to do it. If you really want to be a cheap ass and not pay for parking, and you don't have any other way to save the money, and you have an MGM M-Life card that is Pearl or higher, which you would have from just having the MGM credit card, what you could do is drive into Bally's or Paris where you're staying, unload your stuff, check in, you can do all that in less than an hour, then go back to your car, move it to Bellagio, and then walk over, because all your stuff will already be in the room. Haha! And then, when it's time to check out, you can do the same thing. So then, you're not really walking with stuff back and forth. That is something you can consider if you really want to be cheap. Is there any other way around the parking charge? Well, if you earn platinum or higher status, you will have it all the way until January 31st, 2024. Your status will last for this calendar year and the entire next calendar year, plus the first month of the one after that. So right now, any status earned at Caesars, anything, platinum, diamond, seven stars, doesn't matter what it is, you will have it all the way until January 31st, 2024. Unless you earn it through a status match, then you only have it through January 31st, 23. Now, what about the status match? You may say, whoa, 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 status match. Hold on a second. Well, unfortunately, it's not as easy as that used to be. The infamous Wyndham status match has been done away with unless you actually earned your Wyndham status in some way. So if you earned your Wyndham status through a match with another program, including Caesars, you can no longer get Caesars Diamond that way. And as far as matching with other players' card clubs, such as uh, MGM M-Life, that can only be done with a new Caesars card, which barely any of you would be having at this point, because you probably already have a Caesars Rewards card now, and have for many years. So the status match thing is not very viable anymore. Is there any other way around it? Not really. (laughs) So that kind of sucks. Where should you park if you are playing at the World Series of Poker? 
Well, there are really two places that you can park, and both of them are pay lots. But uh, there's really only two self-parking areas. There is the parking garage that I talked about that serves both Paris and Bally's. And by the way, I would recommend entering it through Flamingo Road, not Las Vegas Boulevard. It's easier to get in that way. Most people don't know about the Flamingo Road entrance. It's kind of weird. But uh, I'll tell you how to get there. If you go east of the Strip on Flamingo Road, if you go east of Las Vegas Boulevard, that is if you are heading like away from Caesars and you're going east from there, you're crossing the Strip, then you would turn right as if you're going into the Bally's Valet which is like right after the intersection. Except you don't go into the Valley's Valley. Instead of continuing to drive within Bally's to get to the Valley, you just make a quick, uh, or you don't make any turn. You, you just keep driving in that direction. So you'll turn right into the driveway when you're going east on Flamingo Road right after the intersection. You'll go into a driveway and you'll just keep driving and you'll see little signs about Paris and Bally's self-park. And it'll seem weird and you'll kind of go through a tunnel. It looks very unnatural what you're doing. But trust me, you're really going to get there. It's going to feel strange. It's going to feel like you're going the wrong way, but you're not going the wrong way. Just follow the signs. You're going to go through kind of a very brief little uh, tunnel. I would not say like a tunnel, kind of like an overhang. And uh, then you will find yourself at a ramp. And you'll turn left into this ramp. And you're actually going to go up along the side of the parking structure on this very steep ramp. And then it's going to drop you on a fairly high floor already of that structure, like four or five. And there you'll be. You can either park at that level. You can go down. You can go up. I believe it's a seven-story structure. I think the seventh floor is for employees, but they don't really enforce it, last I saw. But there's really no reason to park up there. I'm just mentioning that. So that is the Paris and Bally's garage. If you take the elevator down from there, then you're going to walk through a little hallway when you get to the casino level. And then you're going to go down an escalator. And at the bottom of the escalator is right where you can go one direction for Bally's and one direction for Paris. So it really is a parking garage for both. There's also a parking lot, which is located directly behind Bally's off of uh, Flamingo and Coval. Coval is uh, basically two streets down east of the Strip. The first one's Audrey. The next one's Coval. Flamingo and Coval is known to some people who are fans of rap music as the location where Tupac was shot. He was indeed shot on Flamingo and Koval in a car. But you can go to Flamingo and Koval, and there is a surface parking lot that is directly behind Bally's. You can actually park there and uh, walk upstairs into the Bally's event center. But don't be too excited, because that's probably not where you're going to be playing. Because day ones will not be in the Bally's event center, as we'll get to shortly. It's going to be in Paris. So those are the two places you can park if you're going to be parking on property. Now, here are some places within the World Series of Poker 
at ballets in Paris that you should be aware of. The Champagne Ballroom, which is in the Paris Convention Center, and it actually is labeled, and keep in mind, I'm not a French speaker, so I'll try my best here, but it's a, the Centre des Conventions. That is where the safety deposit boxes, the WSOP tournament account deposits and withdrawals, and the payouts will be, as well as the online verification and fast track systems. This is in the Champagne Ballroom. This is the uh, WSOP main cage, by the way. That's one of them. Another uh, is at the uh, Burgundy Ballroom. And then uh, the retail store, if you want to buy WSOP branded uh, branded stuff, like sweatshirts or whatever, uh, you can find that in the uh, Champagne Ballroom at the first entrance when you enter the Paris Convention Center hallway. By the way, just a little tip. Pros and experienced players don't wear WSOP-branded stuff. So people will buy that and think that if they're wearing a WSOP sweatshirt, they're going to look cool. You kind of have a mark on your back right away as a fish. So I, I guess if you're a good player and you want people to think you're a fish and they don't know who you are, it's not a bad idea to wear a WSOP sweatshirt. Uh, other than that, it's probably not a good idea to wear one because, again, that's something that uh, rec players will buy. And it's just because... If you are a pro or even a very experienced recreational player, you don't really feel the need to own WSOP branded stuff because you just you play in the World Series and the only branded stuff you want is stuff you win. So just letting you know that. It, it's kind of like the same thing as if you are visiting like a tourist town. If you're wearing any shirt that is about the attraction there or about the town itself, then you're not from the area. That shows you're not a local. Caesars Rewards is at the Paris Convention Center at the Welcome Desk. The Paris Ballrooms, that is the Paris portion of the tournament, all day one events are going to be there. So any event you start, no matter which event it is, is going to be at Paris, not at Bally's. Additionally, any 10K or above by an event is going to play entirely at Paris. It's never going to be about going to be a bally, even the final table. If you're looking for the cash games, including the high stakes Kings Lounge, that's also going to be in Paris. Furthermore, deep stacks, mega satellites, and single table satellites are also at Paris. So you may think, well, what's left? What's going to be at Bally's? By the way, in case you're wondering about Lammers this year, remember how last year they were clamping down on the Lammers that people win from winning tournaments, uh, the, of satellite tournaments, and then they would try to sell it to others, and they got the bad news they couldn't, because when you tried to register with the Lammers towards the end of the series, they weren't accepting them unless you could prove you won them yourself. It's not clear if that's going to be the policy again in 2022. I have asked this numerous times. I do not get an answer. I just asked it again today. I didn't get an answer last I saw. Kev Math even doesn't know. You know, if Kev Math doesn't know, then nobody knows. <laughs> Kev Math says, I will do my best to get an answer by Monday morning. Like, we, we should have known this a long time ago. Why is this something they're not telling us? Like, if they want to say no, that's fine. Like, they're, it's actually not legal for them to allow people to sell lammers. They've just been looking the other way, 
which is cool. I like the fact that they look the other way. I didn't even play satellites for the most part, but yeah, I thought it was cool they let the satellite players sell the lammers and not get in the way of that. But, you know, if they've changed their mind, if, they, if they're going to comply with the letter of the law here and not allow lammers to be transferred or sold, that's fine, but just be open about it. Say, attention, do not play the satellites unless you're going to use these lammers because you cannot transfer them. Make sure everybody knows that because that was not the policy before. Just be honest with what the policy is, whatever it is. If you want to stop it, fine, stop it. But make sure everybody knows it's been stopped. But nobody knows this right now. Even KevMath doesn't know. KevMath, who knows everything, doesn't know. So that shows like nobody knows. So hopefully they will tell KevMath, who has the access to learn these things, because he is, again, going to be manning the WSOP account on Twitter. So hopefully we'll know this by Monday. But in case you're wondering about satellites, you're going to want to know the answer to that unless you're sure you're going to use these lammers yourself. So if your goal is to play a satellite and then maybe, maybe not actually play any events with these lammers, if your goal is to then sell the lammers you win, uh, think again. Maybe not. Just a little uh, side note there. But I'm trying to get the info. Look at my Twitter. I'm trying to ask about it. And this is not even for me. This is for all of you. Because again... The only satellite I really play is like into a 10K event that I plan to play anyway. Otherwise, I don't play the satellites. So this isn't for me. But I think everybody else should know. So what about Bally's, though? Like, we got the satellites in Paris. We got the day ones. We got the 10Ks. We got the cash games in Paris. What the hell are they doing with Bally's? Well, there are some things left. Day two and beyond of any event that is under 10K buy-in will be at Bally's. So as long as your buy-in isn't 10K or higher, if you make day two, you're going to be moving over to Bally's. If you are on a CBS feature table, remember CBS is broadcasting the World Series now, not ESPN, but if you're on a CBS feature TV table, that will be at Bally's. If you are at a final table, it'll be at Bally's. Actually, I, I want to correct something I said earlier. I said the 10Ks would be the final table also there. No, 10Ks will be everything but the final table will be at Paris, but the final table will be at Bally's. So any final table for any event will be at Bally's. And they also have overflow there. So for very large field events where they can't fit everybody into Paris, they will have some of it at Bally's. So that's what's going to be at Bally's. So most of your play will be at Paris. If you're thinking, well, which one should I pick to stay at? You may want to pick Paris, though it is more expensive than Bally's. It's nicer than Bally's, but it's more expensive. If you want the closest walk to your event, then you're going to want Paris, unless you think you're so good you're going to make a ton of day twos, because then you'll be closer at Bally's for the day twos. But all the day ones will be at Paris, no matter what. So there's no way that... uh, you will play more day twos than day ones. Now, if you think you're going to make day threes so often that between the days twos and threes that you'll actually be more often at Bally's than Paris, then by all means stay at Bally's. But I don't think that applies to many people. It's pretty hard to do. There'll be a number of times you don't make it past day one. It's the way the cards fall. So that's the way it is breaking down. I do not believe they're going to be doing much of moving people between them in the same day of the same event. 
So you may remember if you've played at the World Series before that you'll be in the pavilion room at the Rio and then all of a sudden they say, okay, everybody rack up and now put all your chips in a little plastic bag. They give you a Ziploc bag. You put it in your Ziploc bag. You're ordered to carry around the the bag in plain sight. And then you have to walk in a line like you're back in kindergarten and the teacher leads you over to another room. They actually walk you out of the pavilion room to the Amazon room or the Brasilia room and then you sit down there and they give you a new seat assignment. That, that looks like those days are over. Looks like that maybe it'll happen between ballrooms at Paris, but for the most part, you're going to be staying uh, around the same room for the entire day. I don't know how big these rooms are, so it's possible that you may still need the baggies, but I think it's going to be less often. You're definitely not going to be doing this between ballets in Paris, except on some of these very large events where they have some overflow at ballets and they move you over to Paris. So you probably will be using the baggies and making a very long walk from ballets to Paris with this uh, day one overflow, unless they choose not to do it and just keep it there until the end of day one. I guess that's possible too, because it is a pretty long walk between the two centers. It's not super long if you're not playing an event, but to walk a whole line of people that far is going to look pretty funny. But if you see that, if you're walking between the two in these like shopping areas of Bally's in Paris and you see some guy in a suit leading a whole line of degenerates walking with baggies, then you'll know what that is. It's people being moved from Bally's to Paris. But you shouldn't see it often. Let's see here. Um, the bracelet ceremonies. If you love the bracelet ceremonies, which I don't, I find them kind of boring and tedious. But if you do want to see them, they're going to be in the Paris ballroom and probably still like right after the first break, probably around 220 or something most days. They're going to try to make a, quote, strong effort to keep play nine-handed and not go to ten-handed. But they claim that they may require ten-handed play due to large turnouts where that's what they have to do to meet the demand. I'm wondering what they're going to do with the satellites. Because I played in some satellites where there was absolutely no reason to make them 10-handed, and they did. Like, there were dealers sitting there twiddling their thumbs doing nothing in the same event with empty tables. And I said, why are dealers sitting at empty tables when you can just spread us out nine-handed and they just wouldn't budge? They couldn't give me a good reason. They just wouldn't do it. Then I asked for the supervisor. The supervisor would not come down and talk to me. They relayed my request, and the supervisor denied it and said he's not coming down to talk to me. So that was that. So that was like some moment of power there for some supervisor. I don't even know which one. But I don't know if the satellites still try that too, or this is just the bracelet events, but that's what they're saying. There will be, quote, expanded spectator opportunities for final table events. Uh, final tables of events. I don't know exactly what that means, but they claim that there will be uh, more fanfare for special bracelet moments. So I guess they're trying to say that uh, probably easier ways to watch final tables. Now, here's something I don't like. Michigan and Pennsylvania are going to have their own segregated online bracelet events. <laughs> These online bracelets are so stupid. I mean, look, Martin Zamani 
said that Mark Herm won a bracelet in somebody else's name. Now, we don't have proof of that. This is just what Martin Zamani says. But Mark Herm has been a known multi-accounter for a long time. So I wouldn't be shocked if this were true. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. But the fact that this is even something believable is a big problem for online bracelets. Online bracelets should not be bracelets. They should not count as bracelets. They should be kind of like rings. They should be something separate. But right now, an online bracelet is considered equivalent to a live bracelet, which I find offensive as someone who has a live bracelet. Because there was no way to ghost me in the event I won. There was no way to take over for me in the event I won. I had to do it myself. And I couldn't have someone standing behind me giving advice or taking over my seat. I had to do it on my own, as did every other live bracelet winner. But online is different. But now, in addition to that, now we are going to have segregated online bracelet events. We're going to have Michigan bracelets and Pennsylvania bracelets. I, I think we had that last year, too. I don't think this is brand new. But yeah, it's definitely happening this year that there will be Michigan bracelets and Pennsylvania bracelets. So, hey, what event did you win? Oh, I, I won the uh, Pennsylvania $1,000 Dolem and Hold'em. Oh, yeah, well, look at me. I won the Michigan $360 Dolem and Hold'em. <laughs> I mean, how stupid is that? The reason it's so stupid is because the Las Vegas World Series of Poker is a place that everybody who wants to play the World Series of Poker knows to come to, to congregate, to play it. So this isn't like a Nevada World Series of Poker. It is the World Series of Poker that takes place in Las Vegas, as it always has. Nobody's going to Michigan to play online bracelet events. So if you're already in Michigan, great, then you can play. But if you're not, nobody's going there for that. And nobody's going to Pennsylvania for that. So it's so stupid that they're giving real bracelets out just because these sites are only running with a segregated pool in Michigan and Pennsylvania. They usually just say, look, no online bracelets for these two states. Now, Michigan is going to be combined with the other states pretty soon. So at that point, if they want to make them part of the online bracelet pool, fine, because then they can play with all the people who are at the World Series of Poker itself. Nevada, New Jersey, and Delaware, which are combined, will have the usual online bracelets. I don't like those either, for the reasons that Martin Zavani stated recently. But it's better than segregated online bracelets. That's even worse. They're really cheapening the bracelet with this crap. And you know, I bet if you took a poll, it would be overwhelmingly on the side of... Do not make these bracelets. And I know by making the bracelets, it becomes more enticing to play these events. If they made them rings, people would be less likely to want to play. But again, not everything should be about money. They should want to keep some value of the bracelet. And once you start awarding segregated bracelets for Michigan and Pennsylvania, and you start awarding online bracelets where rumors get around of people ghosting and multi-accounting, it ruins the whole thing. Like, do we really want to be separating this later? Well, he has three bracelets, but two are online and one is live. Because that's what I would say. I wouldn't consider someone with three bracelets, of which two are online, to be a triple bracelet holder. I would consider them to be a single bracelet holder. 
and who won two online tournaments. That's what I'd say. I don't consider those real bracelets. And I don't think most people do. Most people agree with me on this. I'm not just being a jerk about this because I have a live bracelet and I'm being like an elitist about this. Most people, as far as I know, in poker feel this way. So it's not specific to Bally's in Paris, of course, but something you should know. Now, what about the food situation? Well, there are a number of places you can go to eat. You have a lot more options now that it's center strip than it previously provided you at the Rio, which is kind of isolated. So what about Bally's in Paris? What do you have to eat over there? And they're probably going to have like a poker kitchen open somewhere. I don't have that information. But as far as regular food you can get there, at Bally's they have a food court. They have a steakhouse called BLT Steak. It says temporary closed, but I'm not sure if that's going to reopen soon. Uh, They have a burger place, which is quite expensive. They have a deli called the Nosh Deli. They have a little coffee place that makes like smoothies or whatever. Then uh, that's at Bally's. The Paris restaurants, the Paris restaurants, there's the Vanderpump A Paris, which is, yes, that, that Vamber, the Vanderpump for Vanderpump Rules. They have some branding deal with them, which is a, a French place. It's expensive. They have a Nobu there, which, like all Nobus, is expensive. And yes, there's also a Nobu at Caesars as well. I've never been to the one of the Paris. I, I, I like the Caesars one, but they, it's, they've been removing some things I like from the menu, so that's kind of annoying. They actually are, are going to have or already have. It says coming spring of 2022, which is now, but I'm not sure when it's going to open. Actually, a Martha Stewart restaurant called The Bedford. <laughs> I, I don't think Martha's going to be cooking there, but she probably has some contractual obligation to appear at least like a week, a year, or something. That's the way it usually goes. They have the Eiffel Tower restaurant, which is actually inside the Eiffel Tower that they have for Paris. It's quite expensive, as you might guess. You're mainly paying for the view and the novelty of being inside the uh, fake Eiffel Tower. There's a grab-and-go menu, which is actually uh, considered one of the cheaper places there, even though it's uh, something that's associated with a big name of expensive cuisine. Uh, Guy Savoie, who has a restaurant in Caesars, they have a brioche by Guy Savoie as a, quote, grab-and-go menu. Then there's the Mon Ami Gabi French restaurant, which is uh, down there on the Paris casino floor. There is a beer park, which offers cold beers, cocktails, and, uh, quote, stadium favorites. There's uh, Bobby's Burgers by Bobby Flay. There's JJ's Boulangerie, which is uh, a cafe with a French bistro theme, one of the cheaper places there, though nothing there is that cheap. There is the Hex Kitchen and Bar, which is considered uh, American cuisine casual. There's a Gordon Ramsay Steakhouse, which I've been to. is pretty good. There's a place that makes crepes called the Creperie. So you see there's a lot more to eat in Paris than Bally's. There is Cafe Americano, which 
I find to be expensive and you know, like you, you're it's okay, but you end up eating the food and you go, you know, this is very expensive for what I got. And then there's uh, Café Belle Madeleine, which is uh, for pastries. So those are the dining places in Paris and Bally's. And if you're playing the World Series, you'll, you'll get to know some of these as places you can grab stuff. If you're looking to just grab something quick on a break, you'll probably want to go to the Bally's food court. That's, that's really the quickest thing. But if you want to venture out, remember your center strip. So you could exit and you could cross over to the Bellagio. You could uh, walk towards Planet Hollywood the other direction. You could uh, walk across the street and go to the Cromwell or to uh, the Link or the Flamingo or to Caesars. So there's a number of places you can go to if you want to get food elsewhere, though it's not really feasible for most of the breaks in these events because you just don't have long enough time to do that. And there's a few places that aren't associated with strip hotels that are walkable, but I wouldn't really recommend them. There's a few little places like on Flamingo Road on the other side of the street that you'll see. One of them is like an Italian restaurant where they give you free wine called Batista's Hole in the Wall. It will look like a kind of back alley good locals place that you're going to want to try, my advice is don't. It's overpriced. It's very mediocre. The wine is terrible. I don't drink wine, but when I went there, the people I was with were very unimpressed with the wine, as you might imagine, with it being free. So this is a tourist trap that is made to look like a locals place. So I would not recommend Batista's Hole in the Wall. And basically... Anything in that area that purports to be independent of the casinos in some way, uh, you're not getting any better deal than you would be in the casinos, so don't bother. What about driving somewhere to eat? Well, you're not going to have enough time because remember, you're on the strip, the, the things are slower, so you're not going to really have much time, even the 90 minute dinner break, to go elsewhere. And that was one thing I liked about the Rio was that since the Rio was not on the Strip, it wouldn't take that long to jump in my car and drive somewhere in the local area to go to a quick place that I'd like, even a quick fast food place. I could drive there, get the food, and eat it, and be done. Even sometimes with a 60-minute break, I could do it. This is going to be pretty tough with Bally's in Paris because it's on the Strip, and just getting away from the Strip can be some time. You could try going east. You could try going out and uh, going east. But the problem is the way you get in to the Bally's and Paris parking structure, you can't get out the same way. So it's going to dump you on the strip when you leave. So the only way to not be dumped on the strip when you leave is to park in that open lot behind Bally's. And then you could get out in Koval. But there's not a whole lot to eat around there. There's a lot of crappy apartment complexes and condos and things like that. There's really not that much to eat that is not already in a hotel casino. So you have to drive a little bit east to get to something there. And then it'll take some time. So it's not impossible, but it's going to be harder to leave the Strip to go 
eat something during breaks. So that's kind of a downside. The upside is you can have a lot more of a selection and you don't even have to go to Bally's in Paris. You can go to properties that are in the general area and still get back in time, provided it's not like a long sit-down meal. And also, a big advantage here compared to the Rio is that you will not be relegated to only that crappy sports deli when you're done with a long day one. Because it used to be you're done with a long day one. It's after 2 a.m. and everything's closed at the Rio. No room service. All the restaurants are closed. The only thing there was that stupid sports deli, which is crappy. It was crappy, shorter order fried food. It wasn't even good. So your options were that, or you could get in your car and drive somewhere, as I sometimes did. So now you're going to have a lot of 24-hour options on the strip, especially when you're not pressed for time when the day's over. And you could walk to a number of things in a number of hotels that are still open. Now, keep in mind, a lot of people believe, oh, everything in Vegas is open 24-7. Uh-uh. Most things in Vegas do close. And after midnight, most things are closed that serve food. However, you will find in most casino properties a 24-hour place, at least one. And better quality than like that sports deli at, at the Rio. So you will have a lot more options without having to get in a car, which is nice. And you'll have room service, too you like that what i would suggest regarding registration is what i suggested in previous years don't register in advance because there's all kinds of fail that can happen you may say oh it's so convenient i can pay in advance no no don't don't especially at a new venue the last thing you want is to be in a six-hour line because they have glitches with that so don't do it my suggestion is If you don't have a diamond card, because there will be a diamond area to register. I'm not sure where that's going to be, but there will be some kind of diamond registration area where you can have a special line for diamond and higher. And there it's never too bad, though there is sometimes a line there, but it's never like horrendous. But if you don't have a diamond or higher, I suggest show up very late at night or early morning to register. Maybe a pain in the ass, but that's what I would suggest for either big field events or for events that are coinciding with big field events. So like the day before that housewarming event that they're running for $500, which is kind of like the equivalent of the 2019 Big 50, that's going to have a massive, massive, massive line. So if you try to show up an hour before that event, no way you're going to get in. I mean, you'll get in, but you'll be on a line for hours. Even the night before, it'd probably be terrible. But if you show up 3 a.m. the night before, should be fine. Show up at 8 a.m. the day this day of. That should be fine, too. That's not the most convenient. But if you want to avoid the lines and you don't have a diamond card, I suggest that you go either middle of the night or very early in the morning. Now, if this is just like during the week and there is no big field event planned, then you can basically show up at any time to register. I wouldn't advise like right before the event because there's always going to be a line when events are starting. But for most of the day, the registration line should be pretty reasonable when there are not huge events planned. So I think it'll be very similar to the way it was at the Rio. Furthermore, if you are fortunate enough to cash, then do not necessarily run to pick up your money immediately if you're going to be there a while. 
if you're going right back home, yeah, you have to. But if you're going to be there for another day or more, then just again, come when you're not seeing big field events having a lot of people busting out in the money. You don't want to stand on a gigantic cash line. If you if you walk up to the cash out line and you see there's like 100 people ahead of you, you're a fool to stand on that unless you're leaving, unless you're just going home. If you're just going to still be at the World Series, even for just one more day, just come back the next day. There's no reason you have to pick up the money that same day. You're not required to. You could pick it up weeks later. You could pick it up after the series is over at some point. Not sure when the cutoff is, but there's... Nothing at all that requires you or gives you an advantage to pick up the money right after you bust out. A lot of times after I bust out in the money, I do not go pick up the money because either one, I'm not in the mood, or two, there's a line. Or three, I'm not in the mood and there's a line. Then I'm especially not going to do it. So keep that in mind. Regarding um, should you register before the event or when you're ready to play. Some of that is line dependent, as I was saying before. I believe they're still going to have the same policy that if you register before the event, that they will put up a dead stack for you until you show up if the event starts and you're not there. So if you're someone who shows up late a lot, you may want to register when you're ready to play, but then you'll have to be ready to stand online. Now, truthfully, it doesn't matter a whole lot in most events, if you blind off a little bit at the very beginning of the event, because that's mostly meaningless play. At least the blinds are mostly meaningless. Now, you can say every little bit counts, but on the other hand, it's really not going to do very much if you start off with a 5,000 chip stack and you show up and you have uh, 4875. That's not going to be likely to have very much impact on your results. I'm not saying you should shoot for that. I'm saying that it's uh, not horrible if that happens. So it's something you just have to make a judgment call for. What about Uber and Lyft? Well, I guess you can use those. I don't know if there's designated areas for Bally's in Paris for Uber and Lyft. There may be a lot of people getting it at once when these events are starting and when these uh, events are finishing. So keep that in mind. When it's done for the day, there could be a problem with that too. I don't really use those much. I, I use them very sparingly. I'm not a fan of being driven by other people. I always prefer to drive myself if possible. I've only used those a handful of time and never at the World Series of Poker. So I can't tell you much about that. I always like to have a car in Vegas. Some people get along without it. I would feel weird to have no car in Vegas. But everybody's different. I think that's about it. I don't have much more to say, not having been there. I will play you this here. Something that uh, Lon McCarron and Norman Chad did. A little uh, somewhat comedy and somewhat informational piece introducing the WSOP and its new home at Paris and Bally's. This is called 2022 World Series of Poker Property Tour with Lon McCarron and Norman Chad. Hi, everybody. I'm Lon McCarron, along with Norman Chad. And together, we've been broadcasting the World Series of Poker since 2003. And today, we're here to introduce you to our brand new home. We've been 
to Binion's on Fremont Street. We've been to the Rio and now on the Las Vegas Strip, finally. And if you're here for the virtual press conference, welcome. Introducing you to Bally's, future known as Horseshoe and Paris. It's gonna be a great beginning. Yeah, we're gonna introduce you to where you're gonna game now, where you're gonna dine now, where you're gonna park now, and where you're gonna have fun now in the city that never sleeps, or is that is that New York? I don't, New York care, I don't care if it's New York. New York, screw New York, they're 24-7. Here in Las Vegas, we're 25-7. So sit back, relax, and enjoy a tour of the new home of the World Series of Poker. Now, I have not watched this yet. I was aware of it, but I haven't watched it yet. A lot of times I like to watch these along with you guys so my reactions can be genuine. And I'm curious to see what suggestions they give compared to the suggestions I have given you. If you have never played a World Series of Poker event and you're coming this year, welcome to the family. This needs to be your initial stop, really. Right off the escalators from the parking garage is the WSOP Caesars Rewards Desk, where you can pick up for free your Caesars Reward card. Very important to have one. Okay, now most of you probably don't need this. I'm going to give you another tip, by the way. I bet they're not going to give you this tip, but I'm going to give you this tip. You probably have a Caesars reward card because you've probably been to Caesars properties by now. And if you've played the World Series of Poker since 2005, you had to have one. So it's very likely that if you're going to come for the World Series, you already have this if you're listening to this show. However, I bet there's a good chance that your card is expired, especially if you haven't really come to Vegas since COVID. And you may think, oh, I better show up to that desk to get my card updated and stand in that line because I can't show up with a card saying expiring January 2020, right? Uh-uh, you can show up with a card that says expiring January 2020. You can use it to park. You can use it for any purpose. You can use it in a machine, like a video poker machine or slot machine. You can use it to register for World Series events. That expiration date does not matter nor does what is printed on the card. So let's say you have a card that says gold on it, but you're really diamond. Well, you probably want to get that changed because sometimes you have to just show the diamond card to get into rooms or or special lines, but it will work as a diamond card. It will read as a diamond card. And the opposite is true. If you have a card that says diamond and you're actually down to gold, well, you might be able to trick them and show them your diamond card and get into spaces where you shouldn't be. If they ever swipe it, that's not going to trick anyone because it's going to say what you really are. Similarly, you can't park for free with that card if it's been downgraded to gold, no matter what it says on it, because the machine you swipe the card through will see what you really are. But at the same time, the expiration date doesn't matter. The expiration date is just for your information so you can know when this particular status expires. So if it says diamond expiring January 31st, 2020, all that's saying is after January 31st, 2020, you're going to be whatever you've earned from uh, your play in 2019. That's all that was saying. The card itself doesn't expire. So if you are whatever status you are, it doesn't matter what's printed on there. And you can register with expired cards. Just pretend the expiration date is not printed on the card and you can use it. Yeah, and if you lose your card, this is where you come to get another card at the Caesar Rewards desk. Or if you forget your card, I got about 30 of these babies at home in my nightstand, you come here. Uh, one personal note, Alana and I like to play reward card roulette where that makes the decision on which one of us is gonna pay for our entry fees. I lose again. 
And I know from personal experience, you never need to cash in a World Series of Poker event to keep your Caesars Rewards card. We are standing in front of the Champagne Ballrooms. Don't forget that name. Very important. It will be your first stop when you get onto property. This is where all the cages are. Increased capacity. 16 this year, Norman. Also, 10 VIP windows. That's not for Lana and I. We're no. just IPs. VIPs like Helmuth, Negrano, and the other poobahs of the poker world. <laughs> so, yeah, this is where you want to come register. All He's actually not kidding that people like Negrano and Helmuth, no matter what their status is with the caesar's rewards program can use those lines but if you're not a big name in poker then you can use these vip lines if you're diamond or higher they're not saying that but i believe that's going to remain the case so it's nice to see there's 10 lines for that that should really make them move fast also if you've won a seat on wsop.com you come here to verify the seat and lastly if you made a deposit onto your account Come here, verify the funds. They say, okay, you're good to go. Then you can use the kiosk throughout the property to register for tournaments. See, this is exactly why you don't want to do that. Do you, do you want to count on all that working? Do you want to count on the system working at a new place and the kiosk working, which are notorious for going down? No. Don't, don't do it. Please don't do it. Okay, a couple of things of note, even though it is the champagne ballroom, it is bring your own champagne. All right. Also, just in case the lines get too long, and they shouldn't, we, we have very fast and friendly attendance. I will be about 15 feet to the right, and I can take your cash payments for <laughs> entries, uh, and I'll get your seats up to your hotel room a little later. Well, right now, we are on the threshold of the Paris ballroom. 88,000 square feet. It will be home to over 300 poker tables. 88,000 square yeah. feet. That is larger than Phil Helmuth's ego. <laughs> right behind me, all the satellites, all the deep stacks, all the live action, including the high roller live action at King's Lounge with 14 tables. And if you're buying into an event that is less than $10,000, this will be your home on day one. Yeah, this will be my home. Most of the time, I only play day ones. <laughs> Yeah, so it does look like they're just putting a ton of people in this huge room. So it looks like it's going to be a bit different than the Rio, which had a bunch of different rooms. You could be in the Amazon, Pavilion, Brasilia. It looks like they're just stuffing everybody in one room there. If your player receipt says Bally's Grand Ballroom, well, this is your place. Look for Platinum, go through these doors, and you are ready to play. You've got 187 tables. 187 tables? I'll tell you why it's 187, because 187 is a prime number. No, it's not. Okay, whatever. 187 tables. This is for the day two under 10K events. Also, some overflow events for the larger fields can take place in here. And also, for those of you who like to re-enter, and I know a lot of you mm. like to re-enter, the re-entry cage is right here. To make it really easy for you, you don't have to go all the way over there. <laughs> right here, you re-enter right inside here. Adjacent to Bally's Grand Ballroom is Bally's Event Center, where Norman and I are standing right now. Get it in your mind. That's where you want to play. 87 tables, including five feature tables, where the final tables will be played and the new home of the mothership. Yeah, this is where all the greats have become great. No, no, they it's haven't. Johnny Moss, Texas Dolly back-to-back, Stu Unger back-to-back, -back, Johnny Chan. First year here. Okay, well this is where the future greats will plant their flag as World Series of Poker icons. That's where most of the world champion banners are held as well, give you inspiration to make it through that final push, win the final table, and become a champion. 
With the move to the new Las Vegas property, there were a lot of concerns about what the parking situation would be, but we're happy to report that between Bally's and Paris, there are nearly 8,000 spots available, which is almost double that we had at the Rio. Uh, hold on, though. That's not as good as you think, because those spots have to accommodate all of the hotel guests at Bally's in Paris, of which there will be many who are not World Series of Poker players. It has to accommodate anyone visiting these properties for reasons other than the World Series of Poker, such as dining or casino games or whatever. So is that really better than the Rio, where people are mostly going there to play the World Series of Poker? I don't know. We will see if the parking there is a problem. And if you like to gamble like I do, perhaps you have a certain Caesars reward status. Seven stars, diamond and platinum level gets you parking for free. In addition to that, if you're not quite the gambler Norman is, you can get a Caesars reward credit card and that will get you free parking as well. If you don't have it, you can register for one here and get your card within 24 hours. Yeah, except uh, it's only for new card holders that get that platinum status, as I mentioned. Though that is interesting. They do have a place to get the credit card right there and then get it to you within 24 hours instead of the normal application process where you're going to have to probably wait two weeks. So that's a good thing to know if you don't have one of those cards yet. I'm going to tell you the great thing about this card. Lon pays a $75 annual fee just to spend time with me. This card, no <laughs> annual fee. Much better deal also. Here are some of your other parking options. So they're saying that, uh, well, they're basically repeating what I told you earlier about the parking garage and the parking lot. Okay, so here, I, it does give me an answer about the rideshare stuff. This is Bally's and Paris both feature individual rideshare pickup locations. Bally's rideshare pickup is located at the north side entrance. Paris rideshare located on the casino floor. And the monorail, if you want to take that, it's... Uh, $5 per ride, $13 for a day pass, etc., etc. But that only runs from 7 a.m. to 12 a.m. Monday, 7 a.m. to 2 a.m. Tuesday through Thursday, and 7 a.m. to 3 a.m. Friday through Sunday. But there is a monorail stop at Bally's. Ready? All right, ready. Okay. Norman. What? Norman, what are you doing? What are you talking about? Uh, Norman, I think that's enough. Thank you. Swiss or casino, a complex de Paris, Las Vegas. Un regard, un baguette. 20 years I've put up with this. Sorry, folks. Uh, let's move on right now. Just steps away from the poker tables. We've got some great places to eat here at our new venue. Well, you play poker, you got to eat. They kind of go hand in hand. And one of the great things about the move here to the Strip is a number of fine places to eat at both Paris and Bally's. I'm a little skeptical of this. I'm a little afraid some of these outlets don't have very much capacity because I've seen some of them. They don't have very much capacity. And that with thousands of people descending upon them, you have just some massive lines possibly. The, the only saving grace, again, is that you can leave property and probably still get back in time. And we're going to start with the WSOP Cafe, which you're all familiar with from the Rio. Well, we've got two here, one at Paris, one at Bally's. You know? By the way, I, w I wouldn't recommend that. The WSOP Cafe generally sucks and it's overpriced. 
No, all the fine food, all the options just steps away from the table. All right, we all know about the WSOP Cafe. Let's, let's talk about the places you want to go when you have a quick break, the places you want to go when you've taken a bad beat, the places you want to go when you want to celebrate. So many options. Now, if you're on a break for the poker tables, maybe check out these establishments. You got the food court at Bally's that has Sbarro, Johnny Rockets, Subway, and other good food. And there's the Nosh Deli. Great name. Nosh Deli is located right next to the Bally's Poker Room. If I had to guess here, and I haven't been to any of these that they're talking about right now, I think the brand name fast food outlets in the food court are going to be pretty expensive compared to what you're getting. Like, do you really want to pay that much for Subway? Probably not. This Nosh Deli may not be a bad idea. It's not going to be cheap, but probably what you get versus what you pay is probably better value there, I'm guessing, than something like Subway. Maybe I'll be wrong, but that's what I'd picture. There is Cafe Bell just off the Paris casino floor for all your coffee needs, plus pre-made sandwiches and salads. All right, so you've taken a bad beat. It's time to eat your feelings. Check out these spots. We're talking Bobby's Burgers, next level burgers. Very expensive, by the way. Bobby Flay's... Bobby's Burgers. At Paris, and if you mention my name, Bobby Flay will probably not personally cook your burger. <laughs> and check out Giordano's Pizza in the Grand Bazaar shops at Bally's. Chicago-style pizza, deep dish, gotta love it. And they've also got some that are pre-made. You can just pick up at the window and go. I'm guessing pretty expensive for what you're going to get. Also in the Grand Bazaar shops, Dave's Hot Chicken. If you're looking for really spicy and hot, uh, they're pretty flexible, though. If you want it mild, they'll give it to you mild. Well, you've made your first cash, maybe your first final table, or maybe the unthinkable you've won your first World Series of Poker bracelet, and it's time to celebrate. There is Nobu Paris. Chef Nobu. Yeah, that Nobu. <laughs> for just the best sushi and small plates you can ever find. By the way, this is something you can't do anymore, but do you know there was a Nobu on Crystal Cruises? You could just go there as much as you wanted, have unlimited Nobu meals. It was pretty cool, huh? Too bad Crystal chunked off all their money and cheated everybody at the end, but they did have Nobu. And a restaurant man who needs no introduction, Gordon Ramsay's steak. Great steaks, beautifully prepared. And if you play your cards right here on the right night, maybe Gordon will come over and yell at you during dinner. Yeah, that, that was actually pretty good. As I said, I've been there once, and it was a good meal. And the service was good, and they were actually pretty gracious. I remember they messed something up, and I didn't even ask for anything for free, but they, they gave something off the bill automatically because they messed something up. And I, I thought that was a good experience there. It was several years ago, though. You never know what changes over time. But my one meal there was good. But then again, I had one good meal at Vic and Anthony's Steakhouse at Golden Nugget, and then when I went there a few years ago, it was awful. So things do change. And celebrate in luxury at Vanderpump à Paris. Incredible cocktail garden, elevated eats, and no chance of seeing me. They won't let me in. It's so weird that they combine Vanderpump and... I don't know. It just doesn't seem to fit. We're very excited to be here on the property, Paris Valleys on the Las Vegas Strip. Really happy you could join us for this tour, and we hope you have a very successful World Series of Poker. Don't bother me if I'm playing a hand. <laughs> okay. All right.
right, at least they kind of made a little comedy thing out of this to make it more watchable, more entertaining. And Norman Chad is a fan of Poker Fraud Alert. I don't know how often he listens, but uh, I mean, he told people at the 2019 main event to listen up and told them about this show. I was very surprised. Okay, so that's all I got to say for now. Hope you got something out of this, and hopefully I will uh, have some success this year. Hopefully I will win another bracelet. What I do have on my side is the first year at the venue pattern. Because the first year at the Binion's venue, I was not born yet, so I could not be expected to win anything. The first year at the Rio, I won a bracelet, and in fact, I finished third place as well right before that. And this is the upcoming first year at Paris and Pally's. Hmm. Maybe I'll win two bracelets. We shall see. All right. Well, that's all I got with the World Series of Poker. I know I spent some time on this. I hope you weren't too bored. If you're not playing at the World Series, maybe it was boring to you. But there are people who do who listen to this show, and uh, I wanted to give you my tips, because even though I haven't been there before, I am experienced with the World Series itself, and I think I have a lot of good tips for you that other places just simply don't give. Yeah, it's late, and yeah, I kind of lost track of time. I don't even know what time it is right now. I know what time it is right now. It is uh, time for Truffy Time Theater. And Dandruff, he warns you every week, I'm going to run out of stories, I'm going to run out of things to say, and then he does it every week anyway. And I say, Dandruff, why don't you do this once a month? Once every two months? Then you'll, you'll have plenty of material. And he's, no, 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 I'm going to do it every week, he says. And then he runs out of stuff. And then, then he complains, he says, oh, I have no more to talk about. But whose fault is that? On with it. Thank you, Colonel Fabersham. This is Druffy Time Theater. It is a segment. I don't do it every week. You're wrong, Colonel Fabersham. But I do it some weeks where I will tell you about an incident from my life or multiple incidents from my life which are related or some kind of customer service story I have where uh, I battle the forces of big and small business as they try to screw me or something else that I think you'll find interesting that I personally experienced. Usually it doesn't have much to do with poker or gambling. Occasionally it does. It's just a way to get to know me better and to break apart the monotony of the poker and gambling discussions that occur on this show for so many hours each week. This week on Druffy Time Theater, we're going to do a segment called Druff versus. Las Vegas apartment complexes. Yes, Druff during Druff versus Vegas apartment complexes. By the way, I'm looking at the ratings right now, and the live ratings right now, I have no idea why, are higher than they have ever been. That's, that's not true. Not higher than it's ever been, but higher than it's been any time in 2022. So I don't know why so many of you are listening right now. Most people listen in the archives. And if you're, you're new to this show, I'm saying archives this way on purpose. But For those who are new that are listening live right now, 
You may want to turn this off. You may not want to hear about Druff versus Las Vegas Apartments, but keep it on. I think it's going to be more entertaining than you believe, and you may learn something. So, I lived in Las Vegas starting from the year 2004. I moved to Las Vegas when I became a professional poker player. Not right when I became a professional poker player, but not too long after. I quit my last regular job in the middle of 2003. It was about a year later that I just kind of abruptly got an apartment in Vegas and drove there and actually bought a mattress on the way to Vegas. I'm not even kidding. I pulled off of an exit, a random exit, and grabbed a phone book. I didn't have a smartphone in 2004. Nobody did. I grabbed a phone book and I found a nearby mattress store and drove there and did my Jew negotiating. And I got myself a mattress and they delivered it. And (laughs) I had no furniture. It's just me sleeping on a mattress in an empty apartment. So all pretty abrupt there in 2004. And I lived in two different apartment complexes during my time in Vegas. This wasn't even voluntary that I moved to the second one. I was thrown out, which is part of this story. You'll learn why I was thrown out and what I did. So I'm not going to tell you so much about my experiences living in these complexes, though I will tell you the first one that kind of had a weird thing going on with it. When I was living there, there were a ton of high-end hookers and strippers that lived in this complex. Like if you went to Craigslist at the time to look up hookers that would charge you like $1,000 per session, they would sometimes post pictures of themselves. I would sometimes recognize these pictures as being taken in my building. I didn't ever get these hookers, by the way, in case you're wondering, but I, I would occasionally look at the ads for amusement and I did uh, see that, and it was funny. But I I could tell walking around the complex that uh, some of these girls were hookers and or strippers. But that's not really the point of all this. I just wanted to throw that in there. Also, this was one of the worst-hit properties in Vegas when it went condo as far as taking massive losses in the 2008 housing crash. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. So I had a two-bedroom apartment, and... I was pretty close to the strip, and I got it in 2004. In 2006, I came back from L.A. I I had a girlfriend who lived in L.A. at the time, and my family lived in L.A. So I went to L.A. a lot. I lived in Vegas, but I did visit L.A. a lot. And one of the times I came back, and I'd say I was gone about five days or so, I came back. And I found a notice posted on my door that I'm being evicted. Now, what did I do wrong? Did I piss off the management and argue about a bunch of petty stuff? They got tired of me. Did I make a lot of noise when I took bad beats and online poker and slammed things around and the neighbors complained about me? Or was I blasting the TV at 3 a.m. because of my odd hours? No, none of these things. None of this had to do with my behavior. Was it because I didn't pay my rent? Yes, actually it was. It was because I didn't pay my rent. So was I broke? Was I busto? Did I play too many high-stakes limit hold'em games and it didn't go well? Did I get crushed by the Minnesota limit hold'em all-stars? 
Well, sometimes, but that wasn't why I didn't pay my rent. I just forgot to pay my rent that month. <laughs> I, I forgot that we were crossing the first of the month. So I, I left Vegas at the end of the month, totally forgot about the first of the month coming. And because I wasn't there in Vegas, I wasn't thinking about it. And I came back shortly, I mean, like very shortly after the first of the month. And I found an eviction notice on my door. And I was shocked at how quickly they did the whole thing. Because in California, it's not like that. In California, you have to post a three-day pay-or-quit notice. And then three days have to pass. And then they have to file an eviction. And the whole thing takes some time. I was surprised to see in Vegas, the whole process is very quick. They posted a notice on my door. I wasn't there to even see it. And then I got back and... uh, the eviction was already in process. It was way faster than in California. Maybe because there's a lot of deadbeats in Vegas. I don't know. But it works differently in Vegas, and I was uh, in the process of being evicted. So was I evicted? No. I went to them, and I told them that this was just an oversight. Now, In fact, I was quite surprised that they made no attempt to contact me and that they were evicting me given that I've never been late on my rents once and, I, and I've been there since 04. This is back in 06. So I'd be, I've been there well over a year and uh, here they're evicting me for just one month I forgot to send the rent. And I don't know if you've ever rented apartments or houses or condos. You probably have. And if you've ever forgotten to pay the rent, usually what's going to happen, even in, in a large place, they're going to call you and say, hey, uh, we didn't get your rent check because there can be legitimate reasons that the rent check didn't show up. It could be that uh, it got lost in the mail. It could be they lost it in some way. It could be you just forgot. But usually what they're going to do, as long as you're not a tenant they want to get rid of, usually what they're going to do is let you know they didn't receive it and at worst charge you a late fee when you do bring it in, unless it was a fault on their end. But here they didn't contact me at all. And I was like, why didn't you contact me at all? And they had an office. So, I, you know, this is a big complex. I wasn't dealing with like a ma and pa ownership. This was a big complex. And I know they have their own rules and everything, but I, I was telling them, I'm just surprised. I've been a good tenant here. I've never caused any trouble. Why, why would you evict me when I've never even been late? And they said, well, that's just the way we do things here. So I said, well, okay, well, what do we do now? Like, can you cancel this? Like, how does it work now? And they said, we can cancel it. However, we're going to charge you like $425 because of what we've paid in legal fees. So they wanted me to reimburse their legal fees thus far. Now, I don't know if these are real fees they incurred or just that's what they're claiming. That's what they said I had to pay if I wanted them to rescind the eviction. Now, I definitely wanted them to rescind the eviction. I didn't feel like moving. I was otherwise happy with the place. But I was very unhappy that they did not make the effort to contact me here. Again, yes, this is my fault that I forgot to pay the rent. I'm not blaming them for them not getting my rent and saying, like, what the fuck? But to make zero effort to contact me, which they admitted. It's not like they tried to call me. I didn't answer the phone. They just, they made zero effort to even call me when I had a perfect payment record, which pissed me off. So I I tried to have this discussion with them 
And I know the industry quite well, so I, I'm not just making this up that landlords will tend to contact you if you have a good payment history and you haven't been a problem if they don't get your rent one month. So th- this was non-standard to make zero effort to contact me and just evict me. So we went back and forth about this, and, and finally a deal was struck where they allowed me to pay half of the fees. So they, I, I paid reduced fees. I paid like two-something to them instead of four-something to get them to cancel the eviction. So they did. So I still wasn't thrilled about it, but at least they didn't have to pay the, the full 400 whatever dollars they wanted from me. So that was kind of shitty. So that was uh, my first argument, so to speak, with uh, any Vegas property. And uh, I can't say I won that one, but uh, it wasn't as bad as it could have been. Then I got a notice in 2007. In 2007, the notice said that this apartment was going to be turned into a condo and that my options were to either buy it or leave. They were trying to get in on the Vegas condo craze because condos in Vegas were just going for insane money as real estate prices were rocketing up in the 2000s. Remember that? Remember before the real estate bubble in 08? Well, in 07, it was still rocketing up. And now in hindsight, we see that it was not going to be very long from then until the big crash. And I knew a big crash was coming. I knew it. People ask me, you're doing well in poker. So why are you living in apartments? Why don't you get a nice condo? Why don't you get a nice house? How come all these other Vegas poker pros live in such nicer places than you? Why are you in an apartment with uh, crappy furniture? What, what, uh, why are you living like someone who is just getting by? And I said, because I don't think that these prices are going to last. And I think there's going to be a crash. And I think I'm going to lose my ass here if I buy something. I don't know when. And every year I think it's going to happen and it doesn't. But one of these years, it's all going to crash down. I kept telling people that over and over and over again through the 2000s. Now, I didn't predict it would be 08. But I I said in 03, 04, 05, I kept saying, I know it's coming soon. I just don't know which year it's going to be. So it happened in 08. Anyway, in 07, they were trying to get on the condo craze. This was a complex that was built in 1992. There was nothing special about it. It, it's, it was close to the Strip. It was about three-quarters of a mile from the Strip. But there's nothing special about it. It was a four-story complex that was fairly large, and it was decent, but it wasn't something I'd consider luxury. Just kind of decent, I'd say. And even in 2007, it was already showing its age. It was 15 years old and looked at least 15 years old. So what they were going to do was make some, quote, improvements. And the improvements weren't really improvements. It was really things that are necessary to do to change apartments to condos, such as so they have their own separate utilities that can be billed as separate utilities and and stuff like that. It's more just formalities they need to do in order to make it a condo versus an apartment. It's not like they were going to make it a better place. So what they offered to me was I could purchase this two-bedroom apartment that was built in 92, 15 years earlier, for 
$450,000. And I said, nope. <laughs> I cannot picture paying $450,000 for this thing. It's just a regular two-bedroom apartment. I did not want to pay $450,000. So I said, no. So if you say no, then you have until a certain date to move out. You could stay all the way up until that date, or you could leave immediately. They didn't care. If you had a lease, you could break it, but uh, you could leave any time between that notice and that date, which wasn't that long of a time. So it's not like you had a whole year to decide or something. So I decided I'm just going to ride it out to the end and then move only when I have to. Residents were not happy about this. They were putting posters around there about what a great investment it's going to be and uh, uh, you know, buy, buy your condo today and invest in your future. And they show these happy people and these posters were actually getting defaced. Not by me. Younger me would have probably defaced them, but not, not uh, 35-year-old me. But people were writing graffiti on them and defacing them and writing obscene comments. And people were pissed off about this because they felt like they were just being forced out of their home. They were living in these apartments, many of them for like a lot longer than I was. I'd only been there since 04. And they were just being forced out. The options are either spend a ridiculous sum of money on buying the condo that's being converted into or leave. So I stayed as long as I could. One of the times I was uh, loading a bunch of stuff either to or from my car, and what they had were like these shopping carts that weren't stolen from stores or anything. These were actually shopping carts the complex owned, these green shopping carts. And these were useful to bring stuff from your car, which was like a covered garage uh, that was attached to the buildings. So it was useful to bring stuff like groceries, or especially bigger stuff, from your car up to your uh, apartment, which could be uh, not a really long walk. But when you're carrying stuff, it could be a long walk, especially if it's bulky or heavy. So I used these uh, shopping carts whenever I needed them. Anyway, one particular day, I was using the shopping carts for uh, a bunch of stuff. I forgot what I was doing. And I couldn't find any. I was looking, looking. I could not find any. They were not in the usual locations. So I started going to the other buildings in the complex, and I finally found one that was sitting like outside of some uh, third-story apartment in another building, and nobody was using it, just kind of sitting there, must have been used before and just left up there. So I go, okay, good. I grab it, and in the background, I'm hearing all this racket of construction noise, drilling and sawing and hammering, and I'm thinking, ugh. I am glad that I do not live on this side because this would drive me crazy, especially as I was sleeping a lot during the day. You know, I was showing up playing the Bellagio, I'd show up at 2 a.m. and play all night and leave in the morning and uh, go to sleep all day. So if, if I had to listen to this construction during the day, I would have gone nuts. And this construction, by the way, was the building itself. You know, they were doing construction on these condos to make these, quote, improvements. They just hadn't gotten to mine yet for whatever reason. So I was going to be probably gone before they started, which I was. I never had to deal with that noise, thankfully. And if I did, I would have left. But this woman, this old woman, uh, was, was hearing this. And she said, 
I forgot how our conversation started. I think I asked, are you using this cart? And she said, no. And then she said, oh, that noise, I just can't stand it. I can't hear myself think. This starts at 7 a.m. It goes till 7 p.m. every day. And I just can't stand it. It drives me crazy day in, day out, day in, day out. And I, I don't know what to do. And I said, really, well, that, that's, that's too bad. And she said that she uh, has asked them if they can do anything about this, let her move apartments or uh, break the lease. And they said, no, I, I guess what I, what I was saying before about you can leave and break the lease, that wasn't true. I guess there was like a, a certain point where you could break it, but we weren't there yet. I guess it was partially true. I guess, like, we were still in the period where you, I guess you couldn't break your lease. It was only t- towards the very, very end where you could choose, like if you want to stay the final month. It's been 15 years. I don't remember exactly, but she was hearing noise all day. Like, imagine this. Imagine 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. all day. I understand why this old woman was pissed off. So I said, well, what did they say when you went down to talk to them? And she said, they told me that they have to do these improvements, that this is when my building's scheduled to be done, and that if I leave, that I'll be breaking my lease, and that unless they can re-rent it, which they probably can't because uh, it's going to have all this noise and no one's going to want it, that uh, I'm going to have to pay for all the time remaining on my lease until, until the date that this ends here. So she said she can't afford that. She can't afford to pay double rent. So she just has to live with it here. And I felt so bad for her. She, she was over 70, this nice old lady. And the assholes down in the office just told her tough luck. You're going to deal with this every day. And if you try to break your lease, then you're going to be paying the rent anyway. So it's basically pay double rent if you want to go elsewhere. We're, not al- we're also not moving you within the building or, or to another building. And tough luck. So I said to her, they're wrong. They are wrong. Because there is a concept called quiet enjoyment, which I knew about in California, but it also applies to Nevada. And I believe it applies to all 50 states. I can't say for sure, but I know it for sure that it applied also to Nevada. And quiet enjoyment is your right to be able to live quietly without disturbance in a place where you're paying rent. Now, there are some exceptions to quiet enjoyment to where if the noise is being caused by external factors that cannot be controlled by the landlord, then there's nothing you can do. So if the place next door that they don't own is doing construction and you can hear it from where your apartment is, then there's nothing you can do. And then you don't have a right to break your lease The only way you would is if they didn't disclose this when you're moving in and you were kind of tricked into it. But if it just kind of starts while you're there, while you've already been there, and then the place next door starts doing construction that's noisy, or the city does construction on the street or whatever it might be, uh, then you're screwed. But if the building itself chooses to do any kind of work other than emergency work, any kind of work that causes interference with what's known as quiet enjoyment 
So, like, this is an example where they, they can't just 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. do the construction noise every single day and tell her, live with it, tough luck. You, you cannot force people to do that. You have to give them options. You have to either move them to an equal or better unit that does not have this noise or allow them to break their lease without any kind of penalty or stop the noise. And that was her right as a renter. And she says, thank you very much. I I didn't know that. And I said to her, you know what? Would you like me to go down with you and tell them this myself? Because what I was thinking, I didn't want to say it out loud, but what I was thinking is if an old lady comes down and tells them this, even if she's right, they're not going to show her any respect. They're going to treat her like an old person who's just bitching and doesn't know what they're talking about. They're going to treat her like a senile old fool. Even though she'd be right, they're not going to show her the proper respect. But she's already complained about this. They're going to just say, no, you don't know. But you know, if a, if a person comes down who's not old, and I wasn't all that young either. I was 35, so I was a good age to come and do this. It's not, I wasn't a punk kid, and I wasn't elderly. And tells them that uh, I know that this is the law, then they may respect this. So I went with her down to the office, and I didn't care what they thought of me by this point because I knew I was leaving anyway. I had to leave. So at first, they didn't want to let me talk. <laughs> they, they said, This is none of my business. And I said, uh, Well, uh, you don't have to hear me talk, but I'm telling you that's the law. And she knows it's the law. And I also told them that uh, this wasn't true, but I I told them that I had a relative who was an attorney that was going to help her out here if they didn't follow the law. And again, I I didn't have to worry about alienating them in the office because I knew I was going to be leaving very shortly anyway. So they were not happy with me. (laughs) They were were pissed. And uh, they they finally gave up with a we don't need to listen to you thing there because, you know, I had already said it. But they backed down. They backed down and and she thanked me profusely. What they ended up doing, they couldn't stop the work, but they ended up letting her move to uh, a different unit in a different building where there wasn't going to be this noise, something similar to my building where they weren't going to start till everybody was out. And I asked her if she wanted me to uh, pressure them to pay for her moving uh, expenses because they would have to do that too. But she said that she knew someone who could help her and not to worry about that. So I didn't, but she was very, very thankful that I had helped her. So that that was my good deed. I helped an old lady who was uh, being tortured with construction noise day, day in, day out and going nuts get to move apartments for the final few months there. And I, I was just going for a damn shopping cart. That's all I, was, I was looking for a shopping cart. That's all I was trying to do. And I ended up uh, walking into this situation. So this wasn't for me, but I just felt so bad for her. I had to help. And I wasn't looking for anything. Now, I bet you guys would have believed if I did this for like one of the strippers there, one of the high-end hookers, you would have thought I was doing it for other purposes. But this woman was like over 70. And uh, I just felt bad for her. And I knew the law, and I knew they were breaking it. So I moved out there at the last minute I could. And fortunately, never had any construction noise. 
I then watched the value of not only my unit, but other units there. But let's talk about my particular unit. Did it sell? Oh, yes, it did. And guess how much it sold for? By the time they sold my unit, remember, they still had to work on it before they could sell it. But once they converted it into a condo, which is essentially the same thing, just with um, some ability to have separate utilities and maybe some very slight improvements, this 15-year-old two-bedroom apartment turned condo sold for $725,000. Oh my goodness, I thought. Why didn't I buy this thing for four fifty and then flip it? I felt like a fool. But I said to myself, I couldn't have seen this coming. I mean, four fifty just seemed like so much for what I was getting there. And yeah, so it happened to go up to seven twenty five, but you know, who knew that was gonna happen? So what happened to the guy who bought it for seven twenty five? Well, guess what happened very shortly after he bought it for seven twenty five? I think you know. I think you know it was coming. It hit the peak of 725. The value really didn't go that much up from there. And then came the real estate crash. And then this. Just like Wild E. Coyote falling off a cliff. So did the prices of that condo. Now, would you believe some dumbass actually caught this falling knife on the way down? So someone actually bought it when it had sunk back down, I think to around four something again, and bought it there thinking they're going to get a great deal, only to see it continue to fall. And then they ended up getting foreclosed upon as well. What was it worth when it hit rock bottom? Condos like this one, I forgot what this one sold for or if it did, but condos like this one in the year 2009 remember it was bought for 725,000 towards the end of 2007 we're selling for $85,000 ouch by then the complex had degraded as well there were a lot of foreclosures a lot of people who couldn't pay the still high HOA fee which is one of the re- all the other reasons I didn't want to buy anything there And there were a lot of people who bought them only as an investment with plans to rent them out. And they were unable to. And what they ended up doing was temporarily actually making like a little hotel out of the place. And they were actually renting this to like nightly and weekly visitors, which made it like really ghetto. There were all kinds of drug deals there and uh, violent crimes. A lot of bad stuff happening in that complex post-condo that were not happening there before. So I was glad I was long out of there. I actually considered buying some of these at 85K each, thinking it would go back up, and it did. So it wouldn't have been a bad investment, but it would have been a lot of headache because there were a lot of break-ins, a lot of squatters, and there was still like a $500 something per month HOA fee that I would have had to pay until I finally uh, flipped it. So I I decided not to get involved. I also wasn't sure how long it would be till the market recovered. I knew there would be some recovery. I just didn't know how fast it would be and when I could get out of it. So I was not buying it to live there. I was going to basically just buy it and hold it, maybe rent it out to someone if it's going to be like a long-term tenant, but I decided not to do it. But where did I go? Couldn't live there anymore. So where did I go in 07? 
Well, I went to the other side of the strip. I went to the west side of the strip. A little bit further away from the strip. But what was good about it is I, I could get to and from the Rio in eight minutes. So it was very nice on breaks, on dinner breaks, that is, where I could really go home and have dinner at home and then come back to the Rio and just make it to and from the Rio so fast. And because I wasn't hitting strip traffic, because I didn't have to go to the strip, this was very convenient. So I could really get there in eight minutes each way. This other complex was uh, smaller, but also a fairly large complex. It was only two stories. So there was not uh, these four-story buildings. Originally, I got only a one-bedroom. I had a two-bedroom previously. I got a one-bedroom. I forgot why, but I got one-bedroom originally there. And this complex, I had some battles with them. The other one, I didn't really have any battles except for on behalf of this old lady and with that stupid eviction. But this new complex, I had some battles with them. And none of this had to do with my behavior. I, I'm not a disruptive tenant, as you might guess. I, I don't blast loud music. I don't uh, stomp on the floor for the downstairs neighbors uh, driving them crazy. I don't blast the TV really loud. You know, I try to be courteous with all these things. So I am not someone who causes disturbances. And also, I don't go and make a huge pain in the ass of myself and complain about every little thing. So I, I really am not that type of tenant when I am a tenant. However, I do want to always assert my rights, and I don't let myself get screwed. And the problem is, complexes, especially ones run by large companies, or even medium-sized companies, uh, they tend to believe that everybody's an idiot. And they they tend to believe what they say goes, and that uh, they know the law better than you do. And in this case, that was not true. I knew the law, even in Nevada, better than they did. So we ran into some issues there over time. Now, this one had nothing to do with the law, but my first night there at this new complex, I go to sleep and I wake up at like 5 a.m. with this bright light in my face. Maybe 6 a.m., something like that. I think it was the summer. But early in the morning, a bright light in my face. It's the sun. It's the sun just right in my eyes. I go, wait a minute. Did I forget to close the curtains? I, I wake up kind of confused. Where, where, where's this bright sun coming from? And then I look up and there's a little window high up that doesn't have any curtains. I didn't realize it was there. Because I'd closed all the curtains and the, and the blinds, or whatever it was in the place. But there was a little window at the top that was kind of shaped like an oval that was so high it was hard to even reach. And it had no kind of blinds or anything else blocking it. And I'm going, what the fuck? Why do they have this here? Like, who'd want this? I know there's some people out there that like waking up to morning sunlight, but I'm not one of them. I don't like being awakened by bright light at any time of the day. I like waking up in uh, yeah, kind of dim light or, or darkness even, and then getting used to the light after I wake up. So I didn't want the sunshine right in my eyes like it was there. So I was like, what the hell? Why would anyone want this? What, what the hell is this window for? So I, I go to the office, or I called the office, I think. 
Yeah, I called it. I didn't go there. I called the office and I said, yeah, I've got a weird question here, but uh, there's this window you guys have high up here and there's no blinds or curtains on it and the sun shines right in. Um, is this like an oversight or something? Can you guys just bring something over that, that I can use to block this even permanently? And they said, what do you mean? I said, you know, the, the high window up there. They said, oh, you mean the eyebrow window? <laughs> I said, the eyebrow window? They say the eyebrow window. Look, it's, it's like a, an oval. It looks like an eyebrow. <laughs> I'd never heard that term before, but they, they called it the eyebrow window. Like, I'm supposed to know what that means. And I said, okay, so what can we do about the eyebrow window? And they said, nothing. The eyebrow window cannot be covered. And I said, what? They said, they, we, we can't, you can't cover the eyebrow window. It's a rule here. I said, why? They said, because we don't have any kind of blinds that would fit it. It's a s- small window. And we think it makes the complex look ugly to have things in the window blocking it. And I said, come on, you can't tell me that I, that I and everybody else in this complex just has to deal with the sun shining in the morning, right? Well, don't worry, you'll get used to it, I'm told. I go, no, I don't want to get used to it. I, I sleep a lot during the day. I do not want the sun shining through the eyebrow window. So they said, well, you know, there is one option we give people who really insist to block it. Uh, you're allowed to block it only with... Uh, something of uh, such and such color. I forgot which color it was, but it has to be a certain color. It has to be a certain shape. And like all these specifications of what I have to do at my own expense and effort. I can't even pay them to do it. I have to like get this thing to block the eyebrow window uh, of certain specifications and it can't be more than certain thickness. And I go, you got to be freaking kidding me. So I said, okay, okay, fine. All right, fine. Uh, I understand. Bye. And so I just, took a, a, an extra pillow I had and stuffed it in the eyebrow window and that blocked it. And it was totally violating what they told me that I could do with it, but I said, fuck them. I said, if they ever complain, then I will tell them that their demands are unreasonable and that I had to do what I had to do to block the eyebrow window. So that was my first little incident there was the eyebrow window. They, they never said anything. They never caught the eyebrow window. They never caught me, what I did. I got away with it. But then uh, came some other things. So remember, I got this place in 07. I think yeah, maybe like August, something like that. What happened in 08? Well, we just discussed it. The real estate crash. Now, why would that affect me? I, w- I didn't buy the place. Because it also dragged rents way down. It didn't just knock down the price to buy. It knocked down the price to rent by a lot. So I noticed the rents had gone way down. Now, by this point, I had already moved. I, I, I skipped one thing. I, I moved actually from a uh, that one bedroom to a two bedroom. When a two bedroom became available, I noticed uh, that it was around the same price. So I moved. This is before the crash. I, I moved pretty quickly to a two bedroom. At this uh, two bedroom, I was still pl- paying a lot of money. Not huge money because it's just a regular apartment complex, but I was paying a lot more than the market rates were for this property. But I couldn't do anything because I was on a lease. So that's the way the ball bounces. If you're on a year lease, then if the market rent goes up, then you get the benefit of being on the lower price. And if the rent goes down from like a crash like this, then you're just fucked and you have to wait till your lease is over. So I dutifully waited till the end of my lease. I never complained. 
I paid the inflated rent that was worth much more than the apartment was at the time by the market value, knowing that I'm on a lease and that's just the way life works. But I knew that once the lease was up, I would negotiate with him, that there's no way I was going to renew the lease at that same price. So lease renewal time comes and they send me a letter offering me to renew it at the same price. (laughs) And I thought, nice try, but no. Now they can offer what they want and I can refuse the offer and I can leave. They're not obligated to lower it to market prices. And because it's a fairly big complex, I could look up very easily what the comps were. And I found that the comps for what I was paying were substantially lower in the same units, the same buildings, exact same layout, everything the same. And I was paying like, I think $1,130 before per month. And I believe they were going for like $765. It was that much of a difference in that short of a time. So they were actually having the nerve to reoffer it to me for like $1,130. And I guess maybe they're hoping I'm going to be dumb enough to not notice. But, you know, of course, everybody knew about the real estate crash of 08. It's not like uh, it was a secret. So I strolled into the office and I said, hey, I, I just want to let you know here, uh, you're offering me to renew at an outrageous price. And nobody is paying this 11 whatever for a two-bedroom apartment like this right now, given the way the market is. I, I see what you guys are asking for it on the open market. I looked it right up because you're, you're advertising on the web and I see an apartment identical to mine is like 765 a month. So that's what I want to pay. And they said, no. And I said, what do you mean no? I said, I'm not looking for like new tenant specials here. I'm looking to pay the monthly non-special rate that someone who walks in off the street, probably with much worse credit than me, would get. Nope, we're sorry. We can't lower your rent. Why, I asked? Because it's a violation of federal housing laws. (laughs) And I said, how is this a violation of federal housing laws to lower my rent? And they said, because... Federal housing laws prevent the lowering of rent because of racial discrimination. (laughs) (sighs) No, that's not how it works. So I said to them, okay, you know, I, I don't know if you understand this, but I know a lot about the industry. I know a lot about rental law. What you're saying is complete hogwash. It's not true at all. That's not that's not what fair housing laws are about. Fair housing laws are to where you cannot charge someone more money because of their race or their age or their sexual preference or something like that. So if you were to tell me that uh, I couldn't lower my rent because I was black which of course I'm not, but you know, let's say I was black and they wouldn't lower it because I'm black, they only do it for white people, that would be a violation of fair housing laws. But this has nothing to do with race or age or sexual preference or gender or anything like that. I'm just asking you to lower my rent on our new lease to what is the current market value. Nothing to do with fair housing. They said, well, yes, of course, because what about other people here who don't ask for that that are renewing it at the rate we're quoting? 
then you're going to get a lot better deal than them. I said, right, because I'm aware of it and they're not. And that's the way business works. People who are aware of what's a good deal versus what's a bad deal will always do better than those who are not. That There's nothing illegal about that. You are not required to offer this to everybody who's in the complex, nor am I going to go broadcast this everywhere. But for myself, I only want to pay what the market rate really is. And I overpaid during my lease and didn't complain about it because that's the way business works. But now my lease is over and uh, I'm not going to pay this inflated rate. So they sat there still trying to convince me why they can't do it. And I just kept shooting down every excuse they gave about why they couldn't. And I finally said, look, look, since the housing crash, I've observed what's been happening here. And the quality of the average tenant you're getting has gone down. I'm seeing a lot more fights, a lot more arguments. Uh, You're getting a worse element in this complex than you did before. And I'm sure they have much worse credit. So I'm telling you, I'm not going to pay one penny more than what the market rate is. I see what you're offering this unit for. I'm not asking for the new new tenant deals of the first month free rent or whatever, but I am asking to pay the same going forward what these new people will pay. And if you can't give me the market rate, it's very simple. Then I will take my business elsewhere and I will go rent somewhere else at the market rate and then you will replace me with someone at the market rate. So it's not like you're going to replace me with someone who's going to pay 11 whatever. You're going to replace me with someone who's going to pay 765. So all you're going to accomplish by running me out like this is you're going to replace me with someone who has worse credit, who might be a behavior issue, and you're going to wish I was back here. So you, you can do it. You can t- refuse and I can leave, but you're not going to like what replaces me. And you're not going to make a penny more. And you know it. But if you want to play chicken and you want to tell me you won't do it, I will leave. I promise you I'll leave. Even if you tell me you're going to offer me $20 more than market rate, I'm still going to leave. You're going to give me market rate or I leave. Bottom line. So the manager kind of sat there and she didn't know what to say. She, she knew I just wasn't going to budge. So then she told me the truth. She didn't have the power to offer this, that she was commanded from above that they can't lower anybody's rent because they knew people would come ask and uh, she has orders from above to not allow this, but that she also understands everything I said, and she does see that they probably will replace me with someone paying 765 and they may get someone with worse credit or worse behavior. So she says, you know, your points here are fair. I will bring this up to the upper management and see what they say. And I said, okay, but remember, even $1 more, I'm not staying. <laughs> so they called me the next day. And they said, upper management has approved your new rent of seven sixty-five a month. So I said, good, good. Then I uh, said, oh, wait a minute. Um, I'm going to need a new garage because uh, this place didn't have uh, an indoor garage complex like the previous one. So it had these individual garages that you'd park in your individual little garage unit and then close it. It was an automatic opener, but you, it was an individual little garage unit that would just fit one car, and then you'd close it, and then you'd walk outside and, and, and go to the uh, apartment. So you, you wouldn't stay 
you wouldn't be able to go directly from the garage to the apartment, but it was like an individual garage for your car. So I uh, said, you know, I'm going to need a new garage here because I'm uh, moving. See, I also moved units. I moved from first to second floor, like the identical unit. But I had to move buildings as well. And I said, I need a new garage that's going to be across here. So uh, what they ended up doing was uh, they gave me some deal on the garage where I paid like a slightly higher base rent, but that the garage was included for free. So overall, I saved even more money because had I paid for the garage individually like I was before, it would have come out more per month. Okay, so that was actually written in the lease that I pay this much per month. I think it was like 785 instead of 765, but I get I get a, a garage for free. And it said it right there in the in the lease. Okay? So I went on a vacation at some point, maybe like a year later, and I came back from the vacation and I opened up my garage to pull my car in. And I see something that makes me think that I might be in the twilight zone. Because I opened up the garage and it's late at night, so I can't see very well. But I open up the garage, and I see a bunch of furniture. I even see a mirror in there. I see boxes. I see a bunch of stuff that shouldn't be there. And I'm expecting an empty garage, an empty little individual garage that I can pull my car into. Was I in an alternate universe where somebody else had this garage? Like, I was able to open it with my opener. It was in the same location of my garage, but there's somebody else's stuff and even a freaking mirror in the back. (laughs) What is going on? How could this have happened in this short of a time? Now, I think I was gone for about a month, so it wasn't a super short time. But still, like how in a month, like I took a road trip with my girlfriend for a month, but how in that time did my garage become somebody else's garage like what the hell so i said all right i'll park my car just in a regular spot i guess and i will uh call them up in the morning so i called them up in the morning and i said what's going on here well they were acting real weird real strange at the office and the assistant manager said meet me outside the garage right now can you? I go, yeah. Okay, meet me right now. So I I went down and I stood in front of the garage and I opened it up and I showed her and she said, can I see the opener? I go, "Uh, okay. So I hand her the opener and she swipes it from me (laughs) and then she says, I'm going to need to keep this. I said, what? Why are you taking my garage opener? She's like, "Um, there's been a mistake here. Um, I need to keep this opener to keep this stuff secure and uh, we will get this fixed within a few days for you. So I said, what, what happened? I can't tell you. I just, I need to take your opener. We will fix this. We apologize. So we'll get back to you in a few days. I'm going, what the hell happened here? So I, I ended up speaking again to that same manager who tried to not let me renew at a discounted rate. And by this point, she was getting kind of tired of me because like whenever they tried to pull anything on me that was against the law, or when they tried to quote fake laws that didn't exist, like the fair housing thing that they couldn't lower my rent. Like I was the only one smart enough in that whole complex to call them on it. So they were tired of like never being able to get anything by me. So they knew that I was not going to like let this go. So 
I went to her. I said, what happened here? Like, how is this possible? This is my garage. And she said, well, you weren't using the garage. I said, I am using the garage. I just wasn't using it for the past month because I was on vacation. And she said, well, you weren't using the garage for the past month. I said, yes, but why would you even know that? Like, are you opening up my garage to inspect it? Like, you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to go in my garage. And she said, well, to be honest, there was a mistake. There was a mistake where because you were getting your garage for free, we somehow didn't have it down in the system that it was actually being used. So when someone was renting this garage for $45 a month and needed a garage, we assigned him the first available one, which was yours. So we apologize for that. The reason that the assistant manager swiped that opener from you was just to protect this guy's stuff so he could come down and get it. We didn't want anything happening to it, and we didn't want you having access to it because it's not your stuff. But um, he's coming down to get it very shortly, and we will uh, then give you your garage back and everything will be fine. I said, well, everything isn't fine. And she said, why? I said, well, first of all, I was out of, I'm out of my garage for a few days here, but there's a second problem. And she said, what's that? I said, the second problem is that you collected $45 to rent out my garage. <laughs> and she says, oh, no, 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 no. It's, it's going to go back to you. We're having the guy clear out his stuff. We may even have it back for you tomorrow. So you're only going to be out like two days here. So what's your concern? Why, why do you care about that $45? I said, because this was my garage. This was rented to me. And she said, no, we gave it to you for free. This wasn't rented to you. I said, uh-uh-uh, it was rented to me. This was part of my rental agreement. You didn't give this to me out of the goodness of your heart. You charged me a little bit more rent to give me this garage and then included the garage as part of the whole package. And she said, yeah, but you weren't paying the whole 45 I said, I said, it doesn't matter what I was paying. The bottom line is I was renting this garage on the same lease as renting the unit all as one payment. So this is my garage for as long as I'm renting it. And you cannot re-rent this to somebody else and collect money for it. I said, you know what? I should be collecting money for this. That's what I want. I want you to give me $45 back that you collected from this guy to rent my garage. <laughs> and they told me that I was insane, that I can't ask for that. I said, of course I can. They said, this was a mistake. It was an accident. And I said, that's fine. I'm not looking to get damages from you. I'm saying that you took my garage that was my legal right to either use or not use because they kept saying I didn't use it for the past month, so it's fine. I said, no, if I want to leave it empty, if I want to rent this garage and just leave it empty the entire time, that's my right. I can do whatever the hell I want with it that doesn't break the law or break the lease. So as long as I do not break any terms, I can leave it empty as long as I want. It is not up to you to compel me to use the garage, just like you could not rent out my unit if I just leave it sitting empty for some time. And, and go on vacation or whatever. I go, just as ridiculous as it would be for you to rent out my unit for the month I wasn't there on vacation, it's just as ridiculous to rent out my garage, even on accident. So I understand how it happened, but you collected $45 for my garage, so I want that $45. And they said, absolutely not. So we, we got an argument back and forth. And I said, look, again, you rented my garage and collected $45 from it. So the 45 should go to me. Why should you collect that? Why should this go to you? You got to rent out an extra garage that was mine. So they kept saying, well, I didn't need it. I go, that's not up to you. Once again, 
you used my garage, and it's not like there was no inconvenience to me because, yeah, I tried to use it, and I found a bunch of other guys' stuff in there, <laughs> and then I had to not use it for, for these few days while you're clearing it out, and this whole weirdness with them swiping the opener from me, this wasn't like with no trouble either, but I'm not even looking to get money from that. I just, I just want the money that this guy paid you. Furthermore, I, I discovered that uh, this guy threw away this blanket I had in there because I had a blanket that was on the side, so when I opened the driver's door, it didn't bang against the concrete wall and dent my car. So this guy saw my blanket there and assumed it was trash and threw it away. I don't blame him for that. I would have done the same thing. But I had this uh, L.A. Dodgers blanket that got uh, thrown away, which I liked. Kind of sucky. I lost my L.A. Dodgers blanket. But they threw away my L.A. Dodgers blanket. And uh, I asked them to pay for that, too. I, I asked them for $20 for the Dodgers blanket. So I demanded $65, and again, they had to go to upper management, and they ended up backing down. They told me to deduct 65 for my rent, so I won. Because I told them, I said, you know, if this went to court, you'd lose this. You cannot re-rent my garage. Then there was one other thing that happened. Well, two other things that happened. One of them wasn't to me, though. One of my friends, who was a poker player, but most of you don't know him, but he's a poker player, and... Uh, he was actually renting there, and I recommended the place to him. And he had a Mercedes. And he calls me up, and he says, something shitty just happened. It was a really obnoxious sticker that's stuck to the driver's side window. And I can't get it off. And I imagine when I take it off, it's going to have all this residue, and I'm going to have to have this professionally removed, and it's going to cost me a bunch of money. And the sticker was put there by the complex that I'm in violation in my parking. I said, well, why would they do that? Were you not in your own spot? He said, no, no, I was in my own spot. I said, were you encroaching on one of the other spots? No. I said, what was the problem then? You're parked in your assigned spot and you weren't encroaching on other spots and you weren't sticking out, right? He said, right. I said, then why do they feel you're in violation? He said, well... The tag on my car said it expires in September 09, whatever it was, and uh, today is October 1st. <laughs> I said, huh? He said, yeah. Technically, it is a rule here that if you do not have current tags in your car, it's considered an abandoned vehicle and they can tow you. So first of all, he said, it's a good thing that I happened to come down here because they gave me 48 hours to rectify this. So he said he sometimes went days without leaving his house because he would uh, just kind of sit home and play online poker all day and wouldn't even uh, get in the car and leave. This happened to be one of the days he did get in the car and he saw that thing on the driver's side window. So he said, some days there are 48 hours that passes where he doesn't go down to the car. So he was happy at least he caught that. Otherwise, they would have towed him. But he said he couldn't believe they're doing this. And additionally, he can't get the damn sticker off and it's going to cost him money to professionally remove the sticker because he can't just pull it off without uh, causing a lot of uh, sticker residue all over the, the driver's side window. And I said, that's crazy. I said, well, do they, like, why are they doing this, like, on October 1st? Like, they're not giving you the slightest bit of grace period? They know this isn't an abandoned vehicle. It's not like they're seeing a vehicle with a tag from last year. This is, like, a, a day later. 
So he actually found out the answer to this one. I was unaware of why they would do this, but I found out through him because he happened to be dating a girl at, at the time who was a manager of a different complex in Vegas. And this girl filled him in. She said that this is a big scam at Vegas apartments, that what they do is that shady tow truck companies approach these complexes and say, we will patrol your lot and we will tow all unauthorized vehicles, ones that don't have the proper uh, parking pass displayed, ones that are in the wrong spot, and ones that are abandoned. And by abandoned, it means they don't have current tags, even if the tags are just one day expired. And that they will tow all these cars, and they will do it for free. And in addition, they might give, uh, I don't know, a little kickback to management for allowing this. So not only is it a free towing service, it is a towing service that the employees at the office get paid to allow to happen. And this woman told my friend that this is very common throughout Vegas and that this is clearly what's going on here. That kickbacks are being given to the office and that's why the office is not cooperating when he's complaining about it. That's why they're not telling him this won't happen again or offering to pay to get the sticker off his windshield or apologizing. And that's why they're such hard asses about the tags because they have to allow the tow truck companies to tow these cars as they want to and to the very, very letter of the law that allows them to in order to get their kickbacks. And the way the tow truck company makes money, of course, is that people have to go down and retrieve their car and pay a shitload of money to get their car out. That almost happened to him, too. So he went and even confronted them and said, hey, I know what you, what's going on here. And they still gave him the middle finger. They still said, nope, we're not taking kickbacks. We have it right there in the lease that any car that is parked without current tags is considered abandoned. Yours is considered abandoned. Be happy it didn't get towed. And so, no, we're not paying to remove the sticker. So I think he told me it cost him like 7500 bucks to get that sticker professionally removed to where it didn't damage his uh, window. And I told him to play hardball with them and to threaten to sue them over this, but uh, and also to publicize this on the internet, but he didn't. I even offered to help him out. I said, I'll come down with you. I said, they're afraid of me by this point. <laughs> They they know that I always have the goods when I come down. But he said, no, 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 don't do it. I don't want to make waves. So, all right. He had it his way. But that was shady. Never happened to me, but wow. By the way, it couldn't happen to me because I had a garage. And they couldn't get in my garage. I guess other people can get in my garage, but they couldn't. Final thing that happened at that complex. Then we'll be done with apartment talk. So in 2012, I left there. And I uh, fully gave up my Vegas apartment there. I had a kid by that point, And my kid was not being raised in Vegas. So it was time to be done with the apartment. So at the end of my lease, I told them that I'm not going to be renewing. I told them uh, more than a month in advance that I'm going to be leaving. And they said to me, Okay, well, we're going to send you 
our 30-day notice form to fill out. I go, uh, okay. So they sent it to me. And this 30-day notice form was a pre-printed form that I was to fill out and sign. And in Nevada, they are allowed to charge you a cleaning fee up front, which you can't do in California, but Nevada does allow, by law, uh, apartments to charge you a non-refundable cleaning fee for when you move out. No matter how clean you leave it, the, they have a right to keep it. Unlike in California, where if, if you leave it as clean as you got it, they cannot charge you by law. So I knew that, and I wasn't going to argue with that, because I, I know, you know the law is the law, even if I don't love it. So I paid my, what, $200 cleaning fee or whatever it was at the beginning. But they wanted me to sign a paper promising that I was going to leave the unit clean or they're going to charge me. <laughs> Like, oh, I'm so tired of arguing with them, but okay, I'm, I'm not letting this happen. So I brought the form down to the office and I said, I'm not signing this for a few reasons. I said, number one, I'm going to write my own 30-day notice. It is not required by Nevada law for me to fill out your form. All I have to do is give you a 30-day notice that I'm leaving, which I'm going to give you. So I will provide you that notice before 30 days. I will type it up on my own computer. And all it's going to say is I'm leaving on such and such date, which is 30 days from now. That, that's what you're going to get. You're not going to get any further promises or anything else there because I don't need to. And they said, no, you have to fill out our form. I said, no, I don't. Show me the law that says I have to fill out your form because I could show you a law that shows you I don't. <laughs> so they're like, okay, fine, fine. Yeah, fill out your own form, but uh, uh, whatever. And I said, well, no, no, one more thing here. Uh I see that you are requiring me for me to leave it clean. They say, well, of course. If you don't leave it clean, we're going to charge you. I said, no, you've already charged me. You charged me when I moved in, 200 bucks cleaning fee. They said, no, that's a preparation fee. I said, what do you mean a preparation fee? They said, well, it's a preparation fee so we can do touch-ups and do other uh, little work in there. I said, no, it, it was, I cl- clearly signed something having to do with cleaning. Maybe it said cleaning and preparation, but it definitely said cleaning. They said, well, yeah, but it's mostly preparation. I said, look, here's the bottom line. If I have paid you a non-refundable fee for cleaning for when I move out, then I'm not going to leave it clean. I'm not going to purposely leave it dirty. I'm not going to purposely muddy up the place before I go, but I'm, I'm sure as hell not going to clean or pay someone to pay to clean if I've already paid to clean. And now you're going to make me pay a second time if I don't leave it clean. So n- number one, you're, you're not going to charge me a second cleaning fee. I'm not going to clean, and you are going to clean because I already paid a cleaning fee. And if you don't like that, refund my cleaning fee, and then I will leave it clean. But you're not going to be able to charge me twice or force me to clean when you've already charged me to clean. And I said, second of all, again, I'm not filling out a form promising anything because they, they wanted you to promise all this other shit too, and I refused. I said, I'm just going to give you a notice, a handwritten, a, a, a typed up notice, not handwritten, but typed up notice stating I'm leaving on this date, and that's it. So they still wanted me to promise things on there. I said, nope absolutely not happening. I'm going to give you that form and nothing else, and you better not charge me for cleaning. Goodbye. So I did that. I I gave them the 30-day notice as required by law, saying nothing about anything else but when I was leaving. And I did not clean, but I didn't leave it exceptionally dirty. It just wasn't all that clean. It didn't look like a maid had just been there. It didn't look like a a pigsty. And I left, and uh, nothing was damaged. So I didn't have to worry about that. I expected to get my security deposit back. 
A few weeks later, I get only a... Not only don't I... Actually, a few weeks later, not only don't I get my security deposit back, which was pretty small. It was a very small security deposit. I forgot how much, but like not much money. I think because I had good credit, but whatever. Not only didn't I get my security deposit back, but they were asking me to pay money for cleaning. (laughs) But wait, there's more. I was also charged $12 for pictures they took of my unit. (laughs) So I called them up and I said, okay, we got a problem here. First of all, we've already discussed this cleaning fee situation. And second, why are you charging me for pictures? And they said, well, we had to take pictures of everything in your unit, and we have a right to charge you that, because that's uh, part of the expense that we incur when we're turning over units. So if we see there's dirt, if we see there's anything we have to take pictures of, we charge you for the pictures. I said, okay, well, that's fine. But uh, I also took pictures of the unit, and I took more pictures than you did. I spent $100 taking pictures, so you actually owe me 88 <laughs> I, I really told them that because I was sick of this shit by this point. And they tell you, so the, the woman's telling me this is ridiculous. You know, she, you know, why am I not being serious here? And I said, well, no, you see how absurd this sounds. You could take unlimited pictures. I mean, you could take a million dollars for the pictures. I mean, I owe you a million dollars. You can't just decide to take pictures and charge me. Taking pictures is part of your cost of doing business. You can take them all you want, but you cannot charge me for your pictures. Second, we've already discussed the cleaning fee situation. Now they tried to insist that uh, some such and such thing was was broken there, and uh, they, they were trying to claim that some of the charges that they were hitting me were, were valid, and they, they tried to claim that uh, there was a stain on something. And I did remember there was a stain on the carpet from me spilling something, so they were right about that part. Anyway, I told them this. I said, okay, I am willing to give up this small security deposit I left you because I do remember the stain on the carpet. There was like a second stain they were claiming claiming I left, which I didn't really remember, but I thought maybe it was possible that I just forgot it. And uh, then they were claiming that uh, I broke something there, which I didn't really think I broke, but uh, whatever. I said, how about this? How about we just call it even? You don't send me anything back and I don't send you. And they said, no. And I said, okay, this is the way it's going to be. I'm tired of this shit. If you try to pursue this, number one, not only am I taking you to court, but I'm going to spread the word among all the people in the poker community that you guys rip people off here. I know about your towing scam. I'm going to tell the story about this thing with a rent you tried to pull on me and the thing with my garage. I mean, I have a lot of things to tell that make you guys look shady. I don't want to do this, but but I, as you see, I've, I've referred some people here. I've referred various people to live here, and not only am I not going to do this anymore, but I'm also going to make sure nobody ever comes here and knows that you try to rip people off all the time. So we can either just like walk away amicably, and, and just I won't pay you, you don't pay me, and you keep my deposit that what little I gave you, and I don't send you anything or. Uh, not only am I going to sue you for this, but I'm going to spread the word about all this shit that I went through here. So they thought about it and said, okay, fine. 
we'll we'll drop it. So that was that. <laughs> but how many times would I have been screwed there if I didn't know my rights? So it really makes me think about the average tenant, not just in Vegas, but everywhere, how often they get fucked by landlords who count on people being ignorant of the law. And by the way, there's some real shitty tenants out there. So I don't want to make all landlords sound terrible because there's a lot of shitty tenants out there who are career scammers, deadbeats, people who don't take responsibility for the damage they cause, people who are in uh, denial about the condition they left the unit, people who are entitled who think that uh, they deserve a lot more as a renter than they really should. So there's a lot of terrible tenants out there that landlords have to deal with. And landlords get fucked routinely by crappy tenants and scammers. So there's a narrative out there that landlords are all greedy and tenants are just all victims, and that's not true. But there are a lot of shitty landlords out there, even big companies that just screw people and and think that the average person is not going to know the difference. And for some reason, at this particular complex, they were really big on that. And but even the one, I, the first one I was at, even though this didn't affect me, they they really tried to screw this poor old lady with all that noise and wouldn't move her until I came down there with her and asserted her rights for her. So those are the stories of uh, Druff versus uh, Las Vegas apartment complexes. <laughs> if you have any questions, and I, I don't know most states' individual laws, so if it's not California or Nevada, I can't help you as much, but there's a lot that's pretty universal. But if you have any questions, if you're renting something and you want to know your rights in a certain situation, feel free to text me, 775-372-8355, and I'll be glad to help you. Because I know a lot about this stuff. And you'd be surprised how many uh, landlords, even very large landlords, will screw people. I won't go into it now, but when I was uh, renting university housing when I was in college, the state-owned complexes were breaking the law. And I caught it. And they tried to deny it. And I said, look, you want me to bring in the the code? I can bring in the the state code on this. And they backed down. So it was amazing. I'm like, wow, I I can't believe you're a freaking state-owned complex and you're trying to cheat me. You're trying to break the law. You're trying to break state law when the state owns you guys. What the hell? So don't just assume that because it's a large company that they know what they're talking about. There's a lot of abuses going on. So if, if you have any questions about your rights with anything, I'll be glad to help you. I've helped uh, many friends over time get what was uh, really their rights as a tenant. So just uh, if you got any questions, uh, let me know. I'm not going to help you rip off any landlord or screw anyone. But uh, if you're the one getting screwed, I'll be glad to give you some advice and tell you what you can say to the limit of my knowledge, which is more in California and somewhat in Nevada, but as I said, I can probably give you some advice in other states too. So that's Druffy Time Theater this week, the exciting saga of Druff versus apartment complexes. Remember, you can text me anytime about anything else. From the 702, regarding tow truck issues, didn't you talk about an issue that you had in Vegas on the Strip? Yes. Now, that's not related to any apartment complex, and I've told this story before, and I won't tell the whole story again now, but yeah, uh, there was a situation on the Strip where a mini mall 
was contracted with one of these shady tow truck companies to hide and had specialists to get people's cars up on the truck and out of the lot within less than five minutes. And anybody who'd park on the strip and even take a short walk out of that complex, they would get that car out of there so fast and you'd owe them over 200 bucks to get your car back. And it took me many, many months, but I beat this place, as I've told in a previous show. I think I'm the only person in history to beat them. And I didn't have to go to court. Anyway, tow truck companies are universally shady. And a lot of them were, and maybe still are, working with these uh, Vegas complex managers and getting kickbacks and screwing residents. All right, so moving on. I want to talk about the DOJ and Steve Wynn. Now, Steve Wynn has fallen upon hard times lately. Not only is he losing his vision, and has been for a while, but Steve Wynn also was in a big sexual harassment scandal and eventually was forced out of control of his own property. So Steve Wynn definitely doesn't have the status and prestige that he once did. But I bet something that you never thought about Steve Wynn was that he was a secret agent for a foreign government. There's a man who leads a life of danger. Yes, a man who leads a life of danger. Steve Wynn is accused of being a foreign agent. Not by a tabloid, not by a competitor, not by a woman he sexually harassed, but by the Department of Justice of the United States. Secret agent man, secret agent man, they've given you a number and taken away your name. Yeah, that's a real allegation against Steve Wynn. Now, how's that possible? Steve wins a lot of things, but how, how could he be a foreign agent? And how could the DOJ dare say something so absurd? I mean, if you saw this in the National Enquirer, you'd think it's stupid. Well, here is the story. Steve Wynn is accused of attempting, attempting to lobby Donald Trump on China's behalf without registering as a foreign agent. Now, why would he ever even think of doing this? Why would he care about China? Well, what's controlled by China? That would be Macau. And where did Wynn have properties? Macau. So Steve Wynn is accused of trying to do China's bidding in order to get favorable treatment for his resorts in Macau. The Macau casinos at the time were doing very, very well. In fact, Caesar screwed up big time by not getting properties there, where Wynn did and uh, Sheldon Adelson did. So Wynn actually owned three casinos in Macau, Macau is not uh, technically China, 
but it's considered a special administrative region of China, and China does control it. China knew that Wynne was close to Trump and that Wynne might have some influence over Trump, and they knew that Wynne's Macau properties were important to him. So they kind of asked for his help. There was a Chinese businessman who left China in 2014. Of course, this is before Trump was in office or even running for office. And the Chinese government later charged him with corruption and wanted him shipped back to China. This businessman said to the U.S. that he was being persecuted by the Chinese government and that he wanted political asylum in the U.S., which he was granted. And China was not happy about this, that the U.S. wasn't returning him. I don't know if there really was any corruption or if he just did things China didn't like and therefore the U.S. protected him. But whatever it was, the U.S. was not returning him. So in 2017, which is when Trump took office, remember Trump, he began his term in January 2017, Wynne then uh, contacted the Trump administration and asked them to reverse course on this and to extradite this businessman back to China. Wynne supposedly entered these negotiations at the request of Sun Lijun, who was the vice minister of China's Ministry of Public Security. Steve Wynne didn't just bring this to the administration. He actually made the request directly to Trump while they were having dinner, and then again when they were talking on the phone. Wynne is also accused of engaging in multiple discussions with Trump and with senior officials in the administration and people at the National Security Council in 2017 about organizing a meeting with Sun Lejeune regarding this Chinese national. So basically, he was trying to get them to at least listen to Sun Lejeune after they had told Wynne himself, sorry, ain't happening, we're not returning him. In a statement last week, Assistant Attorney General Matthew G. Olson of the DOJ said that uh, Wynne needed to register as a foreign agent for what he was doing. He said, where a foreign government uses an American as its agent to influence policy decisions in the U.S., it gives uh, American people the right to know. Now, what is he talking about? He's talking about what's known as FARA, FARA, the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Now, that doesn't mean that you're a secret agent man. That doesn't mean you're a spy. That means you're actually registering with the U.S. government that you are acting on behalf of a different government. That doesn't mean that you're on some other government's side or that you're committing treason. It just means that you are doing bidding for another government and their interests. So they're claiming that for when to do this, for when to go to Trump and try to lobby him to ship back this Chinese businessman that they said was corrupt, that for him to do this, this made him a foreign agent, and that he had to register as a foreign agent prior to doing this. They also claim that the DOJ had asked him 
for four years to register as a foreign agent, and he wouldn't do it. So they weren't just surprising him with, hey, you should have done this, we're uh, coming after you. They claim that for four years they've been asking Wynn to register as a foreign agent, and he won't do it. Now, what was the motivation, aside from having three properties in Macau, what was the possible motivation at the time to go do this? Well, the Macau government had placed a limit on the number of gaming tables and slots that Wynn could operate in Macau. Furthermore, they were going to be renegotiating their license in 2019. Now, they didn't know he was going to step down as chairman of Wynn Resorts because of the sexual harassment stuff, because that hadn't happened yet. But at the time, Wynn was uh, of the belief that he was going to need Macau's permission to maybe get some more... uh, slots and gaming tables in the three casinos he had there and apparently he was afraid that if he did not play ball with trying to ask trump for this favor at their request that they were going to refuse to increase this number of tables and uh, slots when he uh, renegotiated the license in 2019 so the belief was that he was trying to do them a favor they wanted and then would get better treatment when 2019 rolled around. Now, this is just uh, an assumption here, but that's what some believe, and that's what the DOJ believes. This is a civil lawsuit, by the way. He's not being charged with any crime, but he is being sued by the DOJ for failing to register as a foreign agent. This is the first civil lawsuit of its kind under FARA, since the late 1980s. So they don't do this very often. Now, what are they suing him for? What can happen to him if he loses the lawsuit? Well, it's not clear. Right now, the DOJ wants the uh, a federal court to order Wynn to submit a true and complete registration statement and other relief as the court may deem just and proper. So that could really be anything. It could be just requiring Wynn to finally register as a foreign agent and state everything he did, or it could be that plus some kind of penalty. It's possible there won't be any kind of penalty. It's possible they will not even end up requiring him to do this. Wynn would not give a direct statement regarding the situation. He's 80 years old now, by the way. He's definitely not a young guy. Wynn's lawyers made a statement They said Steve Wynn has never acted as an agent of the Chinese government and had no obligation to register under FARA. We respectfully disagree with the DOJ's legal interpretation of FARA and look forward to proving our case in court. That was from Eric Tucker quoting Wynn's lawyers. Eric Tucker works for the Associated Press. It was also said that Steve Wynn is exercising his rights as a private citizen is no longer providing statements nor taking interviews. Now, keep in mind, he may, have this, he may have made this decision a while back when they were wanting statements from him regarding all the uh, sexual harassment stuff. Pretty interesting, though. I don't think much is going to really come of this. This kind of seems more like something Wynn just doesn't want to do. I think he doesn't see himself as an agent of the Chinese government, so he does not want to declare that he is one. He doesn't want that to be 
a stain on what remains of his legacy. Steve Wynn, who was a Vegas Strip hotel pioneer, sexual harasser, and Chinese foreign agent. (laughs) I see why he doesn't want that officially on the record by his own admission. So that's probably why he didn't want to do it. It's not like asserting that was going to put him in prison or anything. He just didn't want that to be something he asserts about himself. He didn't believe it to be true. So I will give you any updates on this that I see. I don't know how long this is going to take to go through court, but it looks like the DOJ is pressing with this. And I know I said earlier that the DOJ usually wins, but th- this is different. This is a civil suit and something they haven't tried in over 30 years. So I'm not talking about a criminal case where they usually don't bring them unless they're pretty sure they got the goods. This is something kind of new they're trying. Also, if you think this isn't political, then you're wrong because the DOJ is often a very political office, even though it shouldn't be, it is. And that's true for both parties. The DOJ under Republican administrations is partial towards Republicans and especially harsh on Democrats and it's vice versa when Democrats are in power. So right now, the DOJ is answering to the Biden administration. And since Steve Wynn is a Republican and a donor to Trump and a friend of Trump's, they are probably having a good time picking on him. That's just the unfortunate nature of the way the DOJ operates now. I'm not saying I agree with what Wynn did, if this is really all true. It is kind of messed up that he'd be trying to push for them to return a Chinese businessman who really may be someone who's being persecuted by the government. I mean, you know how the Chinese government is, so just because they say this guy's corrupt doesn't mean he's really corrupt. And there's a reason the U.S. gave him political asylum. And keep in mind, the political asylum was not given by Trump. This was given by the Obama administration in 2014. This guy wasn't even returned. So it's not even like Trump said, okay, sure, take him back. They told Wynn, sorry, we can't do it. Caller, you on the air. Hey, Todd. I just texted earlier. I was hoping you might help me out. I uh, I don't know if you probably haven't got my text yet. Uh, We're in Boston. Son's graduating Harvard this weekend, this morning, actually. Class of 2020, um, staying at uh, Encore Boston Harbor. Way, way overpaid for uh, Encore. Being Memorial Day weekend, lots of graduations in Boston this weekend. So last night, about midnight, we're sleeping. Got to be up early this morning to get to graduation. <clears throat> Toilet overflows. Um, running out in the floor. Uh, obvious, apparently, the room upstairs b- above us had put way too many bubbles in the bubble bath <laughs> so when they started draining it, it drains into the floor in my bathroom okay out of the toilet bubbling out of the toilet bubble bubbles everywhere in the bathroom. weird so bubbles are coming out of the toilet that's strange yeah oh yeah it was very strange smell good didn't smell like poop but so anyway uh called maintenance they were very good they got here very quick uh got it cleaned up fairly quickly maintenance came in Housekeeping came in, the whole nine yards, got it cleaned up, probably an hour. You know, we're up from probably uh, 12.15 to 1.30, you know, for this happening. Got to get it very early this morning for graduation. We're on the East Coast. So I paid about 600 bucks a night for this room. Um, stayed three nights, but I paid through Priceline. 
So what are my options as far as getting a little bit back from, I know you're the king, you're the master, getting a little bit back from Priceline? Okay, Un- from- unfortunately, this is a big disadvantage of Priceline. This is actually why I don't use them anymore, because mm-hmm. when you use Priceline, right. unfortunately, because it's prepaid and because you're not dealing with the right. company that you're actually staying with, uh, the mm-hmm. pl- the hotel that you stay at, if there's any problem, you're, you're never going to get any kind of concessions. At best, maybe you'll get something in the future where... They'll let you stay a night for free or something uh, because this happened. But not only do they not give you any adjustments if there's a problem, but they will often give you the worst room in the house, and you'll have very little say on that as well. So that's why I really stay away from Priceline, and I discovered these things the hard way by using it myself a lot in the mid-2000s. But anyway, putting that aside here, you might be able to call Priceline and lodge a complaint that the room was uh, unsatisfactory because it had these plumbing issues that occurred in the middle of the night and you didn't get your money's worth and you can note that you were playing you were paying an extremely infl- inflated price so that makes it even more frustrating right. that after all the money you spent that you, you couldn't even get a, a regular night of sleep because of plumbing issues and that the hotel is not able right. to give you any kind of credit because this is Priceline uh, purchased and can they do anything so that's now did you name your own price is that how you did it no, I didn't. I didn't. I did the uh, just. I just found the uh, found the price that they had for the room. Okay, so you you know what you may have more you may have more more uh, power than you think. Priceline changed that after I stopped using them. Where there's two ways to book rooms. You can just do it where you, you click through and do it through them, right. which I, I still wouldn't recommend. You should always do it through the property, but you can do the do it by right. clicking through and booking there, or you can do the name your own price thing. Now, if you do the name your own price thing, then you're screwed in the way I described. Here, the way you did it, they're probably more like a travel agent than actually right. a, a wholesaler. Right. Exactly. So you may actually want to call Win and before Priceline, mm-hmm. and you may want to call Win and ask for a property manager and, don't, and do it during business hours. Don't do it like right now. Right now it's 520 Eastern where you right. are. So sure. so you, you want to do it Monday through Friday, I'd say uh, between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. And, and ask for a property manager and just explain like the way you said it to me that, that you paid way more than market rates because of Memorial Day weekend and that uh, you thought, okay, at the very least, I know I'm getting a nice room and everything's going to go well. And right. on the worst night possible, you had a plumbing problem that took over an hour to fix and that this was very disappointing. Sure. And because you paid this much overall, because you had three nights, you may actually get them to adjust something uh, because they're still collecting a lot of money from you. Now, the disadvantage is you've right. already paid. So once you've already paid and you say, give me money right. back, uh, there's often a big middle finger provided. In fact, I helped a friend who had an issue at... Uh, a Vegas property and and had already paid and I called up after the fact and and tried to negotiate for them to get some money back and and they they were pretty difficult. I eventually got them to do it, but they uh it was a lot harder than had I, I done it before they left. So uh this this will be a challenge because they're already holding your money and they have to give it back to you. But uh that's why you need to speak to someone and make sure that they're 
in management there. It doesn't have to be the property manager, but make sure it's someone who's fairly mm-hmm. high, not just a front desk employee. And if they say no, then say you want right. to speak to someone higher. Say when when is you know are you the actual general manager the property? They'll probably say no. Well, when are they going to be here, or when is someone above you going to be here? Because okay. I think if you explain it this way and they look at what you paid, I think provided they can give it to you in the way you booked, that you will probably get. Uh, something back, and that—that's what I'd advise you. And you deserve it because, after all the money you paid, uh, even though they didn't anticipate this is going to happen and plumbing problems will just occur, the bottom line is you didn't get what you paid for. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, I knew you. I knew you'd know. I, I was. Uh, you know, it's early. It's still the weekend. Tomorrow's Memorial Day, so you know nobody upper level management will be here. So. Your advice is to wait until maybe Tuesday and try to call one of the managers. Well, hold on. Have Still you checked? Have you checked out yet? Or are you still there? I am. I am. I'm not checking out till in the morning. Oh, 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 oh! No, 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 no. Then I change. I change what my advice is. I thought you already left. I, I was confused. Okay, so if you are still there, definitely handle this before you leave. Hundred percent. So, okay. so I would actually forget calling. Right. I would go down there. And not now again. It's five in the morning. You're going to get the the, the worst right, people right, at five a.m. Right. But but um, and I, I know it's not as good as being down there on a regular weekday. But still, uh, you know, weekends are busy, so they they have some people in power at, at, during normal hours. I would go down to normal hours today. Right. Before you pay anything, before you check out and complain about this, and and I would shoot pretty high because I, I would really play up about how important this day was. You had to be up early. It was the middle right. of the night. Everyone's exhausted. Right. They woke up exhausted. It was you can't believe you're paying this much money. And I mean, be polite about it, but be kind of like frustrated. Like, look at all the sure. money I'm paying, and this happened. Can you do something? Right. And 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 see, like, I mean, you should be able to get several hundred dollars off for this. Is my opinion. Okay. Maybe a night or a half night at least. Yes, yes, something along those lines, and and let them throw it out first. Don't don't say, can you give me this much? Or they may they may have been willing to offer more. So let them throw out something first. If it sounds satisfactory, take it. Uh, but but if they say like here's fifty dollars or something, then say no. It's not the percentage of what I'm paying is too small here. And I think I, I think they'll do it for you. So I, definitely before you pay anything, okay. because you have way more power before you've paid than after you've paid. Okay. All right. Sounds good. All right. Graduation now, getting in the Uber. Thanks, Todd. All right. Well, t- tell your son uh, congratulations, and uh, I hope this works out here. Okay. Thanks, buddy. All right. Bye. I should make this the uh, Consumer Advice Show. I have gotten people thanking me before that taking my advice on things has saved them money or gotten the money back when they otherwise would not have. And I like hearing that. I like hearing that people put my advice to good use. The general rule of thumb is you should get what you're expecting. You shouldn't feel entitled like they owe you all kinds of things that they don't do for other people. But you also should feel like if you're expecting a certain level of service and you don't get it, especially if you're paying a lot of money, then you should speak up and get some money back. Nothing wrong with that. So next topic, there was a hack at MGM Resorts. And there's a good chance that your information was part of that hack. This hack occurred in 2019, but news of this hack is just coming out now. And in fact, the hack was known about back in 2020, but the first concrete information that it really occurred 
has just been found as the information is being sold on the dark web. This story was actually brought to me by uh, a listener, one of our few transgender listeners. We do have uh, at least one transgender listener. And uh, this person brought my attention to this story. So I appreciate that uh, she did this. And uh, I'm always interested in a good hacking story, especially if it involves casinos. That makes it double interesting to me. So this has to do with MGM Resorts International and a database that they had of customer information. The first rumor of this hack broke on July 14, 2020. There was a hacker who went by the online handle of Nightlion, and Nightlion claimed that they stole several databases from the breach monitoring site DataViper, and that one of those databases belonged to MGM Resorts. And they claimed that it contained the personal data of 142 million customers. Now, at the time, Night Lion was selling the data from that breach on the dark web for uh, $2,900. And it was said that the MGM Resorts International uh, database was part of it, but this was never verified. That's why it was not that much of a story. It was reported on some of these hacker blogs. When I say hacker blogs, I mean blogs about hackers, not run by hackers. But it was reported in those type of blogs back in July of 2020, but it was never verified, and it was never actually viewed what data was actually stolen. But for the first time, the data has been shared to download for free. So it's been shared on certain Telegram channels. And this has allowed certain publications to download the data and take a look at it. So now there's no question that not only was this hacked, but now they know exactly what data was obtained. So the researchers that are known as a VPN Mentor looked at this data on May 22nd, 2022. So now we're talking about the past week. And they found four archives of files that had 8.7 gigabytes of data. So that's like uh, a near 9 million bytes or 9 billion bytes of data. Now, I mentioned the 142 million number earlier, but it is believed that there were actually about 30 million people involved. There were 142 million records, supposedly, but either because of duplicate records or because of records that are several records per person for whatever reason, or records that aren't all about individual customers. From the research that was being done at this VPN mentor, they, they haven't exactly figured out the exact number of affected users that had their data breached, but they're right now estimating at 30 million people. That's still a lot. Now, what was in there? Because remember, this is data held by MGM Resorts International, which means uh, if you've ever stated an MGM property, that your data could be in there. So does this mean they have your credit card? Does this mean they know when you stayed at hotels? Might they have access to 
cameras in your room when you took prostitutes up there, maybe even gay prostitutes? Well, fortunately, no. Here's what they have. Full names, dates of birth, phone numbers, email addresses, and postal addresses. So that's it. They do not have credit cards. They do not have data about your stay. They don't know your player's card number. They don't have records on your gambling. So if you're worried that one day your wife's going to get an email about how much you lost at the Bellagio, she's not, at least not from this. So they just got basics on the customers. When they're born, their name, their phone number, their email, and their mailing address. So you may say, okay, big deal. Who cares? Well, I'll agree it's not a huge deal, but it is something. First of all, some people may be able to be fished like this. Now, there can be fake MGM emails sent out to these customers who know that they're MGM customers that will believe it's really coming from MGM and can trick these people into entering information that the hackers can steal. And I'm talking not just the original hackers, but anyone they sell it to and then do bad things with. It also can be used to impersonate people in various ways if either the original hackers or who they sell it to so desire. So what are the issues that you have to watch out for, since there's a very good chance that I am in that hack, that you are in that hack, that most of the listeners to this show are in that hack. Well, first of all, it's pretty obvious if, quote, MGM emails you to be very suspicious of anything you get that's a bit out of the ordinary, anything requires to be clicked on and to log in, or especially to give any kind of credit card info or social security info that they shouldn't be asking for, anything that you think could be a little bit off here, I would be careful. Now, furthermore, if you do get something from MGM, that doesn't mean it's a scam email. It really could be an email from MGM. The good thing is most things they're emailing you about, you can go another way to go find the information. So, Just go to the MGM website and look for whatever they're talking about. And if you click on anything, make sure it is an MGM website. And you can see that by looking at the portion that has the .com or .whatever after it. So, like, here would be a bogus address. mgmresorts.com.greatservers.ru Okay, the reason that's fake is because After the .com, there's a dot instead of a slash. If there's a dot after the com, that means it's it's a fake address. It's it's sending you to a web address that's pretending to be something it isn't. But if it's like mgmresorts.com slash whatever, then it has to be a real address because that is MGM's real website. There's no way that can be faked. So you can look for things like that if you do click on a link. But you should also... If anything even looks slightly suspicious, just go directly to the site itself instead of clicking on links to go do whatever you want to do. That's the first thing. Just be aware of emails. And of course, look for any emails that have uh, bad grammar 
or are asking for something you wouldn't expect them to be asking for, be especially suspicious of that. Also, keep in mind that just because this was fully verified last week doesn't mean that the hackers are going to just take action now. Now, this breach occurred three years ago, and that, and then it was uh, sold two years ago. So it's very possible that whatever would have happened already has happened. In fact, it's less likely things will happen now because now people are aware of it. Of course, a lot of people aren't. Even I wasn't until tonight. But there is more power to this information before it was known that it had been breached. So it's very possible that nothing will happen. Also, be aware if you get any text messages that claims to be from MGM with links to click on or anything else, because again, that could be a trick. So if you're getting something that seems odd that you wouldn't think MGM would send or you're not expecting to be sent, then beware that this could be a result of this hack. Now, one thing you shouldn't worry about is that you're going to be individually targeted. And that's a big myth. That's something that a lot of people erroneously believe about these hacks, is that when their information is obtained, that there's some hacker sitting somewhere in Russia or China who's individually going after you and is going to look at all your emails and is going to look at all your bank accounts and going to steal money from you and charge your credit card and drain your bank accounts. That's not how it works. These are massive hacks. 30 million victims here. Okay? So they don't know about you. They don't care about you. They don't want to know you exist. They don't want to read your email. They're not even going to try to drain your bank account. These are mass actions that might be taken. So yes, there might be some phishing attack that's sent out to all 30 million victims and hope that some percentage falls for it. But that's about it. And it will always have some kind of financial motivation. They're not looking to look up information about you to invade your privacy. That's not the reason for these hacks. Should you change your password? No, this had nothing to do with passwords. This hack was in a backdoor fashion where they got access to a database. They did not get your password. So don't say, oh, better go onto the MLife website and change my password to something really, really hard. No. I mean, you can if you want, but it's not going to do you any good. Furthermore, as I've said this before, having really, really difficult passwords pretty much just makes it difficult on you and nobody else. Because this is the way information is obtained in these backdoor fashions, in these mass hacks. People are not targeting you personally. So people aren't trying to hack your MGM account by just running your email address with billions of password combinations and get through. They're not going to do that. In fact, that wouldn't even work because after a certain number of failed attempts, it'll lock your account. They know that. So you could have a fairly simple password on like MGM MLife and nothing's ever going to happen to you. It's not going to be guessed. No one's going to even try to guess it. The way your information is going to be obtained has nothing to do with passwords. So if you think you're clever making a password like 3-4, lowercase r, uppercase b, hp, ampersand, semicolon, apostrophe, and you say, okay, well, no one's going to guess that. Well, you're right. Nobody's going to guess that, but nobody is going to try to guess your password, period. So you're, you can make your password actually password123, and no one's going to get in your account. It feels weird, but no one's going to get into your account. 
there are some attacks where they will try the same email and password that they got from other hacks when there is a password involved. Now, this one didn't get passwords, so keep that in mind. But in hacks where passwords are obtained, not by trying them, but by getting them out of a database, they will sometimes try other combos in a mass format. They'll try like millions of accounts with email and password combos and see if people use the same password everywhere and get in that way. But again, that's not saved by having complex passwords. You should just have a slightly different password on each site. That'll save you. So there's a lot of false information out there as far as what is good for account security. And unfortunately, a lot of people believe that their account's a lot more secure than they are when all they're doing is inconveniencing themselves. And in reality, you you really have no way to stop these things when these mass hacks are taking place and you have no power to secure these databases because you have no control over them. So that's really how your info is going to be obtained and how info about you will be obtained. And it's in these mass hacks. But the good news is that uh, it's typically not going to be targeted at you since there's so many others who are identical to you and you're no one special. The only exception is if someone were to buy this data that is particularly looking for you. But they're usually not going to because, as you see, it's kind of expensive. It's like $2,900 to buy this. So most people aren't going to pay $2,900 just to get your info out of 30 million people. And, yeah, when you hear that a password's involved, uh, it's good to change your password there. But often when that's discovered, you're forced to change it anyway. You'll get some kind of email that you're being required to change your password because the password was, was part of the breach. So you shouldn't worry too much about this. It kind of sucks that it happened, but... This is getting so commonplace, and honestly, anybody who really wants your name, mailing address, email address, phone number, and date of birth can just go buy it on a public record site for not very much money. So you're really not exposed very much by this. Just thought I should let you know and say know what this is and what it isn't. So we're going to go move on to our next topic here, which is about... A valet. Yes, I've always wondered about valet parking. How safe is it for your car? I mean, we know they could damage your car. They can dent your car. But could your car actually get stolen from a valet? I've always wondered how tough it would be to claim that a vehicle that you actually do not own is yours and then just get it and drive away. Because they're holding your key. And a lot of times you don't have a slip. A lot of times you just say which car you have. So could you somehow trick them into giving you someone else's car and you just drive off with it? Now, I would never try this. I would end up in jail if I did. But I have wondered, is it possible? Well, at Crown Melbourne, which is a casino in Melbourne, Australia, we found out it is possible and it happened. So here's the weird story of what occurred there. A customer at Crown Melbourne was driving a $500,000 McLaren and they actually didn't own the car. It was owned by Honeymoon Car Hire, which is a rental car service. But the driver was visiting the casino and gave it to the valet. 
and a guy decided that he wanted to try to drive this $500,000 McLaren. And they got it at about 3 a.m. on a Sunday morning and were able to trick the valet into giving it to this person. The one who did it was a 43-year-old man, and he was identified and arrested. They had some damage to the interior and the engine. It's not clear exactly how this person pulled it off. Crown is not a new casino. It has been around since 1994, and this particular location has been around since 1997. I don't know how long they've had valet parking, but I have to assume the whole time. But somehow the thief was able to convince the valet to give this $500,000 McLaren to this fake owner. And when the person who actually brought the car there went to go get it, they were told, no, you already drove it out at 3 a.m. And he's like, what? No, I didn't. So they looked it up and saw that the person who got the car then was not him. This was with a ticket system, so I don't know how the guy pulled it off because there was a valet ticket. And it's not clear if the thief had watched the McLaren pull up and targeted that way or he somehow got down to the lot and identified that as the car he wanted to take. I don't think it's a coincidence he took the most expensive car there. Maybe he just got the license plate, maybe by either going down to the lot or just seeing it pull up and then just said, hey, I've got the McLaren license plate, whatever, and I lost my ticket, and they stupidly gave it to him. The company that actually owned the car, Honeymoon Car Hire, is very unhappy with Crown Melbourne and the valet system, which allowed this to happen. They claim that they're going to sue Crown Melbourne unless they pay for some of these damages, or I guess all these damages, the interior, the engine, and I guess if Crown Melbourne doesn't cough up the money, they are going to sue them. I imagine the thief probably doesn't have much money to get from him. That's probably why they're suing the Crown Melbourne and uh, maybe the valet company that is contracted. I don't know if uh, the valet there at Crown Melbourne is the same company as Crown Melbourne itself or if they're outsourcing it. But whatever it is, they're going after Crown Melbourne for it at Honeymoon Car Hire. The way they were able to find this car, number one, it's an unusual car. It's not typically on the road, a $500,000 McLaren. But second, it had a location system to where they could track it. And they ended up finding it in West Footscray, which is west of Melbourne. And as I said, they uh, arrested the driver, who is not named here. I'm not sure how it got damaged. Like, it's one thing to take this on a joyride, but how do you damage the interior? Like, what did he do to the interior? Was he, like, just cutting up the interior? Well, that's really strange. It's the last thing I'd expect to be damaged there. Maybe he spilled something. The engine, maybe, if he was joyriding and overdid it or something. 
and damage the engine. The culprit is uh, charged with theft of a motor vehicle, but he will not be in court until October 17th over this. Crown Melbourne has been pretty embarrassed by this whole thing. A representative said, We take security matters extremely seriously, and we have commenced an internal investigation as a matter of priority. Well, yeah. I think he was just a lazy valet who was talked into bringing up the car. So, hey, of course this is my car. I know the license plate is blah, 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 blah. And uh, looks like this. It's this color. It's a McLaren. I mean, this is mine. And they went and got it. I'm just guessing here. They don't say the way it was pulled off. It is surprising that with a ticket system that they would be this trusting of someone who just claims it's their car. I don't think this was a sophisticated crime. I think someone just kind of guessed they could pull it off and tried. I don't like valet parking for various reasons. And not this. I don't really worry about my car being stolen. I don't like waiting around for them to bring it to me. I don't like the increasing expectation of tips. I feel like I'm either like very much over-tipping for a simple service, or if I tip more what I think is deserved, I feel like they're looking down on the tip and resenting me. So either way, it kind of sucks. I don't like other people driving my car. I don't trust that they won't dent it or damage it in some other way, and I'll have no recourse and no way to prove it. There's just really not much about valet parking I like. In fact, if given the choice to wait 15 minutes for the valet to bring me to my car or to walk 15 minutes to the car, I'll definitely take the walk 15 minutes because when I'm walking the 15 minutes, I know what progress I'm making. I know when I'm going to get there. I know how long I have to walk. When you're waiting, you're just waiting, 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 and you have no idea when it's going to come. And I've had some nightmarish waits for valets before. And some of them were like where they just forgot my car. And I'm waiting, waiting, and I go, where's my car? What? Your car? Yeah, remember? Oh, yeah, we forgot to get that. Sorry. So I've had that before. I've had it where it just takes a long time because they're very busy. I remember one time I went to a dinner at Caesars. And this is before I was ever really staying there. This is like an 07 or something. And I lived in Vegas. But I remember I went to a dinner at Caesars with a bunch of poker players. And they didn't ride with me, the poker players. Or maybe one or two of them did. But whatever it was, it was in my car. And I get there. And like I was being pressured to valet the car. My then-girlfriend was pressuring me to valet it. I think one or two of the other people who were with us like were pressuring me. And like... I was given a hard time. The self-park is so far away and you know, it will be late otherwise. So let's just valet. And I said, look, this is a busy night. I'm afraid it's going to take forever to get the car. And I started objecting and, and nobody would buy it. Nobody was interested in what I had to say about that. And I was guilted into valeting the car. So I did. And we waited like 20 minutes at the end to get the car back. And I was so frustrated. Maybe 25. Like it just took forever. And I said, never again. I'm not, I'm not doing this again. On a busy night, I'm absolutely not valeting the car. In fact, in general, I don't like to valet the car. I'm just not a valet person. In general, I'm kind of more of a serve-myself sort of person. I don't like having others do things for me. I just prefer to do things my way, at my own pace, when I expect to do them, the way I want to do them. I really don't want other people to serve me. 
I don't enjoy it. The waiting's just really frustrating, though. But I do expect to get my car. I don't expect to be stolen. I will say that. Okay, let's move on and talk about the prime social situation. And I had people texting me about this when it was breaking. Major scandal, major, major scandal. Prime social has been cheating people, blah, 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 blah. And I go, you know, maybe, but let's wait. There's a lot of competition in the Houston poker market. A lot of these rooms hate each other. A lot of these rooms really put out a lot of effort to make each other look bad. And Prime Social is one of these rooms that's in this kind of war over there. In fact, Prime Social, I I played it on the show before, they put out like a propaganda video bashing their competitor legends. And some of the things they were saying were probably correct. And I, I have no love for legends there in Texas, and I think there's a lot of shadiness with them. But still... They, they put it out as if it was a neutral piece when it wasn't. It was a piece that was uh, pretty clearly commissioned by Prime Social. So it's things like that that kind of make me doubt when there are stories that are unverifiable about shady things happening in these rooms. Not that I don't believe shady things could be happening. It's just that I think that you have to take all these allegations with a grain of salt until you actually see evidence they've occurred because their competition does have an incentive to exaggerate or make things up. The Houston poker market is also where Johnny Chan's old 88 social had its problems. And those weren't rumor. I mean, that was a real issue where they ran out of money and couldn't pay people. And then it got bought by a new owner who I guess made things right. But anyway, Prime Social is now accused of somehow rigging the game with their automatic shuffler machines. And the one leading these allegations is Joey Ingram, Chicago Joey. Now, Chicago Joey, I don't think he has anything personally against them, though I don't know, maybe he does. And Chicago Joey tries to do these investigations in earnest from what I've seen. I have seen at times where he might over-accuse. I kind of felt like that's what he was doing with America's card room when he was on his rants against them. So he was accusing them of some things. I'm talking about ACR now, not Prime Social. He was accusing them of some very legitimate things like looking the other way with a lot of the botting that was going on there at ACR. But he was talking about super using and other stuff which was not substantiated. And I kind of felt like he shouldn't even bring that in there if he doesn't see real evidence of it. So that might be kind of what's going on here. Now, Matt Berkey also apparently made allegations shortly after Joey Ingram released his video. Matt Berkey's uh, young little buddy, Landon Tease, or Tice, however you say his name, he said he was in those games and would not play them again. But who knows, Landon's like 22, so I don't know how much you can trust him. I'll play you some clips from these. Again, 
these allegations are pretty vague. There's no proof provided. The claims that are being made basically are that there are three automatic shufflers that are used in cash games and that certain players there were just crushing. And that supposedly some of these players were known cheaters from other card rooms that had been banned before. And now they're just crushing it at Prime Social on these tables with automatic shufflers. Now, before I play you any of these clips, I want to discuss these automatic shufflers because this topic has come up before on VegasCasinoTalk.com, which is my other site. That's a sister site to Poker Fraud Alert. I am the full owner of that site as well, VegasCasinoTalk.com. That one has a different focus than Poker Fraud Alert. That Vegas Casino Talk is more about casino gambling and not really much about poker. But there was a subject that was brought up there by a regular poster on Vegas Casino Talk about these shufflers. In fact, this one particular poster claimed that he actually bought one of these shufflers and was able to program it to shuffle the cards whatever way he wanted. I asked this person to give a demonstration to me and he wouldn't because this person's like very private and doesn't want to say who he is. But I think I kind of believe him. Like, I can't be sure. But what I do know for sure is that there are automatic shuffling machines. These are ones that are embedded in the table that can arrange the deck to various pre-selected deck arrangements. So while it's shuffling, it can see the cards it's shuffling and actually arrange them in ways that you indicate you want them to be arranged. Now, you can't just program them to be arranged in the order you want. There's only a few pre-selected options. But for example, you could have it arranged to where it will take a deck that is all mixed up and that it will arrange it like it's a deck of new cards, where it goes ace, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, jack, queen, king, and then again for all four suits arranged in that way. So it could actually take a completely mixed up deck and shuffle it that way, which means it can see the cards it's shuffling and arrange them. So it doesn't take a genius to think, well, if it can do that, then why couldn't it be programmed to shuffle it in any way, including ways where the game could be rigged? And the answer is, Yes, it could. So this has been a concern. Now, I'm not worried about huge card rooms doing this or huge casinos doing this. So I don't think the Bellagio is going to cheat people in the blackjack games this way. I don't think the bike or commerce is going to rig the machines this way. But Indian casinos or small card rooms, you never know. Now, again, these machines are not programmable by the user, and they're especially not tamperable by outsiders. But if you were to get someone with the technical know-how to reprogram these machines, either ones who work for the casino who are technical enough to do it, or hire someone who can, then this definitely could be done. And that's what this person on Vegas Casino Talk was alleging like two years ago that he said was happening at certain indie casinos. That certain indie casinos were buying hacked versions of these automatic shufflers that can see the cards to actually allow 
the operator to shuffle them however they like, and they can specify the exact order things are shuffled, where that's not normally an option that is provided by the manufacturer. It would have to be hacked and modified. Now, this would require access to the physical machine. Again, an outsider can't just walk up with a computer and do this. You actually would have to open up the machine and have physical access. So this would have to be someone working for the casino or hired by the casino to do it. And I'm not exactly sure the mechanism of how it would be done. It may require pulling out a certain chip and reprogramming it or whatever it might be. But still, it can be done. I can believe it could be done. And I believe it probably has been done. And that's why you really have to watch out at small casinos and small card rooms where these automatic shufflers exist. Because you never know if they've been programmed this way. And you could be cheated. And it's very hard for you to prove. Like an Indian casino, they answer to themselves. So you can't just go to the state gaming board and complain. And small card rooms, sometimes you can't complain to anybody either because like the Texas card rooms are not regulated by any kind of gaming board. A Texas card room is no more regulated than your home poker game. I'm not kidding. So there's nobody to complain to. You can't just bring gaming down to examine the shuffler. There's no way you could do that in Texas. So this is theoretically possible. Does that mean it's actually happening? No. It means it's being accused, and you should be aware that something like this can occur. But whether it's actually happening, I don't know. Now, here's Doug Polk, who had to say about this. Keep in mind, he is good friends with Joey Ingram. He also owns, or partially owns, a card room in Texas, though not one in the Houston market, but he's not all that far from Houston. He's in the Austin area. But this is what Doug Polk had to say about it, without naming Prime Social directly. He said, Some general tips and warnings for how to avoid getting cheated with automatic shufflers. The main way you will get cheated in an auto-shuffle game is by someone knowing the order of cards, then having the info transmitted to them, done via phone or earpiece. Well, it doesn't even need that. You can just already know it in advance and have it already provided to you. Like, you could have it right there on your phone to access that you could look up before each hand. You could have a list of the hands. Hand one this way, hand two this way, and you you could just uh, have a list of this without anything being transmitted. He said there's two types of auto-shufflers used in poker, Deckmate 1 and Deckmate 2, both made by the company Shuffle Master. Deckmate 1 is a random shuffle and has no way to know which cards are where. Deck 2 has a camera, Deckmate 2 has a camera, and can sort the cards. And that's correct. That's what I just explained. Because of this, Deckmate 2 will always have the vulnerability to someone being able to sort the cards and or transmit the order of the cards. If you're using a Deckmate 2, it's of the highest importance it's service correctly and by Shuffle Master themselves. However, Shuffle Master will only service devices in licensed card rooms. This is part of their deal with big casinos. Because of this, if you play in a home game or a Texas card room or other states with a private club model, Shuffle Master cannot service this machine. That means anywhere with one of these devices in one of those locations, it was bought on a secondary market and is serviced by the people at the location. This is an incredible amount of trust in the establishment with automated shufflers. Okay, now this is true, but he's he's not quite stating this the right way, in my opinion. It's not so much that Shuffle Master won't service them. It's that in these locations, 
they don't have much of a consequence for screwing around with them. So it's not just that they have to go to outsiders to service them. It's that they can find outsiders to screw around with them. And and by the way, so could a big casino where ShuffleMaster is servicing it. They could just have someone additionally service it and, and modify it. Now, maybe a ShuffleMaster could catch this if they were to service it, but they, they could just like never call ShuffleMaster to service it, and this, this wouldn't be a problem, or they could quickly change it back before they get there. So I don't know exactly what contract they have with ShuffleMaster at these big casinos, but just because ShuffleMaster will only service them at licensed casinos doesn't mean that the licensed casinos couldn't cheat, and it doesn't mean that at the non-licensed casinos that they will cheat. It's, it's not about hiring someone to service it who's going to cheat without the casino realizing it. It's more like the casino may hire someone to cheat on their behalf or maybe even have someone at the casino who knows how to reprogram these machines. So He is right that you have to put an incredible amount of trust in the establishment that has these shufflers if it is a smaller establishment that isn't licensed, especially. That's true. But like I was saying with Indian casinos, if the tribe has decided to do this, you'll never get any justice because you'd complain about the tribe to the tribe. At a Texas card room, you won't get justice because there is no regulatory board. That's the problem here. So then he goes on to say, I've heard of many different occasions where this tactic was used to cheat players in home games, in clubs, even at least once in a major casino. I don't know about that one, but that's what he claims. There are countless times this has been used to swindle people out of their money. It is far more likely that players use the knowledge of deck order to cheat than the sort of than sort the deck into rigged hands. Cutting the deck does nothing, as once you know one card location, you know where they was cut, and thus the entire order. The main ways this information is relayed to in-game players is via earpiece or their mobile device. I don't know the exact specifics of that transmission. Wanted to clear up these common misconceptions I'm seeing regarding using the shufflers to cheat. See, I don't know. I don't know if... I mean, yes, maybe they could uh, get the info of the shuffling and then transmit it to them, but I don't know if these machines have the ability to transmit it. They have the ability to sort. I don't know if they have the ability to transmit the order of the deck they've just sorted. That's not trivial. Maybe they can, maybe they can't. But I would just think that they could be programmed to every such and such number of hands to do these certain rigged programs of the way it would be ordered, and the person would already have the order listed there on their phone. He said, if you're ever worried, ask for the dealer to riffle a few times at the end. With a few riffles, it's basically impossible to use this technique to cheat. So he's basically saying to have the dealer shuffle it a few times himself after it's done with the auto shuffler. So it's not bad advice here. So if you do see a deckmate 2, you do have to be concerned, especially if the game is kind of playing in a non-standard fashion, like somebody can see your cards. So the reason Doug did this thread, he didn't mention Prime Social, but that's what he was talking about, was Joey Ingram's claims about Prime Social and then Matt Berkey and Landon Tease's claims about this shortly after. So let me play some clips from here. 
going on, guys? Join one, aka Chicago Joey, aka Big Bob, GTO, GTO headquarters, Las Vegas, Nevada, World Series of Poker, Poker Series are all around the corner today. I'm going to talk about an investigation I've been working on now for a couple weeks since I came back into poker. And uh, yeah, I've been talking with former management involved with this operation. I've been talking to numerous players about their stories that were involved in this operation. And today we're going to be talking about some allegations being made. Remember, these are allegations. Then right now, that there really is no proof in terms of what you might consider proof of guy on video doing something or anything like that. So these are allegations and more information will be coming out here in the near future. If you have any information about this one or anything else, email GTO investigations at protonmail.com. Come on. GTO investigations at protonmail.com. Come on, Joey. You got a big following here. Don't use proton mail. Jeez. Let me fast forward a bit here. I don't feel like hearing about proton mail. Prime social, right? Let's let's kind of let's back up, right? So, in poker, in the poker world, for the game of poker, it doesn't make much sense. The regulations don't make sense. Certain states you can play it, certain states you can't. Certain states you pay rake, other ones you can't pay rake. If it's a private game, you pay rake. They don't let you do that. And in Texas, Texas has gotten around the idea of taking rake. What is rake? Every time a pot takes place they take money out of it. What is rake every time a pot takes place, they take money out of it. So in Texas, you can't do this. So what they do is they have it where you pay some type of membership fee to be able to go in the games. So what is this, what does this kind of lead to exactly is that in also in Texas, the games aren't regulated. There's no real clear rules in place for how these things to be structured, that people can pop up. There's really no one policing the security. There's no one policing the shuffler decks. There's no one policing the live stream games. There's no regulatory board. Not to say regulatory boards always are going to get it right all either. And that doesn't mean, oh, 100% to trust anyone that's got some sort of association with a regulatory board or governing body board. But in this situation, the final decision maker is the owner of the place, the GM of the place. There's no run else you go to if there's some sort of dispute. There's no one overlooking things. So if you're a motivated operator, and you have access to putting on the game or the cards or the shuffler machines, then you can basically do whatever fuck you want to do. And there isn't going to be much repercussion because who is going to, who's going to, who saw something? You'd own the place. You saw something. It's on your cameras, right? Like that, that's sort of how, to me, it seems like a lot of these things work. So around what I'm told by players and by former employees. I've talked with Justin Hammer, who was one of the tournament directors, one of the managers of the room. I talked briefly with the GM, Brent Pollock. So what it looks like happened here is that there was a big poker series to take place on March 10th. The, it was a prime social Texas poker championship. So $4 million in guaranteed prize pools, $2 million in guaranteed main events. And what does that mean is that when these big series take place, the action goes crazy, the card rooms are popping, everyone's in town, people are making money, businesses are making money, everyone's pretty happy. So March 10th, this is scheduled to take place, and about 10 days earlier, around the beginning of March, the Prime Social decided to install some shuffler machines. Obviously, shuffler machines, they give you more hands, they make the game faster, makes sense. So they decide to install three shuffler machines, one in the high stakes table, so the high stakes players can get more hands in. And then the other machines are on outer cash game tables at games like 1-3 and sometimes maybe 5-5 five, five or 2-5 for Nolan Hold'em and Potlum in Omaha. 
So now they're running these high stakes games in the back room, 10-25, 25-50. They're inviting poker players, pros that we know. Landon Tice played in this game. The button clicker played in this game. He's a very successful online player. He was working with Doug Polk in the Doug Polk Challenge. Martin Zamani was in the game as well. Martin Zamani, you know, is just a guy, credible witness. You know, obviously we don't know about this fucking guy. This guy's a crazy guy. So the there's games running on. There's cash games going on. <laughs> Jeez, how's Martin Zamani involved in this too? Is he like everywhere that there's a scandal now? He's like witness to every poker scandal in 2022. Is that where we are now? on the back there and obviously it's in texas there's a lot of action so what i'm told is there's one guy in the game who's just creating a lot of action he's doing a lot of really crazy things he's talking a big game he's putting big you know he's playing we've all played with guys like this right so and now what we're told is the suspicion started happening because the play style didn't make sense there this guy was this guy was giving a lot of action. He wasn't winning money, but then there'd be other players in the game who'd be winning a lot of money, and then the regulars in the game started suspecting that cheating was taking place somehow. So we got the Shuffle Machine. It's the Shuffle Deck 2. Uh, and uh, kind of looking through more information on the Shuffle Deck 2, how the, the, in the patent system for the Shuffler works, it does seem to me that if you can get access to the Shuffle Machine and you know how to work the Shuffle Machine, there are potential exploits you can do with the shuffle machine where you could potentially relay information to maybe some type of device or some type of system. And also we know if you get access to the playing cards and you put some sort of device in the playing cards, then depending on how that that information relays to your device, whether that's on your phone or that's through some sort of audio system, whether that's through probably not marking a system. Let me stop this here. See, this is where we're starting to get off into the weeds. If you have something in the playing cards to transmit, first of all, the playing cards are going to be way heavier and way thicker. It's it's very hard to have uh, playing cards with the ability to transmit like this without it being apparent to players that these are not standard cards. That's the first problem. Second problem is you don't even need a shuffler like the Deckmaster 2 if the cards themselves are transmitting what their order is. Then... No matter who or what shuffles them, it will always be transmitted to someone who's cheating and will be able to see this. But it sounds like we're just hearing a lot of allegations being thrown at the wall and we're seeing what sticks. And and I don't like that. It's not the way I like to do things. Now, the shuffling machine, that is a possibility, as I explained before. I just don't think it's transmitting. I think that's where they're getting it wrong. And I have not looked into the capabilities as far as transmitting data of the Deckmaster 2. Maybe it does have the ability to transmit to other devices, even if it must be programmed to do so, even if it's not a ability it comes with by default. But uh, maybe it can be modified to transmit data to a device that would receive them. And then that could be communicated to the two cheaters at the table. Maybe. I won't say it's impossible because it's not impossible. But I'm trying to think of the practical reason to even have that, to even have the hardware in there to be able to make such transmissions. And it just doesn't make a lot of sense because why would it need to under normal circumstances? What, what would it need to be transmitting to outside devices? So I really think that if there is Shuffle Master, Deck Master 2 cheating going on there, 
that it's just a matter of the deck being prearranged in certain ways on certain hands and that people know in advance the way it's going to be. That's what I would think. But who knows? Now let's jump over to the show that Matt Berkey does where Landon Teese is a frequent guest there. They have a bunch of people who talk together, basically. And uh, this is from episode 39. And it's a show called Only Friends that Matt Berkey's been doing recently. Let me jump to uh, 48 minutes into this. It's a hour 22 show. So let's go to the 48-minute mark and listen to what they have to say there. Because Landon claims he was in these games. So I kind of want to hear about that. Uh, Ingram kind of tweeted earlier today that he has more information about new allegations being made against the poker room in Texas. Um, We've known about this for a while, obviously. Uh, Landon was actually in the game that is uh, being alleged to have been cheated. It was a no-limit game turned mixed uh, half and half between No Limit and uh, PLO at Prime Social in Houston. And the allegations are basically that there were three recreationals, one of which who is alleged to be a known cheater in LA. The other two are, correct me if I'm wrong, just a couple random yeah, I have no idea. Giga whales. No, yeah. no idea. Like guys that the game was running around or whatever the case may be. Yeah. Um, we lost, obviously. Uh, relatively small compared to Clicker and Zamani. Yeah. Um, so I guess, I I mean, like I know the details that are going to be coming out. I I don't want to, I don't want to poo poo anything. Let Joey do his thing. Uh, Landon told us and by us, I mean like myself and everybody else who has financial interest in, um, his play and everything else basically told us that there was some suspicion that the game wasn't on the up and up. Let me stop this here. For those of you that don't know, Landon, who's uh, 22 years old, is like a disciple of Matt Berkey's. Landon originally was just a fanboy of Joey Ingram's, who used to do like free little side work helping Joey with his show occasionally. He was like a big fan of Joey Ingram. And then somehow he made himself known on social media as kind of like the wide-eyed, excited young poker pro and he caught some people's attention and Matt Berkey took him under his wing and put him through his training course and has been backing him and they they backed him in that ill-fated match against uh, Bill Perkins where Landon gave up way too many big blinds as a handicap and then they realized that he was not going to be able to overcome that but Landon and Berkey are still close and you know, he's on Berkey's show all the time, and Berkey still backs him. So Berkey is interested in this because Landon was in this game and was backed by Berkey and lost there. And apparently he didn't lose as big as some other people in the game, but he lost, and Landon was saying that he felt he was being cheated there. But then again, Landon hasn't been around all that long, and he lost, and people who lose always like to come up with an excuse as to why they lost, so who knows? But Let's hear what he has to say. Yeah. And, you know, you can attest to this. Like, our, our reaction was just like, okay, but like, yeah, what are you going to do? The general statement was just like, 
really don't really know if it can be provable don't really know what's going on like nothing's really gonna happen also who do you hold accountable right exactly it just kind of is what it is like sucks yeah so uh i guess like that's the bigger conversation at hand here it's not really to to break this story about yeah. a game in texas being cheated like yeah we think that that's probably the case and uh it sounds like you know joey and doug potentially may be able to uh give a little bit more information but also it's you know it, it's it's whatever it's insider information that may or may not be uh held accountable yeah um What's more important, I think, or what the, the larger conversation at hand is, is that this is kind of a byproduct of the environment. And uh, this is something I've been talking about relentlessly for weeks, if not months at this point, and something that I had even brought up in the past when I had done business in Texas at these card rooms. And that's these environments are the wild, wild west. They are unregulated and very much unsafe. We've heard about shootings in Houston three or four times now at these card rooms. Uh, there are now speculations and allegations of cheating. Uh, we've already talked about all the issues of hosting big games there and how low the security is for those. Uh, when I went to um, an event in Houston, I guess it was during pandemic, right at maybe about a year ago, a year and a half ago, something like that. Uh, but there was a tournament. It was the biggest tournament at the time that had ever been hosted in Texas. Uh, I think it was a two million guarantee. They smashed it, and we also ran a live streamed uh, fifty a hundred game. The game was great. Don't get me wrong, but like myself and Perkins are, are there with just like a hundred thousand in cash, just on us, right? And the best that we could do, like we had to, we had to physically bring that cash to the room. Right. So like, thankfully, nothing happened to either of us in route. Um, but then thereafter, it's like okay, we get to keep it in a tiny little storage box there that may or may not be secure it's it's tough to know like we don't know to what measures they they take into securing their cage and uh the money on site and things of that nature um but then when it's all said and done we don't have any other option but to leave with the cash right so it's not like uh casinos where you have the ability to get uh cashier's check you have the ability to send a wire you yeah, these are good points. These are all good points, and I don't trust those rooms. And the security is poor, and there's been a lot of incidents recently where there's been shootings and robberies and a lot of scary stuff going on there, and I definitely wouldn't trust bringing big cash over there, and security is not very good in these rooms. Though There's been some brave security guards who've taken down like one of the robbers there. So I won't say the security guards themselves are bad, but just they don't have enough of it and the the whole setup there isn't very secure and you don't know if you can trust the rooms themselves and they're not regulated and there's nobody to complain to so it really is like showing up to a glorified home game and at high stakes that could be a big mistake so could there be cheating at high stakes games there of course there could be and that's the problem now it's easier said than done to just say well i won't play there because if you live in houston then what is your choice it's not like there's a card room close by that you can drive to and play middle or high stakes poker so you've got to put up with rooms like this or just not play in your local area also these games tend to be good and full of action and some people like that and are willing to tolerate the downsides in order to get this but you have to realize what you're getting in these places so is there really 
Deckmaster 2 cheating going on there? I don't know. It seems like they claim they're sitting on something that is more conclusive that they just haven't presented yet, and maybe Joey just likes to release this slowly. Maybe Polk will get involved, too. Doug Polk and Joey Ingram are friends, as I mentioned. So who knows? There may be more about this coming out, and maybe it'll be more convincing. I won't be surprised if it turns out to be true. I also won't be surprised if it's short on evidence and if it's too hard to tell what's really happening. And it is possible there could be cheating in some other way, and they're blaming the Deckmaster too. It's not totally trivial to reprogram one of these things. You can't just bring up the menu and say, okay, I'd like to select option number four to reprogram Dick. Okay, what would you like the first card to be? What would you like the second card to be? Like, it's not like that. You, you have to actually get it modified by someone with enough experience and technical know-how with these machines to program them to have functions they're not supposed to have. It really is like modifying the firmware of the device is what you're doing. So these are not programmable options that it gives you. And that's important to know. And it's not even as simple as having someone who's just technically competent. You have to know someone who understands how these machines work well enough to be able to program them. But with that said, it probably isn't that difficult, especially if you're already buying one of these on the secondary market. It probably isn't that difficult to find someone who does have this ability to come down and do this for you for a fee. And the person doing it for you, they're not necessarily committing a crime. They're just giving the machine a capability it didn't have before, and then whatever the owner does with it is up to them. And maybe they're committing the crime, but the person modifying the machine to give it that ability is not necessarily a crime. It would be like if I had a home poker game And before I set up the home poker game, I have a contractor come down and install a lot of hidden cameras in my house. Well, the contractor's not going to necessarily grill me as to why I want all the hidden cameras in my house. It's my house. I want to have hidden cameras here. And he'll put them in if I pay him the bills to do so. And then if I hold a home game in my house and start looking at people's hole cards with my hidden cameras... Well, that's me committing the crime there, but the contractor would not be responsible because he's just doing the work to install the cameras. So it could be like that, that the person who makes these modifications, they may have an idea that this is going to be used to cheat, but all they're doing is giving the machine a capability it didn't have before. So who knows? I don't want to make allegations when no proof has been presented yet, no credible people have stepped forward with believable stories it's just well we were in this game and this one guy who's a known cheater did really well like okay that's circumstantial but we need more than that before we're convinced and maybe we'll get this eventually now what i don't understand is if they're so convinced this happened and if they have enough evidence instead of telegraphing that they know about this and they give the card room a chance to cover up the evidence and reset the machine back to its original state. If they're so sure, why didn't they just go down there and directly make the allegations with whatever evidence they have and say, show us the machine. Let us inspect the machine. Let us have an expert come down and inspect the machine and show us that it's legit. 
and see what they're told. And don't give them time to modify it. Maybe show up with an expert. Find an expert who has the capability to be able to tell if the Deck Master 2 has been tampered with and just show up there without ever letting on that you knew about this beforehand. Don't do videos. Don't tease it on Twitter like Joey Ingram did. Just go down there with whoever else was cheated or believes they were cheated. Bring the expert down and say, okay, we want him to inspect this. And if you need to wait until... uh, you close down the table, whatever, we'll, we'll, we'll wait. But we're not going to leave here. We're going to wait until you can close this down and let us inspect the machine because we, we think there was high-stakes cheating. And if they say no, because, of course, you can't compel them to do that, then you can say, okay, why not? And, and what do we need to do to get this inspected without us leaving here first to where it could be modified back? Because for reasons A, B, C, we think there was cheating here through this deck master, too. And we have this expert with us right now who can tell us quickly if it's been modified or not. I think that would be the best approach. And, and again, they may refuse to do it, but that would speak volumes as well. Because if you know you didn't screw around with the Deckmaster 2, then you'd probably let this be looked at so you can show you have nothing to hide. But now it's too late. Now they could easily reverse it back and nobody will be the wiser. Now maybe there's more. Maybe... There's someone who will swear that they saw this in action or that they were present when these modifications were made. Who knows? We'll have to see where this goes. But at the moment, I don't have enough to say anything definitive of what did or didn't happen at Prime Social. But definitely an interesting thing to keep an eye on and something to watch out for if you were in an unregulated card room or an Indian casino. And there is this Deck Master too, Because you could be getting cheated. And not just at poker. Alright, so let's do our other win topic. And this has to do with the revival of a lawsuit. This is about the Encore Boston. And a lawsuit that has to do with the purchase of the land that it currently sits on. And it's a little bit of a complicated situation, so I'm going to try to break this down for you. And then I'm going to read you something that was sent to me by a listener who claims to have some knowledge about this and about uh, Steve Wynn himself. So Encore Boston is a Wynn property. It is the only casino in Boston. There is one license being given out there, and it was won by Wynn Resorts. This was before Steve Wynn was forced out because of the sex scandal. And there was a company that owned the land called FBT Everett Realty. FBT Everett Realty. And they had an agreement to sell this land to Encore Boston Harbor for $75 million. And the one contingency was that Encore Boston Harbor had to get the Massachusetts casino license that it was applying for. But provided they were granted the license, then this sale was going to take place for $75 million, where the win was going to own the land there for Encore Boston Harbor, and they were going to get it from FBT Realty. 
However, that's not what it sold for. The land, instead of selling for $75 million, despite that agreement, ended up selling for the much lesser amount of... $1 million. No, but $35 million. So how did that price fall so badly? How did they have an agreement for a $75 million sale of that land and it fell all the way to $35 million? Well, the Massachusetts Gaming Commission, quote, coerced the FBT to uh, reduce the purchase price all the way down to $35 million, and they were threatening to otherwise disadvantage Wynn's efforts to get a casino license, which if you remember, if the casino license fell through, then Wynn did not have to buy it for that uh, $75 million or for anything. So FBT really wanted to make this sale, and FBT was not going to be able to do it unless this license was granted. So they are suing Massachusetts Gaming for denying what was called a casino use premium on the sale of land there. And they're claiming that uh, if they were to get this judgment, they're seeking $40 million for the difference between the price that was paid and what was supposed to be paid, then even though the judgment would be against Massachusetts Gaming, the $40 million would actually be paid by Encore. They allege the reason that Massachusetts Gaming strong-armed them into selling it at a lower price was because of concerns that a convicted felon named Charles Lightbody was someone who would benefit from this sale. So the price was lowered to where Lightbody wouldn't get this benefit. I'm not exactly sure how, how that worked, but uh, the $40 million difference was considered a uh, premium that would be paid because it was going to be used as a casino. It wasn't just a regular real estate sale, and uh, apparently Massachusetts Gaming pressured FBT into not charging that, even though that agreement had already been made. Now, this was already a lawsuit that had been filed. Keep in mind that this uh, purchase happened in 2013. The agreement for the $75 million was in 2012, and the actual purchase was in 2013. A lawsuit about this was already dismissed. However, it was taken to the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts, which ordered a fresh probe into this whole matter. And it was stated that this whole deal was, quote, highly unusual and that they needed to take another look at it. So the Supreme Judicial Court in Massachusetts ruled that a lower court judge made an error in dismissing FBT's lawsuit last year. Now, I hadn't heard about this lawsuit or the dismissal, but I have heard now about the 
revival of this lawsuit. And this may go through after all. Massachusetts Gaming spokesman Tom Mills said they're going to review the latest opinion by the Supreme Judicial Court. He said that, the, uh, that they're going to address the findings through a- appropriate legal proceedings. Furthermore, the first chairman of the Massachusetts Gaming Commission, Stephen Crosby, has faced multiple allegations of bias for awarding win this casino license in the first place. And he resigned in 2018. And there's some concern there that this could also be related to what happened back in uh, 2012 and 2013, where the price of the land was abruptly lowered from 75 million to 35 million. And that FBT Everett Realty was coerced into doing so. Now, I have some further comments on this from someone who saw this as going to be a topic that we were going to have. Here's what he wrote. This is from a Poker Fraud Alert radio listener. He said, here's some interesting background to this whole story. Steve Wynn was put into the Frontier Casino by the Genovese and Detroit people, referring to organized crime, and has always been good at being able to bridge multiple worlds as the times and locations of his hotel ventures show. But that comes with the expectation that he'll always do favors for that crowd. From known stuff like buying land from Lightbody, that's the guy I was just referring to, who the Gaming Commission was supposedly worried about uh, benefiting too much from the sale, uh, to allegedly paying an extra 100 k per month while Encore Boston was built in order for construction to go smoothly. There were problems with construction when Wynn got by past transgressions until the ex got word of the arrangement and things got straightened out. The mayor of Everett, Massachusetts, where Encore was built, is a young guy, Carlo, who comes from a mob family and is good friends with Lightbody and just happens to have been blessed with a half dozen honeydew donut spots that nobody really knows how he could have afforded them. One of the guys who was charged criminally at FBT Realty shares the same last name with an alleged boss. Everything probably would have worked out smoothly during the land deal, some media scrutiny, but not much else, if it weren't for a phone call that occurred a few feet away from me, unbeknownst to me at the time. And he said a gentleman called Charlie Collect and said that you have a a call from whatever, please press star if you want to accept. All calls are monitored and recorded, which makes it sound like it was a jail call is what he's trying to say. Lightbody was excited and let the news of the impending deal slip. Kind of boggles the mind. Law enforcement trying to desperately prove that he was involved in things that, which he's never been charged, as well as the building the current case. All his calls are definitely monitored. Lots of chutzpah to go back for more money, but I guess it's a free roll if they have nothing else to hide. And present-day traditional OC in Boston is, is mostly retired wealthy business owners with no reason to do crime, and especially no reason to get involved with violent crime. OC means organized crime, by the way. So he's basically saying that uh, current organized crime is not really violent over there. So that's uh, what he had to say about this. I I don't know if any of this is true, but this is from a listener. 
basically he's saying here that there was an organized crime element to the entire Encore Boston situation. That's what this listener is alleging. And that FBT Realty, which was involved in this sale over to uh, Wynn, that to him it kind of makes sense why there was suspicion by the part of uh, Massachusetts Gaming that organized crime and this one guy Lightbody, this uh, who was described as a wealthy, shrewd, dangerous Native American guy who owned all that land, that there was some good reason for Massachusetts Gaming to worry that the purchase price was too high and to basically tell FBT Realty, no, this is too much, you can't sell it for that much. And uh, I think they were feeling that if it sells for that much, that local organized crime, which they felt was affiliated with FBT Realty, would then really get a big boost. I think that that's what they claimed the concern was. So who knows? I mean, it, it's so hard to tell. There's, there's so much corruption in this type of thing. It's very hard to tell what was really going on there, whether there was some kind of corruption at Massachusetts Gaming that basically forced FBT Realty to sell for way too low, or if it was Massachusetts Gaming trying to prevent local organized crime from making way too much money on this. So, pretty interesting stuff. I I didn't think there was any kind of uh, organized crime element to this whole thing at Encore Boston. And in fact, the reason Caesars was not the winner of that license over there, because they tried. The reason it's not a Caesars property, or one of the reasons, is because Caesars was accidentally involved with organized crime. Caesars, in in all their usual brilliance, they hired uh, a Russian mobster to renovate the Cromwell. (laughs) This is when they were converting Bill's Gambling Hall to be the Cromwell. And the company they hired was partially owned by a Russian mobster. And when that came out, Caesars was like, oh, crap. This is going to ruin our bid for the one Boston casino license. So instead of letting themselves get denied, they just dropped out. So the major competition Win had to win that license was gone because Caesar just dropped themselves out knowing that gaming was not going to give it to them because they had just gotten involved with a Russian mobster, which was accidental. I believe it was accidental, but that was a bad look. So if there actually was organized crime then on... This transaction that actually happened with Encore, that would be kind of ironic. Caesars must be looking at this going, what? And you thought we were the ones in business with the mob. But according to this PM I received, that the mob over there is not what you would think. It's not where they're rubbing people out. It's not like the mob of the 70s and 80s in Vegas that was burying people in the desert and dropping barrels of bodies in Lake Mead. But that he describes this as uh, retired wealthy business owners who don't want to get involved with organized crime. 
this guy claims that he was witness to a phone call that probably came from this light body guy that it happened to be someone next to him at the time. Not that that proves anything, but hmm, weird stuff. Trader Risky, welcome back. What's happening, Jeff? And I'll tell you, that Whitey Bulger stuff isn't too far in the past. So, I mean, there's certainly a, a big element down there. Yeah, that's true. You know. I don't know if this is going to go anywhere, this lawsuit. Remember, this is this uh, FBT company suing Massachusetts Gaming. So they're the ones accused of being somewhat associated with organized crime. And then yet they're the ones actually suing. And this has just come back to life because the higher court in Massachusetts thought it was unusual the way the whole thing went down. I do have to agree with that part. It it is unusual (laughs) to have an agreement for a $75 million land sale that just gets reduced to 35 by telling the seller that if this is going to be a $75 million transaction, then hmm, maybe Wynn won't end up getting that license after all, and you're not going to get any sale. You don't want that, do you? Would you rather a sale for $35 million or your sale for $75 million failing? You let us know. So that's what FBT seems to be alleging that Massachusetts Gaming told them, and they've been suing over this. Okay, so uh, we are done here with the poker and gambling topics. Now it is time to do some general topics. So first I'm going to do a coronavirus topic, and then I'll do my editorial. So the coronavirus topic is kind of an attempt to clarify something. And not really taking a side on this one because this is a statistic that's been going around and I want people to understand it because the vaccine, I'm not just saying a particular vaccine of COVID, but all the COVID vaccines are getting a bad rap recently. In fact, the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, who, by the way, got his fourth shot on the exact same day I got my fourth shot, May 18th, now had happened to him, which I hope does not become my story at the World Series, he has COVID that was just announced today. Now, he may have caught COVID a few days ago, and the vaccine is not said to really be fully effective until two weeks pass, and it hasn't even been two weeks yet, but it's close to two weeks at this point. It's been about 10 and a half days right now. And when he caught COVID, it was probably about a week. So it's not unheard of that that would happen, especially that it also is not 100% effective or anywhere close to that, that Omicron can bust through the vaccine, certain people, for reasons unknown. But there's been some stories going around that the vaccine actually makes it worse, that if you get the vaccine, that it's actually going to raise your chances of catching symptomatic COVID. And what was shown, and I saw this on Poker Fraud Alert, this was posted by a right-wing member of Poker Fraud Alert who's very critical of, of the vaccine, was showing from the province of Ontario from a website called uh, covid19.ontario.ca that's covid-19.ontario.ca which shows that Per 
uh, 100,000 population that we have been seeing a higher case load of symptomatic Omicron since the middle of March for those who are boosted with a third shot. Higher symptomatic COVID for those people since March 17th than from those who had two shots and those who never vaccinated at all. So is that possible? Is it really possible that those who were boosted are getting Omicron at a higher rate than those who were never vaccinated at all? And how could that be if it's true? And what was posted was a screenshot of that website showing the data from March 17th, 2022 to uh, May 25th, 2022. Well, you always have to watch out with statistics because they can be manipulated where they can show true statistics, but they can be kind of massaged to where they tell a different story than what would be the logical conclusion if you could see it more clearly or see everything. So you've always got to be careful. And in this case, that's what was going on. Now, was it true that in that time period that there was a higher incidence of people who uh, were boosted getting Omicron that was symptomatic than those who were unvaccinated? Yes, that was actually true, at least in the province of Ontario. But there's a reason for that. When was Omicron the biggest problem? When were we just seeing tons and tons and tons of Omicron cases? I know we're having some spikes again now, but we're nowhere near the peak right now. When was the peak of Omicron? Was it in March when this graph began? No. Was it in April? No. It was in January. January's not on that graph. Well, there's a reason for that. Because if you look at the entire graph, you'll see that doesn't correspond anymore to being boosted being worse. But let's look at the moment for the graph of deaths. Not about uh, symptomatic COVID, but actual deaths from COVID. I expanded the graph from that same website, covid-19.ontario.ca. And this is a graph for all ages combined from March 1st, 2021 to May 25th, 2022. So we're talking about almost 14 months. Some of it before Omicron, some of it since Omicron. So Omicron showed up in December and really got going in January in the U.S. And it has three lines. There's one for unvaccinated. There's one for two shots. And there's one for three shots. And if you look at the graph, right there in January, there's a big spike for all three because that's when Omicron was really hitting the U.S. hard, and Canada, same thing. This is Ontario, Canada. But by far, the one that has the most deaths are the unvaccinated. And the two-shot and the three-shot were pretty similar. In fact, similar enough to where it was almost the same thing. So the much higher death rate, as you would expect, would be the unvaccinated people. And then everything went down together as we got into February and March. 
And yeah, there's a spike since then, but nowhere near what we saw in January. But let's talk about recently. I will admit that in May, it does show that in the latest spike, the highest death per 100 population in Ontario was the triple-vaxxed people. The lowest was actually the double-vaxxed people. And the middle were the unvaccinated people. So how do I explain that one? Wouldn't this possibly mean that the third shot is actually causing more death? No. Let's think about a few things here. Who is more likely to get vaccinated? A 25-year-old or an 85-year-old? I think you know. And who is more likely to die of COVID? An 85-year-old or a 25-year-old? I think you know that too. So what you're going to find is that vaccinations become more and more common as people are older. So it skews older, the people who are vaccinated and people who are boosted. And deaths from COVID also skews older because the risk from COVID is much, much higher by age. In fact, it has been found that a 25-year-old who's unvaccinated has a lower chance to die from COVID than a 50-year-old who's fully vaccinated because the 25-year-old just has a much lower chance to die from COVID naturally. It's just a disease which very much has to do with age. There's other factors, but age is the biggest one. So if a lot higher percentage of older people are vaccinated, and it's mostly older people who are dying of COVID, whether unvaccinated or vaccinated, then it's going to make the graph look like this. Because most of the deaths are old people, and most old people are vaccinated. So this can artificially make it look like that the vaccine isn't preventing deaths. Now, the way to prevent this is by taking a look at each age group. So let's take a look at my age group, 40 to 59. I'm right in the middle of that, but you can select 40 to 59 on that website. And that's most important to me because that's what I am. So taking a look here, it's very clear that by far, and even presently, the most deaths are occurring to those who are unvaccinated in my age group. Because there you're taking out the factor that old people have a much higher vaccination rate than young people. So yeah, if you want to ask me, do I think that a vaccinated old person, even with recent boosters, is more likely to die of COVID than a person who's never been vaccinated who's 25 or 30? Yeah, I agree with that, but that's because of their age, not because of the vaccine. Now, the website has a bug where you cannot show the symptomatic cases and expand it out past this March 17th, 2022. And I have no idea why their problem exists, but I, I just can't get it to do that. But I have to imagine it's along the same lines. But there's something else you need to think of. Once you get Omicron, you have natural immunity, which is better than the vaccine. Not that you should want it, but once you've gotten it, you're going to be protected better from future Omicron infections and even future non-Omicron infections 
than someone who got vaccinated. Just your body fighting off the real disease gives you more immunity than fighting off the fake version of the vaccine of the disease that's given to you through the vaccine. So who was most likely to get the very contagious Omicron in January? Of course, it was the unvaccinated. Now, some vaccinated people got it too. Some vaccinated and boosted people got it too. But unvaccinated people, and I watched people who were lucky, who were just not caring about COVID, didn't get vaccinated, went out and did what they wanted. Some of them got lucky and didn't catch original COVID or Delta. But Omicron, it didn't let them off that easy. Omicron, because it was so much more contagious, hit them. I know a lot of people who dodged COVID all the way up till January and then got it. It was hard to avoid getting COVID, getting Omicron in January if you were unvaccinated and you were going out a lot. So what happened is a bunch of unvaccinated people got COVID, got the Omicron strain of COVID in January. So therefore, they're pretty well protected right now because they had it in January and they got over it because Omicron is 10 times less deadly than original COVID and Delta, which weren't killing people at a super high rate if they weren't old anyway, but Omicron especially isn't. So these people got it already, they recovered, and they are not that likely to get it again at this point, only four months later. So these people are well protected from getting COVID again. So if they already got it in January, of course we're going to have a higher rate with those who were vaccinated but never had COVID. Because they haven't had Omicron yet, and they are not as well protected as those who had Omicron but weren't vaccinated. So that would explain why there really is a higher case rate for those who were boosted and those who were vaccinated over those who were unvaccinated. Because the unvaccinated probably already had Omicron. And by the way, the ones who were not boosted also were much more likely to get symptomatic Omicron than those who were boosted. So basically, you're looking at who's most likely to have never had COVID, and it's the boosted. That means who is most likely to get it because they haven't had it yet. That would be the boosted. So that, that explains it. doesn't mean the vaccine's not working. It just means that much more of them haven't had it yet. So that's why you have to be careful when you believe these graphs, because they may be presenting real data. I mean, this is from the province of Ontario. It's real data, but the way you interpret the data, you've got to watch out. You've got to think about why might the data be this way. So I stopped and I thought about it, because I wanted to know. I wanted to figure out why is this happening this way? Now, with that said, how confident do I feel that I won't get Omicron at the World Series of Poker? Well, not super confident, because the fourth shot, the jury is still out how much good it really does you. It does seem to increase the antibodies and T-cells among people who haven't had the shot for like seven months where that's really degraded by now, and that was me. But is it going to be enough? To prevent symptomatic Omicron, given how it is known to bust through vaccines, given how it did bust through Gavin Newsom's uh, set of vaccines, and he got vaccinated on the same day I did for the fourth shot, 
might I have the same fate? Answer, yes. But I do think I have a lower chance than had I not done it. So I'm still happy that I did that. If I end up getting Omicron anyway, and if it ends up kind of a crappy case of Omicron, then I will feel stupid for having gotten the vaccine. The fourth shot, that is. If I get a very mild Omicron, then I still will be happy I got the fourth shot because it could be where I'm getting symptomatic Omicron, but it's not as bad as if I had not gotten that fourth shot. What's interesting about Newsom is that he got this antiviral treatment, which isn't supposed to be available. It's called Paxlovid. It's from Pfizer. And it's something that you can jump on quickly and really reduce the severity of COVID symptoms. But it's only supposed to be available to those who are either 65 plus or have some kind of major risk. Now, Gavin Newsom is not 65 and he does not have any major risk involved with his health. So I don't understand why he qualified to get this. I don't know if this is favoritism or if there's some kind of exception we don't know about for major public officials. Now, to be fair, Trump got some kind of treatment when he got COVID in October 2020, and he responded pretty well to it, and he rebounded pretty fast, especially when you consider that he's old. And it was never really disclosed what they gave him, but they definitely gave him some treatments that weren't really available to everybody else. But there's also a difference between the president of the United States and a governor. So I don't know. It's kind of bothersome to me that if Gavin Newsom gets Omicron, that they'll give him this Paxlovid that he's not supposed to qualify for, but I can't get it. There is some talk that they may eventually allow this and maybe soon for anyone who wants it and that a doctor prescribes it for. But at the moment, they're saying they're not going to give it. I mean, honestly, I would like to get that if I were to get Omicron. It was found in December that unvaccinated high-risk COVID patients showed an 88% reduction in hospitalization and death when they took Paxlovid versus those that did not. But as far as those who are not high-risk and not old, it isn't really known how much it's really helping. And there is also what was known as COVID rebound, where people were getting the symptoms back as soon as they stopped taking it. This was happening at about 10%. That's one flaw with Paxlovid. But someone defended it by saying, if it prevents you from going to the hospital, even if you become symptomatic after you stop taking it, the drug was still a success. But I believe if I get Omicron while I'm at the World Series, I'm just kind of screwed. I don't really think there's anything I can take that's going to make much of a difference. Hopefully that fourth shot will protect me as the third shot seemed to. Remember, I had Omicron right in my house in January, and I did not get it. And I did get the fourth shot at right around the right time for the World Series because I've 
I'm getting it. You know, it'll be over two weeks by the time the World Series begins. And by the time the World Series ends, it'll be about like nine weeks. So that's right in that sweet spot where you have the most protection following a COVID vaccine. Once you get past three months, there's some decline. And after four, there's more. And after five, there's a lot. After six, there's a whole lot. So you really want to get one of these things, not right before you play, but like a few weeks before you play is ideal. But just be careful about what you're reading. I've seen a lot of misinformation out there regarding the vaccine and how it was a failure and how it just makes things worse. I will say that the vaccine did not live up to what we believed it originally was. It was thought that you take two doses of the vaccine right at the beginning and you have 95% protection and it should last for quite some time. Maybe they'll have to give you another one when it mutates. I'm talking about COVID, but other than that, it, it's it's a very uh, strong and long-lasting vaccine. It, it turned out, no, this degrades very quickly. And it's not so much based upon the mutation of COVID, though Omicron is better at busting through it, and they, they are modifying the vaccine. But it's more that the vaccine just wears off and a lot faster than they thought it would. So that is a flaw. That is something that was not expected when they administered it. And it's something that makes it tougher for people to want to sign up to keep taking, especially those that experience side effects from it like I do. All right, I want to get to the final topic here. It's an editorial. I'm sure there are people who will not agree with me here, but I'd like you to listen to this with an open mind. Because even if you're on a different side than I am politically, you'll see that I do have some agreement with some of the points that you are probably raising, whether outwardly or in your own head. And this has to do with school shootings. Now, first of all, when I grew up, when I was in school, I didn't worry about this because this hardly happened. There is a myth that is going around that school shootings have just been very commonplace for a very long time, and it's because of the proliferation of guns in U.S. society. And there are tons of guns in U.S. society. I mean, there's, a, there's more guns than people. There's a, an insane number of guns out there in the U.S. And there's... I, I've seen stats out there, which, again, are misleading that school shootings have always been a big problem in the U.S., that we're just noticing them more recently. And that's, that's not true. It is true that there were some school shootings over time, even back when I was in school, but there's no comparison, especially the big ones, especially the really, really uh, high death toll, high injury toll, spree killings like we're seeing here, ones that aren't targeting specific people. Because it's one thing if a student shows up at school and shoots someone that they intend to kill because they hate them, whether it's a, a teacher, an administrator, another student. That's different than someone just showing up and firing indiscriminately and killing people, and just killing for the sake of killing. And that, that's what we've seen a lot more in the last uh, 
think at 24 or so years since Columbine. I looked at a list of school shootings during the years I was in school. I'm talking about elementary school through when I graduated high school. I entered elementary school in September 1977. I graduated high school in June of 1990. So I did the normal 13 school years that Americans do. I looked at a list of these shootings, and I found only five that had more than two deaths and or more than eight injuries. This is in 13 years. And of those five, one of them was a targeted murder. And that was in 1985. A 14-year-old girl showed up and shot her ex-boyfriend and his friend dead and then killed herself. So I wouldn't classify that as the same as these others. That was just a targeted murder by a heartbroken girl. So let's look at the other four. On January 29, 1979, in San Diego, two dead, nine injured, when a 16-year-old female shooter opened fire on an elementary school from across the street. February 1984, in Los Angeles, three dead, 12 injured, a shooter was firing at students leaving school and then shot himself dead. September 1988, in Greenwood, South Carolina, a 19-year-old entered an elementary school and started firing, two dead, nine injured. And January 1989, the worst of these, a 24-year-old man with a history of violence went into an elementary school and started firing before killing himself, six dead, 32 injured. Of note, also during those years, there was a criminal incident at an elementary school that actually hurt the most people, and it wasn't because of a gun. It was a couple, a middle-aged couple, that took an elementary school hostage in 1986 in Wyoming, and they brought a bomb with them. And the wife of the couple accidentally detonated the bomb and hurt herself and 73 students. Nobody died, but 73 students got hurt, and she got hurt. And I guess at that point, the husband just freaked out, and he shot her dead, shot a teacher, but didn't kill the teacher, and then shot himself dead. So the bomb was actually what did the real damage there, because uh, the only two people who died there were the perpetrator and his wife, who was also a co-perpetrator, and 73 of the 74 people injured were from the bomb, not from the gun. Anyway, what's my point here? My point is that, number one, it was really the Columbine shooting that changed everything. That was when these students at high school in Columbine, came up with this idea to do this spree killing. And that gave future shooters the idea to do the same thing. Because the Columbine shooting got all this attention, all this media coverage. The killers became famous. And now every so often we have someone who does this. And it's really disturbing and really sad. But we can't reverse it. We can't make people forget Columbine and the school shooting since and go back to what it was before. So this is a problem. This is an ongoing problem that's not going to go away. You can't just ignore it and just hope it changes. We're we're almost 25 years later since Columbine. It's still happening. And of course, this conversation is precipitated by the Uvalde, Texas shootings where 19 children were killed 
in an elementary school by an 18-year-old shooter who entered and uh, just, again, just fired at people. And there, there seems to be mistakes by the police who didn't enter to stop him for quite some time. And that's a whole different discussion. A lot of the discussion this past week has been about gun control. Why should an 18-year-old have been able to purchase an AR-15 to do this with? Why should 18-year-olds have access to assault rifles that they could buy legally? Why should anybody have access to assault rifles? What could be the point to have one of these other than to commit crimes like these? So there have been calls to ban the sale of assault rifles. There's been calls to require universal background checks for anybody who purchases any kind of firearms, which wouldn't have helped here because this individual didn't have any criminal record. But there's been calls for that. And there's been calls for other gun control type measures to prevent things like this from happening in the future. And we hear this every time there's one of these school shootings. And it's very easy to get emotional when you think about this and you think about these innocent little kids who get murdered like this. And you think, well, what can we do to prevent this? And it makes sense. Let's take away the weapons which are being used to do this in the quickest fashion. If we take that away, shouldn't that at least help? That's what people say who are on the side of doing that. Now, I will say that there are a few points that are being raised, and this is mostly by people on the left, that would seem to make sense. Another one is to raise the age to purchase firearms to 21 from 18. So, okay, let's look at some of these. So, the 18 to 21 thing, that may not be a bad idea. If you'll notice, a lot of these school shootings are committed either by minors who are actually at the school or by young adults who have recently graduated high school. Not always the same high school, but it seems like once people get older, they, for whatever reason, even if they want to go on a spree killing, are less likely to go after a school. Then they're more likely to just fire into random crowds or go after a business where they had a bad experience. Something like that. It's less likely they're going to go shoot up a school. For some reason, the, the school idea seems to appeal to those who either are in school or were recently in school. I'm not sure why. Maybe just because school is such a recent memory if you're 18 or 19 and for whatever reason, if you have that rage, it's easier to want to direct it at a school rather than if you've been out of school for a long time. I'm not sure. I can't really tell you the mindset of these spree killers. But, yeah, looking at the stats, you can see who commits these crimes. So if you raise the age to 21, at least those like this guy who bought it on his own wouldn't be able to do it. Now, keep in mind the ones that are committed by minors, including at Columbine, these are often used, these are guns that are often just taken from what the family already owns, that, that the parents already bought. 
So this isn't going to stop it. It just it may make it a little harder. But if the would-be killer has access to guns anyway because their parents have guns, then you're going to still see this happening. But would I be that opposed to changing the age for firearm purchase from 18 to 21? No. Because there aren't that many legitimate reasons why an 18-year-old, 19-year-old, 20-year-old would really need a gun. Gun ownership is more needed to defend your home or defend your business. And people who are 18 to 20 are usually not really in that situation. So you're usually not going to own a house or even rent a house at that age. You're usually not going to own a business at that age. So there's less of a reason to be buying a gun at that age. And there's a number of other things you can't do until you're 21. Like gambling, like drinking. So, yeah, I can understand where gun purchases for those under 21 could be banned and it wouldn't be the worst thing to do. As far as the assault rifles, again, it's worth having a discussion regarding these being purchased or at least to have some better background checks involved, which again is not foolproof and there's a lot of uh, things that's not going to stop if if the person doesn't have anything in their background that will prevent it. But, you know, I can understand some of these suggestions. However, it's not so simple. See, there's people on the left saying, well, let's just do these. If we can just save some lives this way, why not? Well, here's the problem. Everything comes with a side effect. The side effect is that with every new piece of legislation, it becomes easier to pass related legislation. And that's true in all kinds of legislation, not just about guns. It's known as the slippery slope effect. So if we pass new gun control measures, even ones that seem to make sense after something like this, what about if more school shootings occur, which probably will, because these are not going to stop them. And it's learned that uh, the new measures that were passed didn't really do anything to stop it. So, of course, people will say, well, then we have to go further. We have to do more to stop it. And then more measures will pass. But then what if another school shooting happens? Well, then we probably need even more gun control, right? And we get more and more and more until it just becomes normal to just keep restricting gun ownership every time one of these happens. And that really could be the result of passing new gun control measures unless there is a good faith effort of cooperation between both sides of the aisle where the right says, okay, we're willing to listen, we're willing to make some modifications to some of these gun laws, but on your end, on the other end, on the left, you need to promise that this is going to be it. That you're not going to use this as a springboard to further limit gun ownership. Now you may be thinking, oh, come on, they're not going to really do that. They're just trying to do things that are common sense, like 
stop 18-year-olds from buying assault rifles. Come on. Why are you saying it's going to be a slippery slope? Well, I can say it from experience. Because in the state of California, thankfully this is not the case anymore, but very recently in the state of California, I mean like the last few years, there was a law that you could not own a handgun with more than 10 rounds. That would make a lot of popular handguns purchased prior to that law illegal. Now, this was overturned, so it's not the case anymore. A judge overturned it pretty recently. But there was a time that they had changed gun laws in California to where more than 10 rounds was illegal. You could say, who needs more than 10 rounds? Well, tell me, if you have a handgun and you're not an expert marksman by any means, you just got it for home protection, and somebody breaks in and you're really nervous and your hand is shaking and you're like, wow, this is it. I've I've got to actually fire at someone in my house who's going to fire back at me. I may not make it through this. I can't believe I'm going to have to do this now. You think you're going to shoot your best? You think you're going to be your most accurate in your firing? Or you think you're going to miss? You think you're going to need as much ammo, as many chances as possible to hit the bad guys who've broken into your house? Of course you will. And what if there's more than one of them? Again, of course you will. Now, this isn't just theoretical. In overturning this stupid law, they actually cited some real-life cases that occurred in California where homeowners would have run out of ammo if they only had 10 rounds versus 15. There is also something pointed out that you can't just carry around extra clips with you to reload because often the person who is doing this has a phone in one hand trying to call 911 and a gun in the other trying to keep the criminals at bay. So it's not, you can't just say, okay, hold on, everybody. Let me put the phone down. Now let me reload here. Okay, okay, everybody, we're ready. Let's start up again. It, it doesn't work that way. You're, you're fighting for your life at that point. So like, for example, there was a real life case that was shown fairly recently where an old woman had three burglars break into her home who were armed and she fired at them and they fired back. And she she's in this gun battle with three burglars in the home and uh, finally hit one with uh, like the 13th round and it finally made the other two run away. Had she only had 10 rounds, she would have missed all 10 rounds and there would have been no more bullets coming from her and they would have charged upstairs and uh, killed her. And there were two other cases like this that were cited where it was between the 10th and 15th shot that the damage was done and the homeowner was able to survive. So it was a stupid law. And as I said, it made existing handguns that people only kept for self-defense illegal in California. This was a real law. This just happened. Now, the reason they passed this law is, is so at mass shootings, it's harder to just walk in and fire 15 rounds off without having to pause to reload. But the unfortunate side effect of that is those who are legitimately using the guns for self-defense, especially when very nervous, have fewer chances to 
hit the bad guy coming in or the bad guys. It's an unnecessary and stupid restriction. But that was actually passed as law in the state of California until it was overturned. Now, that's what I don't want to see become federal law. I don't want to see crap like that. And the only way we're not going to see crap like that is if we get a commitment from the side that wants more gun control that they're not going to do things like this. That they will do a few sensible things that most people would agree with and stop and not try to do this again the next time there's another shooting. There's also the issue of guns being out there already. I mentioned how many guns there are out there in the U.S. You can't just collect them all. The last thing you want is where the criminal element is armed and law-abiding citizens are not. You may prefer that we could go back in time and just make it to where guns were not freely available in society and distributed easily, but we can't. We don't have a time machine. So our reality right here is that there are a ton of guns in the U.S. And it's not just so simple. You can't just say, well, let's get rid of them, have people turn them in. You're going to have the wrong people turning them in. So it's one of these things that you can't make it perfect. You can't completely eliminate the problem. You've got to take the actual situation, not the way you'd like it to be, but the actual situation on the ground and try to come up with the best solution that causes the least harm. Not the solution that causes no harm. There's no such thing in this case, but the solution that causes the least harm. And that where whatever solution you come up with does not have an unfortunate side effect that causes even more damage. So it's not just so simple of changing laws or making stricter gun control. You've got to think of the whole picture here. And keep in mind what I'm not saying. I am not saying that we shouldn't have any kind of reform. We do have some on the right saying that, but I'm not one of them. I'm not saying that the right should absolutely refuse to budge on this matter. I'm saying there's cooperation is necessary. Cooperation, one side being willing to listen and maybe change some things, and the other side willing to say, we're going to stop here. It may not be what we'd prefer. It may not be our ideal as far as what we'd like to see, but it's an improvement. And in the spirit of cooperation, yes, we're going to commit. We're going to stop there. Otherwise, nothing's going to get done. Otherwise, there's going to be fear by the right if they give an inch that a mile is going to be taken. And then they're just not going to want to cooperate at all. So I guess if, if you want to cite this to try to win elections or something, I guess it's a good strategy to hope nothing gets done and then shame the other side for not doing anything. But if you really want to solve the problem, you've got to have cooperation. And it's not a matter of not caring about kids or being beholden to the gun industry. I'm just being realistic here. I, I've seen how politics works. And it's definitely true that anytime one side concedes something and gives into some kind of reform, it really opens the door. Unless there's a very clear agreement that this 
opening of the door is very temporary and the door is closing again. And that both sides acknowledge that. And that's not binding. Of course, it could always change. They could say, well, you know, that was then, this is now, we've got to, we've got to modify it again. Yeah, that could happen, but it would be helpful if you can get a commitment. Yeah, we're, we're not going to keep pushing this. We're, we're not going to keep pushing for more reform if we get this reform. But I'm not, I'm not seeing that. It was like what I said with the Roe versus Wade thing. So, like, if Roe versus Wade gets overturned as expected... And if you want to see that codified into law to where the right to an early abortion is guaranteed in all 50 states and the right to an abortion when you're raped is guaranteed in all 50 states and the right to abortion if, you, if it was incest or if the mom's life is in danger is guaranteed all 50 states. If you want to see that, fine. And most Americans will be behind you. But if, if you were going to try to pass a law that also allows abortion all the way up to the nine-month mark, if, if the mom is depressed, then no, that's not going to get done. That's, that's trying to demand that your own extreme interpretation is the only thing acceptable. And then the other side's going to shut down and say, F you. We're not, we're not touching that. We're not allowing that. So that's one of these things where... You can't just demand it's got to be exactly the way we want it or, or forget it. Or then nothing gets done. And then you can't complain the other side isn't cooperating. You can only complain the other side is not cooperating if you're offering something reasonable and not entirely what you want. And they still refuse. Then you can say they're not cooperating. Not, hey, look at our extreme proposal here. Why aren't they accepting this? Or, hey, look at this proposal here, and we reserve the right to do this again next year. I think nothing's going to get done, to be honest. I do want to say one other thing, and that is when a killer decides that they want to kill, and they have months to plan it, because most of these school shootings are not just spontaneous decisions. Usually when you look into the background of the killer and the whole process that the killer went through before doing it, you usually see that they were planning this in advance. They didn't just wake up one day and say, hey, let's go to the school and kill people. So sometimes there's a long time that they are planning and thinking about this. And when you have that situation, that also means that if they do not have a gun and cannot obtain a gun to commit the crime, they will think, okay, well... Is there any other way I can kill people? And the answer is usually yes. If they have the capability to make a bomb, which isn't all that hard, especially with the internet, they can do that. If they have a motor vehicle, they could simply run people down and kill a lot of people that way. We've seen that in Europe. Is it really much different if someone uses their car to mow down 40 kids who are walking towards school in the morning or in the afternoon? If someone does it that way, rather than walking with a gun and shooting them? No, it's the same thing. Same tragedy. Just committed in a different fashion. So if you have a killer who wants to kill and has months to think about how he's going to kill, he'll come up with a way to kill, unfortunately. I'm not saying we should just make it super easy for him, but I'm saying that it's naive to think if you take away the way the killers are killing currently 
most commonly, that if you take that away somehow, that they're just going to say, well, well, you know, I would love to bring this gun and do this, but since I can't get a gun, i just not going to bother. Just F it. We're not going to do it. That's not how they think. If they want to kill, they will do it. And unfortunately, there's a number of options they can come up with to cause a lot of death. So that has to be considered too. If I felt that taking access to these guns away would put an end to the killing problem of kids uh, at school, then I'd also be more willing to listen to these measures that are being proposed. But I'm still willing to listen to them. I'm just saying that I think there's a lot of naive people that believe if we do this and this, then this will stop, and that's not true. Also, you need to think of this. As tragic as this was, the percentage of kids that die from spree killings at school is a tiny percentage of the number of non-medically related deaths of kids in the U.S. The reason most kids die in the U.S. for non-medical reasons, meaning it's not because they were born with birth defects and die. I'm talking about ones where there was, uh, it was not related to health issues. Most of it is some kind of accident, a car accident, uh, some kind of accident when they're playing outside or they fall in a pool, whatever it might be. You know, like a, a, it's, it's very sad that this happens, but there's uh, a lot of accidental deaths every year of, of children in the U.S. and everywhere, really, not just the U.S. And that's really the main way kids die, but it's very hard to prevent. You know, accidents are accidents. You can try to take measures to prevent it, but you know, in a country with a lot of people, there's, there's going to be a certain number of these, and it's, it's sad, but that's hard to prevent. But taking a look at the deaths that are from violence, not from accidents, still, the school shootings are a tiny percentage of that. And that most of the deaths that occur against children that are a result of violence are ones that are either murders committed by parents or murders that are committed by career violent criminals who sometimes kill the children just in the process of committing their crimes. Not even that they're setting out to kill kids, but that just ends up happening. Think of drive-by shootings, for example. And a lot of these times, these were preventable. A lot of times, these are violent criminals that shouldn't have been out of jail. They didn't escape. They just were let out way too soon. Or parents that had the opportunity to do what they did because Child Protective Services was incompetent and didn't remove the children when there were many, many signs that the parents were a danger to them. There's loads of cases of that too. CPS is notoriously incompetent. But how often do you hear Democratic politicians complaining about this? When there's a child who's murdered by a career criminal, even if that career criminal wasn't setting out to kill children, but still murders a child in the commission of other crimes. How often do you hear 
Democratic politicians saying that person should have been in jail. We need to reform our laws to not allow these career criminals on the street after everything else they've done. Keep them in prison longer. Keep our streets safer. You don't hear them saying that. You hear a bunch of complaints about the the racial makeup of of the prison system and about uh, systemic racism and uh, we don't give these criminals enough of a chance to reform and we need more social workers, blah, blah, blah. Like That's what you hear. You don't hear about keeping these criminals off the street from Democratic politicians, even when things like that happen. I've read some horrendous stories of, of little children being killed by criminals who shouldn't be on the street, ones who've had multiple convictions for violent crime already and should have been rotting there in jail instead of out on the street to commit these murders. But you, you never hear Democratic politicians saying that. And you never hear Democratic politicians criticizing the CPS system and all of its failures because, guess which party the social workers in, the, in CPS usually are part of. So these are real areas of reform that are needed that without such reform result in both murders and other bad things happening to children that could be prevented. Not completely eliminated, but reduced, greatly reduced, if these were handled properly. But it's a lot easier to talk about something where, number one, it's a big news story, and number two, there's an easy villain. The NRA, the gun industry, Republican politicians that don't want to budge because they're supposedly beholden to the NRA. So if you do care about that, if you want to see these school shootings not be as deadly or as common, and you want to save children that way, great. But shouldn't you care about the many more children who are murdered that are also preventable? But the policies that you seem to want don't prevent them and, in fact, make it worse. You can't, you can't uh, support policies that put more violent criminals back on the streets, which results in murders of a lot, of, a lot more people, including children. You can't support that and then say, oh, we've got to protect the children from school shootings. You're a hypocrite if you say that. You've, you've got to support it all. If you want to bring down the number of murders and other violent incidents and sexual incidents against children, then you need to support this across the board. Anything that's going to make it better, that's a reasonable action to take. Not just what's a good thing for a slogan to win the next election. So I can't respect it. Anyone who's going to say they want to make these uh, changes to gun laws, then I want to see you say, I want to see violent criminals off the streets longer. Look at how many murders there are of children every year. And then look at how many of those occurred in the schools from these spree killings. And you'll see that's not the main problem as to why children are getting murdered in the U.S. It's a small part of the problem it's very high profile but it's not the main contributor so either you want to solve the whole problem or you don't care about the problem or you think you care but you choose to ignore the bigger part of it i personally want to see all murders decline especially ones against children 
And that's why I'm willing to have that discussion regarding changing gun laws. But we also have the discussion about other things. We can't just solve a tiny percentage of the problem and leave everything else as is. Sometimes you get to have uncomfortable discussions. Sometimes you get to have uncomfortable reckonings with your own beliefs and the uh, harm they might be causing, even if you're not directly causing it because you don't directly have influence on the policy. But sometimes you have to think, yeah, wait a minute, why... Why are these violent criminals who just keep getting in trouble over and over for violent crime? Why, why are they on the street? Why, why did this, for this third crime in the last two years, why is this guy serving six months? Why? Oh, look, he just murdered uh, a whole family in the, in the commission of, of one of his latest crimes. Oh, yeah, maybe he should have been in prison. Yeah, well, with, like, why is that? Well, how did that happen? That's what you got to think. You can't just think about these school shootings, which are tragic and very sad, and I hate reading about these things. But I hate reading about any of these murders of children. Not just the school shootings. Not just ones where you can blame the NRA. I I hate them all. Do you hate them all? If you do, shouldn't you want to support policies that would bring the number of these down? That's just something to think about. I think I'm being open-minded here. And I hope you will be too. In the COVID segment I did before this, while it's a completely different matter, in that COVID segment, uh, you heard me criticize my own side of the political aisle. You heard me debunking some things that fellow Republicans have been pushing. And I said it annoys me to read these things. So you see, I'm not just repeating what's on Fox News. Trying to be fair here. But either you want to solve the problem or you don't. You may, in your heart, want to solve the problem, but I'm saying practically solve the problem. Not just say it, but really support efforts to bring down murders across the board. And there's certain ways to do that. And we've seen some things work over the years, and we've seen some things not work over the years. If you look at the crime stats, all the way through the early 90s, and then for the next 20 or so years, and then for the last eight or so years. You can see certain patterns. You can see what has worked and what has failed. It's not very hard. Well, that's all I have. I hope those of you who disagree with me politically can at least understand I'm coming from a, a good place here, and I'm coming from a place wanting to see a problem actually solved. And even if you disagree with me on the reason or the method that I'd want to solve it. I want the same thing as you, just I want to really get there. And also sometimes you have to think about what's the reality of where we are and what what can we do from here? And think about what's going to practically work, not what you wish could happen. And one, for, one more thing, I, I don't like the comparison of the U.S. to other countries. Here's one unfortunate fact about the U.S. The U.S. had violent beginnings and never shook that from the culture. And we may never see it shaken from the culture, at least not while all of us are alive. So the U.S. is different than all other first world countries because we have a violence problem and always have. 
and it's not so simple to just solve. You can't just say, well, let's remove the guns. First of all, you can't. And second, uh, it's not just about the guns. There's just a, a certain culture of violence that has been part of the U.S. since the beginning and, and is hard to change. So you can't just say, well, such and such worked in Europe. Or why does Europe have so much of a lower rate of things like this? Why do they have a lower murder rate? Because they're different. Because the U.S. is a unique first world country that has always had a violence problem. Maybe one day it won't, but we're not anywhere close to getting there. And there's no easy way to bring us there. So that's why with the U.S. being a unique country, it requires unique solutions. And we have a lot more guns out there than everywhere else. And they've been ingrained in U.S. culture since the beginning as well. It's just a different country. It's not like anywhere else in the world, especially in this way. So you can't just say, well, we're a first world country and so are these European countries, so let's just be like them. It's not that simple. And I, I say that with a lot of things, but especially with this. The crime and punishment tactics in other countries, the crime prevention methods in other countries that are first world, they wouldn't work here. It would be a disaster if they were tried here. So that's something to consider as well. You can't just say, well, let's just be like Europe. And there are some things that Europe does that I actually agree with and wish the U.S. were to do. Like, a lot of Europe is far better with consumer privacy laws than the U.S. is. And a lot better with consumer laws in general than the U.S. is. There's a lot of things that I see that... uh, a lot of protections I see people have in Europe that we don't have here, and I wish we did. And there's really not a good reason why we don't. There's not even a very good counter-argument. We just don't have it. So there's some things I look and I go, oh yeah, Europe's doing this right. So I'm not someone who's like always bashing Europe. I'm just saying uh, it's different. So just something to think about. I, I try to present these things in a way so you can understand how people like me are thinking. Absent of all the slogans and the memes and all that other stuff you see these days on Twitter. I'm trying to tell you that sometimes it's not as simple as it would appear. Sometimes what appears to be simple and logical and easy is not. I hope we don't read about anything like this anytime soon, but unfortunately we probably will. And the same discussion will keep being had. Here's a comment from the, well, they said they don't want me to read their number, so I won't even see the area code. It says, please don't read my number in the show. So I guess they mean the area code. So here's a number, here's a comment from a listener, I shall say. I disagree with your take that kids will find a way to kill. There's a clear blueprint in place for this type of attack using firearms. Their attackers are often radicalized by others familiar with the blueprint. Best the high score, more kills. This type of attack has become a part of our society. Well, here's my response to you here. First of all, I don't believe most of these are egged on by a lot of other people saying, do it, get more kills, blah, blah. I, mean, I, look, I know that's happened before, including some recently, but that's not always what it is. And it's, 
I believe it's just more these disturbed individuals who want to do this and make an impact and be remembered and be discussed, even if it's discussed in a bad way. And I think that's the motivation. I think people saw what attention the Columbine killings got, and they want the same attention. Especially if they're angry and resentful at life, and they kind of just want to do this, even if it's to randoms, because they feel that the world has been a bad place to them. So they want to hurt it back and go out with a bang. I don't think radicalized is a good way to describe it, because these usually aren't normal kids who are convinced to do this for some kind of higher purpose. Usually, it's just deranged people who just go do it. They sometimes will plan it for a few months before actually doing it. In fact, usually they do. But there's not even like a logical or semi-logical explanation for why. That's why a lot of times it's the first crime they ever committed. That's why it's sometimes hard to see in advance it's going to happen. And as you've seen, there's usually not even any kind of a racial or ideological reason behind it. Like this last one was a Hispanic 18-year-old who mostly killed Hispanic kids. There definitely was not a racial element there. And in fact, I've usually seen in these cases that the person doing it is killing those of their own race. Or if not, they're just kind of randomly doing it and whoever dies, dies. I wouldn't really say radicalized. I will say maybe desensitized by reading certain message boards online where people just talk about this like it's no big deal and joke around about it. And it starts to make them think, wow, maybe, maybe that's not that big of a deal to do. Maybe that's it's normal. But I don't think it's so much radicalized like someone would be who's reading some sort of a fanatical uh, religious or political doctrine that's that's just making them believe that they're doing the right thing and that this is necessary. That That's what I'd kind of see as radicalized. And this just doesn't strike me as the same thing. And I think that those who've been thinking about doing this for months will try to find another way if they don't have access to a gun, especially if they have a motor vehicle, which can be used as a weapon. From the 530, another comment about this, the other forms of killing are not as easy to execute, not as easy to stop after it's begun as we saw the response of the police. Well, they're all different, but like if you have a car, you, you can cause a lot of carnage, unfortunately. You really can. And it may be o- over sooner than what we see with these shootings, but they, at the end, if if the body count is pretty high, then really it's it's all the same thing. That doesn't mean we should just leave assault rifles in the hands of 18-year-olds and hope it ends up okay. I'm, I'm just saying that it's naive to think that even if we could remove the guns from the hands of these kids, that we wouldn't see killings anymore. Mass killings, because there's other ways to do it, especially if they have a car. Remember, they have months to plan. They're not, it's not dropped on them one day. They're not waking up one day and go, oh man, I've got this gun right here, so 
What can I do with it? It, it doesn't go that way usually. It's something they, they sit there thinking about. And by the way, there's probably a lot of kids that have sat and thought about doing something like this and then chicken out, and you never hear about it. There's some who are caught that, that discuss this beforehand somewhere, and they're intercepted beforehand by authorities. You just kind of forget about those because no one actually gets hurt or dies. And then there's others who just consider it and then don't ever do it, and you'll never know because they're, they're not going to advertise, hey, I was thinking of uh, going and shooting up a school but I just decided not to. Like, you're not going to hear that from people. They're just going to keep quiet about it. So I can only imagine how many people have considered it and then decided not to. But I think usually by the time actually someone does it, they, they've put a lot of thought into the matter. They've also had to make peace with the fact that they're probably going to die that day. Usually these killers go into it believing that they're probably going to be shot dead eventually by police. In fact, sometimes they go in with a plan to kill themselves before they can even be arrested. So they've got to make peace with that as well, that they're going to not only kill a bunch of people, but end their own lives too. So this isn't usually the type of thing that's a spur-of-the-moment decision. That It takes planning, and then if you think about it, if they have all that time to plan it without a gun, they, they can probably plan something different. I would be wary of solutions that you believe are solutions that are not really solutions. Or ones that can have a bad side effect. Do you really want a solution that suddenly makes your handgun illegal? I don't think so. Alright, that's kind of a depressing way to end the show. But uh, that's all I have here. Next show, we'll have some World Series topics. Because the World Series will have begun. There will have been bracelets awarded, and we don't talk that much about who wins bracelets, but, you know, it'll be going already. It'll be about almost a week into the series. Be on Sunday, June 5th will be our next show, probably around the same time. And I hope you join us for that and for the summer as we cover the World Series of Poker. I hope I don't catch Omicron. That would suck. Also, if I catch a cold, and I've, I've caught a lot of colds at the World Series over time, then I've got to worry, like, is this Omicron? Though <laughs> so I think I'll be able to tell the difference. Because I'm pretty good at being able to recognize when I have a cold versus other things. It, it has a certain progression to it, a certain feeling to it. So even though Omicron has some similar symptoms to colds, I I think I'll be able to tell the difference. All right. We're done. Trader Ruski, are you still uh, awake? I am up. And uh, I will talk to you during the week. We'll get the hats done. Yeah, let's get the hats done. And uh, hopefully I will uh, see you soon. Sometime at the World Series. Hopefully uh, I'll see some of you listeners at the World Series. And again, you know, if you see me in an event, you can call out to me as long as I'm not, like, in a hand. You'll be able to see if I've got cards in front of me. If I don't have cards in front of me, you can call out to me and just see me around. You want to say hi. Or if you're at the World Series and just want to say, hey, you know, like, I'd like to meet you and where are you going to be? You know, I'll I'll tell you where I'll be and then you can come uh, meet me there. I've, I've done that before with other people where some listener will text me and say, hey, I'm here 
you know, where are you? And sometimes I'll say I'm I'm not in Vegas at the moment, or I am, but uh, I'm not really going to be down there for another day. So can you come tomorrow or things like that? But you know, I'll I'll try to make it easy for people to at least come and say hello and and meet me briefly if you'd like to. And if I have hats at that point, whenever that might be, then maybe I can give one to you if I can be convinced that you're a real listener. And yeah, just uh, let me know if you're going to be there. Oh, also, uh, this is important. If you're going to tweet while you're playing events, if you're going to tweet like your chip updates, it doesn't have to be like every few minutes. Like you, you, you can just tweet your update once or twice a day and that'll be fine too. But if you want to do this and you'd like it to automatically post to Poker Fraud Alert, then there's only two things you need to do. Number one, let me know in some way. doesn't matter what way. You can text me. You can email me. You can post it on the forum. But let me know in some way which event you're going to be in. And then number two, just tweet with hashtag PFA and the two-digit event number. So if it's event one through nine, you put a zero in front of it. So like event eight would be hashtag PFA08. Event number 18 would be hashtag PFA18. And the system will automatically find your post on Twitter with that hashtag and automatically post it to a thread for that event on Poker Fraud Alert. In fact, you can do this without a Poker Fraud Alert forum account. You just have to tell me in some way, hey, I'm playing such and such event. And the reason I need to know in advance is so I can create the thread for you. We lost Trader Risky. So I have to create a thread for that event. So if you don't tell me in advance, the thread won't be there and this will fail. But if I create the thread in advance for you, which I will do if you tell me you're playing that event and you're going to tweet it, then all you have to do is hashtag PFA and the two-digit event number and it will automatically post to Poker Fraud Alert within about two minutes. So if you'd like to do that, please let me know. And I will include that in the... WSOP 2022 subforum that we have here that was recently created. That's something we've been doing every year since 2012. So let me know if you're going to do that. Now, if you're just going to play and not tweet, then you don't have to tell me because this is only having to do if, if you're going to live tweet your chips. But again, you don't have to do it like a ton. If you want to do it once a day, that's fine. Just let me know. All right, we're done here. It's a longer show than I expected. Kind of had a number of semi-long topics that all added up. I want to thank Trader Ruski for joining me here, even though he hung up on me, but I'll accept that. We'll do the uh, jazz version of Remembering You, which is the closing theme to All in the Family. This is actually the Archie Bunker's Place one, as I've explained before. I hope I have a good World Series. It's one of these things that starts to irritate me if I keep falling short. And there's so much variance to this. Sometimes one hand, one bad beat can change everything. It can be the difference between 
winning a bracelet and min-cashing or not cashing and cashing. In one event where I finished like 40th, the eventual winner was someone who I kind of knew. It was like an acquaintance, like a friendly acquaintance. But uh, I was happy for him when he won. But interestingly enough, he would not have cashed had it not been for knowing me. There's no collusion or soft play involved, but it was just that I put him all in when I had a set, and he had an overpair of kings. And he said before folding, you know, a lot of other people here I would call, but Druff, I just don't think you would have done this if you couldn't beat this hand. And he tossed it, and at the end of the day, he told me he had kings, which I could beat because I had a set, and he just had an overpair. So he said if it had been someone he didn't know, there's a good chance he would have called that and busted because I had him covered. He ended up winning the event, even though this happened fairly early. It was before anyone had cashed. So little things like that can make the difference. All right. That is all for tonight and this morning. Shalom. Shalom.